Steve and Kevin review Kaladesh for Vintage on episode 57 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 57 of So Many Insane Plays, our epic Kaladesh spectacular. I'm Kevin Crowen with Stephen Menendian. Great to be here. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. We don't have too many announcements this episode, so we have a couple of tournament announcements coming up. There's not much time before Eternal Weekend, of course. If you're living uh, under a rock. <laughs> in, case you're, in case you happen to be living under a rock, yes. Eternal Weekend is about a month away now, a little over a month away. So in my neck of the woods, we've got Team Serious Opens coming up. There's one this weekend, but it'll already have happened by the time you hear this. So 10-15, that is October 15, at POP in Sandusky. There's a vintage event, and then 10:22. That is the weekend before Champs. There's one at Comic Town in Columbus. That's a split Legacy vintage event, which Team Serious likes to do every once in a while. So you're going to play some rounds of Legacy, some rounds of vintage. That's always good for some fun stories. Definitely. Yeah. And, and they have sweet giveaways usually. Oh yeah, yeah. And, Comic Town's a good place to play in Columbus. And, and that pop place, that's play, that store is sweet. Yeah, that's a nice store too. Yep, all the TSOs are really good places to play. Well, Steve, in my, got yeah, in my neck cool of coming up, right? in my neck of the metaphorical woods, I don't know where that is, but uh, <laughs> there's an old school event coming up at Eudaimonia in Berkeley, California, uh, which will be which will be help me out here, Kevin. October. That's nine. The first weekend. Yeah, I think that's right. October 9th. Yep. And for folks who are planning to come to that event, double-check the ban and restricted list. We have made a couple of adjustments, acceding to popular opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're going at a modest pace here, but uh, opinions are quickly evolving in old school in some unusual ways. Uh, in particular, there's a lot of pressure from folks to unrestrict cards that I'm wary of unrestricting. Okay. But the card that we're unrestricting for this particular event, just to make it align a little bit more closely with the Eternal Central rules, is Mana Vault. Uh, oh. Yeah, there's there's okay. actually a, a fairly surprising consensus emerging around unrestricting Strip Mine, which really? is really interesting. You know, I, I like the idea of different... In my experience, that's a pretty divisive issue. Agreed. But it seems like the people who, are tr- who actually play it are coming around to the opinion of unrestricting it. Uh, huh. But, you know, I think it's it's uh, still a long way to go before the Europeans would go in that direction. They still have black vibes restricted. No one else does. <laughs> wow. But, okay. uh, but, you know, as I said before, I prefer old school where there is a diversity of banned and restricted lists. I just think it makes things more interesting. And I don't just mean different communities, but I like communities who tinker with them. So unrestricting yeah. Mana Vault will be, will be fun. I think it's really, really good. But... <laughs> But uh, we'll find out if it's too good. Okay. And then there's going to be a November vintage at Eudaimonia, um, which will be after Eternal Weekend. But uh, that's on the calendar, and the date for that is, Kevin, help me out. 
I think that one is November 6th, right? Yeah, so that's just, what, two weeks after. That's right, November 6th. Two weeks after. No, that's that's the weekend after Champs. Oh, yeah. oh great timing on our part. Yeah, because, <laughs> because Champs is on Halloween. So for all the people who won't make it from California to Columbus, it'll be a great place to, uh, to sort of break out your vintage cards, dust off those cards, and, you know, uh-huh. you got the juices going. Remind me again, Kevin, when is the European Vintage Championship slash Eternal Weekend in relation to the American one this year? Yeah, this year they almost overlap. The European one is the weekend before, so it's uh, the October 21st through 23rd. That's the so, critical thing because the top, presumably the top eight of whichever event precedes it will influence the other one. Uh, yeah, so, definitely. The Europeans are going to get first stab at a super high-profile event with Kaladesh. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, we're not going to have time, I don't think, to record a show and get it posted in between those two, but... Um, I would encourage all of our audience to pay attention to social media and such for those European results because they will inform a lot of players, I think. Agreed. And it's even a more accelerated timeline because don't forget the Vintage Championship in the United States in Columbus is on Friday. So it's not even a full week, I assume. <laughs> That's true. That's true. The Vintage Champ is on Sunday and you've got five days. I mean, and we, don't, <laughs> we won't even hear. Right. I mean, that'll end up. The Late in the list. day on Sunday, you're right. So you're gonna have you're gonna learn about those deck lists probably on Monday morning, and you're gonna have earliest. until yeah, yeah until Thursday night to integrate that. <laughs> 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 that's really funny and awesome. I mean, it's it yeah, that's unprecedented, and this will be the only time it happens, well, so far as we know, because they've distanced the two events from each other in 2017. As right, we they're gonna be discussed. six months six months apart. Right, six months apart. Well, should be interesting. Should be an interesting couple of months. That's right. As far as other announcements, Steve, do you have an update on your Gush book? Well, funny you ask. <laughs> uh, actually, I do. Uh, we cleaned up some of the edits and, and re-released it, so it's an updated version. But more importantly, Jayco, the editor in Eternal Central, have done a really unbelievable job uh, with the latest edits. This We're done tinkering with it, but part of the vision <laughs> I had for this book compared to the earlier editions, is I really want to have a much stronger visual element, a visual component. There's only so much that you can do with a book compared to, say, a podcast or video or, you know, streaming. But but I think there was much more to be done in terms of creating a visual element and particularly in terms of representing sequencing. So one of the things that people will find a lot more in my book is a lot of tables. Uh, and there's a, a number of reasons for that is I wanted to have end of chapter tables that summarize the key content so that people read it, they grapple with the content, they engage with the content, they digest the content. At the end of it, they can come back to the book later on, look at the tables, and it will refresh their recollection. It will jog your memory. And all those ideas and the explanations and the rationale and the reasoning behind it will all come, come flooding back. And then also I want people to take notes with the table, circle things, checkmark things, star things, asterisk things. Um, but what's really cool is one of the chapters in the Gushbond engine, which is chapter three, uh, I had in mind being a largely visual sequence. And when we released third edition, we really didn't do that. I, I wasn't really happy with that. I loved the rest of the book, but I really wasn't happy. And, and so this time, Eternal Central has 
in the last couple of weeks redone that sequence in a largely visual way that looks just unbelievable. I mean, it shows the cards you have in play, your mana, your storm. It's it's awesome. And then for all the images in the text, uh, Jaco dug into his personal collection, which is anyone who's seen the Jaco Drazi deck <laughs> with the Silver Surfer and everything else. The the cards are unbelievable. They're they're beautiful, and it just makes the the images pop off the page. I couldn't be prouder of the manuscript. There's there'll be no more tinkering. I did update a couple of you know there were some grammatical syntactical things that readers and myself had flagged. I did actually tweak a couple deck lists and adjust a couple of tables. But it, I'm done with it. I'm so proud of it, and we're we're exploring right now the possibility of working with printers to see if we can find a way to make hard copies. If we do, there'll be a limited edition number of, of hard copies. More on that later. But for now, uh, the you know it's over 360 pages, and it just, it's just awesome. So I couldn't be prouder of it. Check out the, the Gush book, uh, Understanding Gush 3rd Edition on Eternal Central. All right. You know, a hardcover one of those would be pretty sweet. I know, I know. And we did do hardcover versions of, of the second edition with quiet speculation you know six years ago and that entire print run sold out but but we would be doing a six by nine which is a smaller book uh, oh interesting yeah so it'd be the like, pocket guide <laughs> exactly exactly it would be it would be much more like those 90 mid 90s uh magic books like the baxter books you know i have, oh, I have a whole shelf yeah. full of those books which are sweet I mean, they're just fun right. to look through you know um but kevin have you seen the the visual elements that that um in some of the new gush book no not the latest editions you're talking about so i'm interested well folks can go to eternal central and there's actually a like 11 page preview of selected pages just like you'd see on amazon and and under the uh the gush book so you can actually see what i'm talking about decide whether you want it or not but i couldn't really couldn't be happier good good awesome and steve you also wanted to touch on the whole masterpiece series the new expedition variant for this set what do you think about it i think it's so cool but but so interesting because well first of all it signals a number of different things or represents a number of different things it represents that wizards is now no longer afraid or even hesitant about printing cards that aren't going to be legal and standard in new expansion sets um you know the first time we saw this happen was with the hidden treasures in, Z- in the original zendikar right mm-hmm. yep but but that was totally different because that wasn't new cards. That was actually cards they purchased on the secondary market and then put into <laughs> put into packs. So they purchased like Moxin and Dual Lands and all kinds of weird things yeah. and, and put them in. So it was clear to anyone who opened a pack that the hidden treasure had nothing to do with the set. And there were a set of rules about what you could do with them, right? Like you, I don't think you could use them in limited. Uh, you certainly couldn't right. use them in standard or block constructed. They weren't part of the set. Expeditions with Battle for Zendikar took that a whole different step, right? Because those cards were part of the set, but they were not legal and standard or block constructed, and yet they were also um, had their own rarity, right? They had an extreme rarity, like the original Hidden Treasures, right? Yeah. So, um, so that they were far more common than those treasures, but still, right? Yeah. Far more common, but also, you know, like the Hidden Treasures, they were like the Hidden Treasures in that they weren't legal and, and standard, but they were unlike them in that they were actually embedded as part of the set. And some of them were legal in the in the set. Some of them were cards that were in the set, and some of them weren't, right? Yeah. So, so they're hybrid. So it's really confusing. Like if you just were a new player, it could be quite confusing. But what was valuable about valuable about that? A number of things were valuable about it. One is that it represented a willingness to try new approaches to printing in sets 
that were designed for standards. So one of the complaints that existed since the beginning of, of the, since the, what I call the schism between type 1 and type 2, uh, the creation of type 1 and type 2, which later become Digin Standard, is that mm-hmm. you couldn't print certain cards in new expansion sets because it would impact standard. So like, you know, you couldn't reprint power, for example, or whatever. But <laughs> indirectly, as a result of hidden treasures and then expeditions, they found a way of doing that, <laughs> which is amazing. For a long time, we thought the only way to do that would be to create special sets like Conspiracy or right. Commander sets. Right. Now they found a way to do it. And the way to do it is the couple things. One, you create a special rarity. Two, you create a special you know, insignia or border that makes it clear that this is a dis- this distinguishes it from the rest of the set. Um, yep. And so they, this, I think that's really important, frankly, from a design <laughs> and a, desi- a design perspective. And, and we think about how new cards enter the card pool. It's actually really significant. And this now tells us with Kaladesh Inventions that this is no, no longer just a, uh, in fact, they made it explicit. This is no longer a one-off thing or an experiment, but now it's going to be part and parcel of the card pool. So Mark Rosewater has just announced that every set is going to have something like this. Uh, so why don't you tell our listeners what the Kaladesh expe- inventions are, and then I'll, I'll say a little bit more. Well, I don't feel like listing them all off, but sure. they, <laughs> they are thematic in that they are all artifacts, so they tie in with the artifact themes of the set, the, 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 the theme of invention, and they are also all really, really highly sought-after cards, many of them for either Vintage or Legacy, many of them for uh, Commander, and they are all printed with this beautiful filigree border, kind of a yes. super art border style, and beautiful art just across the board. Ridiculous art. It's amazing. And also, they're not afraid to include expensive cards in this. Yeah. Now, this is not a this is not a new precedent, right? But I mean, the expeditions had some several expensive lands in them. But this goes up on, on another level further with cards like Mana Crypt. I mean, Mana Crypt obviously recently lost yes, some value because of Eternal Masters. <laughs> yeah. But but I do think to further your point about the precedent setting. Not only does it have to do with printing non-standard legal cards, but it also has to do with introducing very expensive cards in otherwise normal booster packs. You know, expensive by 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 standards standard is say fifty to seventy-five dollars. That's yeah, you know, that within would be reason, the high end of a standard card. Yeah, right. And these these masterpieces are starting at that level. And well, going the, ex- up. the expeditions were, especially the, the Fetchland versions, those were all at that price range, right? Yeah, exactly. The expeditions set that precedent in terms of price, but, but the, none of the expedition cards, when they came out, the originals were not as expensive as Mana Crypt still is. That's the thing. Yeah. So they're ramping up in terms of their willingness to put just ridiculously expensive old cards in. Um, clearly, they're skirting around the reserved list still, but they've done everything else that was once thought impossible, <laughs> to your point. Yes, exactly. And and that, that changes the way in which I think both the designers can think about printing new cards, but also changes the way in which vintage players should think about reprints, because there's now there are now more avenues than ever before for reprinting vintage staples. There are uh, there are specialty sets that we cover, like Conspiracy, which include reprints and new cards. There are specialty sets like From the Vault. There are uh, specialty sets like Modern Masters and Eternal Masters. Uh, mm-hmm. And and now 
you can just put these things right in the in the base expansions. So, yeah. uh, you know, the the sky Basically, is really no doors are closed at this point. Exactly. That's what I'm that's what I'm getting at, and that's really unprecedented. And I think we need to appreciate that. Yeah. Um, the Good other point. thing, the other thing that I think is significant is what you said about the border here. With the expeditions, the border and the frame has always functioned as to kind of frame the art. It's it's distinctive from the art itself. But mm-hmm. the, this filigree border, I don't know if there's a precedent for this, but the art it, it actually interacts with the art in yeah. a very different way. In a number, in, in at least two respects. One is that the art it it reminds me of those altered art cards that people get made where they have the art expanded into the border like the mm-hmm. drawn into the border and some of the those are some of the coolest alterations you'll ever see but here the 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 border has gaps in between the swirling metal and you can see additional elements of the art so it's a very different kind of border than i think we've seen in conventional magic cards and also, because of the border, is kind of metallic artifacty. Uh, it it in many cases kind of feels like it's part of the art as opposed to just framing the art. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And in addition to everything you said, I'd also like to add that the border is a far more brown, mostly bronze kind of color to it, which for my eyes is a throwback to old frame art. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I I appreciate... I have an association, I mean, especially vintage yes. players, players have an association. There's a reason we call the the old Brown. workshop architect Mono Brown, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I really enjoy this as a bit of a throwback, too. It's not exactly the same tone, of course, but it's far closer to Alpha than it is to the last several years Mirrodin. to Mirrodin-style washed out artifacts unquestionably and i mean i was also looking at uh i I think the color i love the colors i know this isn't for everyone right and when mirrodin came out when the original mirrodin came out it was kind of you know with any change in magic it received a lot of opposition because it was different we'd never seen anything Mm -hmm. like it before and people were rightly attached the aesthetics of the old border but Mm -hmm. they've continued to tinker with border over the borders over time i love this tinkering and i I, at least i love where it's gone here i mean one of the best examples of what i was talking about of seeing art is on lightning greaves if anyone takes a look at it the top of of lightning greaves above the title of the card you can actually see card art (laughs) so not just the border but the actual card art uh so it's 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 breaking out of the border it's breaking out of the frame and we should just mention that, you know, not only is Soul Ring and Mana Crypt here, but Mana Vault and Lotus Petal and Chrome Mox and Mox Opal and Hangerback Walker. So there's a lot of really good vintage staple cards here. And in fact, it's, in it's fact, all this, of the non-reserved artifact mana. Yeah, in all the of it. format. It's all of it. And not only that, I was looking at it, but Chrome Mox and Mox Opal have never been reprinted in an expansion set. They've been reprinted in specialty sets, I think. But mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm almost sure of that. I think maybe one of them was reprinted in like a Modern Masters or something. But we haven't seen them reprinted in this kind of set before. So some of these cards have never been really reprinted. And it's awesome that there's more out there. So Yeah, several Kudos. of them are going to be the first time in foil, like Mana Vault. Yeah. Which is totally cool. Like Skorak, for example, I think has only been reprinted once in a, in a spe- like a Commander set or something. So <laughs> that's awesome. So- there's a lot of good stuff going on here. I mean, um, these cards, to a card, these, this art is beautiful, the presentation is beautiful, and the card selection, you know, from from an Eternal player standpoint, the card selection is amazing. Totally agree. And, 
And this is only basically the first half. I don't know if it's exactly half. It's just the first batch of these masterpieces for this block. There's well, going to be a whole other bunch of them yeah. in the next set. That's that's the most intriguing part, possibly of all, is that they made it clear that this is something they want to do and replicate this approach. In in so they've done lands and now they've done artifacts. What's next, right? <laughs> well, I, I I I don't know if we have any evidence of this, but I think we're going to get artifacts again for the next set. But I mean, I could be wrong. There's I have no proof. There's still plenty of awesome artifacts. It's just they really they really knocked it out of the park with what they chose here. Totally agree. Super cool. Anyway, I'm look forward to seeing my first one in person. Well, as usual, it would not be a set review without our report card. So let's see how we did on Eldritch Moon. As usual, Steve, we have some hits and some misses with each set review, and there are a handful of cards that we end up reviewing, and uh, we both agree that they will see no, you know, appearances. And that's no change for Eldritch Moon. So for the likes of Cokes from the Blind Eternities, Mausoleum Wanderer, Emrakul the Promise End, Curious Humunculus slash Voracious Reader, and Lupine Prototype, there were no surprises. Zeros across the board. Although, I should put a couple of asterisks. One yes. is that yes. Paul Rietzel very yes. famously <laughs> did well with Mausoleum Wander in VSL. So there's certainly an asterisk there. And also, Rich Shea brought Emrakul the Promised End to some dailies on Magic Online as well as some VSL. So there's been some, some additional love for Eldritch Moon that hasn't manifested in paper, at least not yet. Or in, or in top eights of the Power Nine challenge. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> But let's talk about those non-zero cards, ones that you or I predicted how, something. How many greater. are we dealing with here? Oh, well, let's see. Only seven. Oh, only. Okay. <laughs> only seven, yeah. <clears throat> so, for Gyre Reach Sanitarium, you predicted zero, I predicted one. The result was, sadly, zero. <laughs> that goes down as a win for you. You know, I hold out hope that maybe in the long run, those of you who love Miko Koro will give the guy reads sanitarium a try but uh <laughs> so far so far that one is a zero as you predicted same thing goes for the next few cards actually this is going to be a common refrain here unsubstantiate which you predicted none of i predicted two and so far zero no one has decided substantiate is the right thing for their for their tempo slot <laughs> and also bedlam reveler i predicted one to your zero and there one zero I still won't be surprised to see Bedlam Reveler or Unsubstantiate or the Sanitarium in the long run, but so far nothing. Next up is Eldritch Evolution. You and I both predicted one, and the result is zero. Remind me what that one was? That is the Natural Order of Sorts, where you sacrifice a creature and search your library for one that costs two more. What were we thinking? You and I just... That would go into like a band deck or something? Yeah, we were thinking that it would play a similar role to Green Sun Zenith. In a, in a toolbox kind of uh, mid-range deck. Interesting. Yeah. The sort of deck that I've been playing a lot lately, but it's just my decks have not been have not been Eldritch Evolution decks, so we'll see. Next up is Spell Queller. You predicted three. I predicted five. The result was three. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> so 
that was a good call on your part, but I, I feel compelled to put an asterisk on this and the next card because those three Spellqueller top eights, one of which is me, those three don't include the next two tournaments I went to and also did well at, which also included Spellqueller. <laughs> uh, the RIW event that was about uh, 13 or 14 players, something like that, and I got fourth place in that one with Spellqueller. That one's just not on TC decks. And then the next TSO, sadly, which we only drew eight people for, so I would not deign to call that a top eight by any stretch. But I did go X and one in that event, which we played kind of a, a Swiss plus one. So we played four rounds. Hmm. So I, I feel personally that I did my best to put Spellqueller up in these numbers, but uh, <laughs> only one of the appearances is mine. And it's a similar story, though. This one goes down for me, actually, on Tamio Field Researcher, because you predicted zero. I predicted three. The result was one. But again, that one is me. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and it is missing the same two I alluded to before for the next two tournaments, which aren't on TC decks, which, again, I did well at. So I believe Tamio is a little bit better than, than your zero, closer to my three. But I have to admit that I am just wholly disappointed in the rest of the vintage community that no one has caught on to how amazing Tamio Field Researcher is. Well, she is legitimately my favorite planeswalker in vintage. Wow, that's that's amazing. I mean, yeah. part of part of it is that we're not predicting, you know, what we think is playable because we'll say whether we think something is playable or not. We're predicting what people actually play in top eights. Yeah. We'll make it through top eights. And so there's a lot of yeah. kind of assumptions baked into our predictions, including what the metagame looks like, the structure of the metagame, etc. So, you know, when I say zero, that's not does not mean I think a card is unplayable. It just means I don't predict in this time period there will be it'll appear in top eight. So let me just unpack this a little bit. You know, part of the challenge in doing a set review is what is the purpose of this set review? You know, some people, they want mm-hmm. to know whether something will be playable in general so they can know what to pick up and have a complete collection. Other people mm-hmm. want to know whether it's going to see play, so they should either prepare for it or consider it for inclusion in their own strategies or really just to jumpstart their own thinking in terms of design. I think, you know, we gear our podcast, like most set reviews, for all of those purposes. But when I say zero, you know, no, no one... Neither one of us has lost a bet against the other uh, being skeptical about <laughs> card playability. I mean, you know, I, there are certainly cases in which, um, you know, one of us has been on the underestimating side of card appearances. But for the most part, the winners in our in our prediction model are those that, that you know, approach zero <laughs> um, or, or pick the under. So, you know... Let me just say one other thing about this, because it's it's part of the challenge here is that the vintage metagame is both dynamic and yet also slow. And so what that means is that cards can be incorporated fairly quickly, but the community is not large. And so if certain people who do well don't incorporate cards with certain archetypes, then the chances of it appearing in top eights, it's either going to have a readout, you know, it's going to have a rebound effect where other people will pick it up on it or it won't and so it's kind of like it's almost like predicting whether like montolio will incorporate it into his workshop deck or something um the other thing is the other side of the equation is that you know i think you and i kevin both look at the format from a very long-term perspective you know so we could say wow card a would look real would be really good in vintage of 2004 
or vintage of 2007. Are, when we pr- when we're predicting, our model is based on what will happen in the next trimester, in the next three months, or the next period, as mm-hmm. opposed to what would see play in 2004, or 2007, or 2011, and or or what would see play even two years from now. And so our model is very specific, <laughs> and we don't want people to misunderstand that at all. Um, so we're, we're not making a conclusive statement about playability. We're just saying what we think will happen. And what happened can can depend on a lot of different factors. So, you know, when Eternal Weekend's coming up, I think we, you and I, not because there's necessarily more events, but because there's more attention and focus on the energy around the format, we think it's more likely that I think people will, you know, for example, I think that Grixis control type cards are going to get a lot more airtime and testing because people are going to try them than, say, if this was January, February, or March, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we when we make predictions, you know, part of the challenge is that there are cards that are very similar to existing cards in the card pool, and then there are cards, th- that's, that's one category, and then that's kind of the easiest thing to evaluate. Then there are cards that are very novel, either in their elements or in some the, the combination. That's hard to evaluate. And then there are cards that are novel, but then also don't fit into existing strategies at all. That's even harder because we, you know, usually what we talk about is, Kevin, where would a card, okay, we think this is a baseline level of power based upon, you know, 20 years of playing this format, 25 years of playing the format, but where would it see play? And that really shapes our prediction. That's kind of baked into our prediction model, right? So, mm-hmm. so if there's a card that is, you know, meets baseline criteria for playability, but there's no obvious home, then you really have to go out on a limb and say someone is not only going to test this, try it, and take a chance, but they're also going to have to put work into developing kind of a new archetype or re- refabricating an old one. And that that's even, I think, a, a riskier uh, a riskier um, move or decision. So mm-hmm. anyway, I think all that all that's important just to bear in mind. Do you have anything to add to that? Uh, just that... In the past, you and I have tried to differentiate when you and I make when we have a miss on a card in our report cards. We try to differentiate between when when it's just down to player preference in some cases, or you know other external metagame factors, as opposed yeah. to when we've truly misevaluated something. <laughs> so yeah, and we could spend a, more time on that. There are a lot that, of cards that you and what's that? Uh, we could spend more time on that, and there, we misevaluate in different directions. I mean. There yeah. are cards that we underestimated, like Dark Petition, even though we got it precisely correct what it would do. And there are yeah. cards that I overestimated, like... Uh, Jorian, maybe? Jorian is a perfect example. Because yeah. I, I looked at... I, I spent a... I baked into my evaluation a high value on card advantage, right? And and the casting cost. I thought, well, this is a casting cost. This is plays in C-Play and Vintage. But I underestimated the ways in which Jorian interacts in a broader range of matchups. You know, I yeah. think that was a critical problem with Jorian, and the opportunity cost is still is still too high in general. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are times that we've underestimated cards, times that we're overestimated cards, and the reasons vary. <laughs> but but over time, over time, as we accumulate, you know, more data and learn, we'll get better. And what you said earlier about the function of set reviews is worth restating in the in the sense that we review cards for people for all types of the audience. 
there are people, as you said, who just want to know what they should pick up a couple of copies of, you know, for the right. future. Or right. people who are saying, what should I expect to see in a tournament next weekend? Those are different things. And yeah, and or- so for me to say, I think unsubstantiate is a playable card, I still think that. Yeah. And if you want to, if you want to have, if you're buying cards just for vintage, and you want, and you're, you know, you're going to put an order in at a shop or something, then put a couple unsubstantiates in your cart. Yeah, you there's know, also it's people who for me to say because I'm I'm not being price sensitive, but the point is is that I do believe that card is the sort you should have access to if you want to play. Yeah, I think that's a great that's point. Right. Let me I, say that again. Yeah, I, I do believe that's a card you should have access to in the long run if you want to play vintage. Well, you know, it's there's a kind of uh, uh, let me let me phrase that. I think there's another spin on that, which is that some people people build decks different ways. Some people, you know, start with a blank page and then they just start writing out the deck lists, right? Mm-hmm. Some people open up their binder and go through their binder and pull out cards. Some people search gatherer and look for specific cards or effects. So I think it really varies. And I think, um, so, you know, on the one hand, some people want us to be more inclusive than others because, than others because they really want to know, like, what's the full range of cards I should consider, even consider when thinking about deck, built, deck building, right? Mm-hmm. Especially for those binder players. And, and so I, I think it's important for us to discuss cards we don't even think we'll see play, but we think might be vintage playable for, the, for those people, right? Yeah. Um, but also, even when we're wrong, even when we're wrong, it's not... Again, the function of a set reviews is not to... The purpose, of course, is to be accurate in the prediction. But part of it, what really matters is the analysis. That's actually what matters the most. Because, yeah. because frankly, we, d- we don't know. I mean, the whole point of, of whether something is playable is it's an empirical question to be known as a matter of fact later on. And, you know, what we hope that our listeners take away is the analysis and that they can assimilate our analysis into their model of the metagame and their thinking of uh, around deck building. You know, what we make no claims to perfect objectivity or to uh um you know p- perfect predictive accuracy. Although mm-hmm. I I do I think we hold ourselves to a really high standard because we actually we evaluate ourselves and I think because of that we, uh, you know, we test. We see how do we do. Every we do a report card for a reason, and I, mm-hmm. I would I would put our predictions against any other reviewer um, over time. Not necessarily in any any given card or any given set review, but I think that I think that's really important. I agree, and I also think that we started doing this prediction bit as a as a way to make things a little more interesting. You know, some quasi competition that kind of thing, and I think it serves that purpose on the show as well. I always yeah. enjoy the report card section. <laughs> and we're not quite done, so let's get to no. the... <laughs> That's right. We have one final card for this report card, and that is Thalia, Heretic Cathar. You predicted eight. I predicted 12. The actual was only three. Interesting. Yeah. So it turns out that Thalia is tied with Spellqueller as the most played card from Eldritch Moon <laughs> as of this recording. <laughs> Um, and those were the two that we collectively predicted the most of. So, you know, directionally, we got that bit right. But I did a little bit of research to see why did we, why were we so far off on Thalia, comparatively speaking. And I think the reason is that there was a bit of a decline in White Eldrazi overall. Because there were three top eights for Thalia since her printing. In that same time period, there were only, let's see, there were only three top eights for Eldrazi Displacer. What that says to me is that 
is that White Eldrazi has simply c- taken a hit in popularity in the last yeah. two and a half months our, our, uh, in Paper Magic. Is it accurate to say that our prediction model was based upon the number of White Eldrazi decks that we had saw, seen in the metagame during the period in which we did the evaluation? Uh, precisely so. And there were, going in, there were about, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, no, five, excuse me, in June going in. Then we were using some other results online to get some directionality for where uh, White Eldrazi would go, and that was really the ultimately the the thing that did us in because it it has diminished since that data that we were predict- predicting with. Well, I don't think I don't consider you know eight and three to be totally outside the model. I mean, that's, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I was pretty. Not, yeah, I feel like I was pretty close on that. <laughs> I I do agree. I mean, eight and three is not that bad. I feel bad about my twelve and three, but that's mostly because. I just I just think Thalia is a really incredible card, and and the, you know the environment just doesn't support it very much right now. Well, where were the three decks that did see play? Certainly in White Eldrazi, I assume. Oh yeah, you mean the three actual yeah. uh, top eights? Yes. No, it it turns out that uh, let's see, one of them we've got one Eldrazi, which unfortunately TC decks labels as hate bears. Then we've got one other that is much closer to actual hate bears, that is green-white aggro, and then one bant aggro, which is a deck that also contains Spell Queller, but Thalia, Noble Hierarch, so kind of a, a Noble Fish kind of model. So there was some variety. Um, it turns out only one of basically three Eldrazi, white Eldrazi decks in that time period that made top eight included the new Thalia. Okay, so interesting p- report card, and... Um, you know, one of the complaints that's ha- that's arisen of late is that, and I think there is some merit to the observation, but not necessarily the complaint, that a lot of the vintage playables in the last couple of years have been creatures, disproportionately creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and this set certainly does nothing to uh, dissuade people of that opinion, right? I mean, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, the, the the two most played cards here are Dahlia and Spellqueller. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Um. Anyway, and certainly for conspiracy, we predicted that Prelate, I think Prelate and the the Planeswalkers were the most and card- Leovold, Leovold. So creature again, yeah. creatures. Yeah, mostly creatures in in conspiracy as well. I'm I'm fine with that. I welcome the creature revolution to vintage, but <laughs> but not everyone is 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 thrilled with that. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, let's turn to Kaladesh, which promises to be one of the most exciting sets in memory, a recent memory. All right, let's see. As we like to do for each set review, we start by talking about the mechanics of the new set, mostly keywords, but other things. There are a few new mechanics in Kaladesh, which are fun. There's a new keyword called Fabricate. It comes with a number, and it means when this creature, goes on creatures, enters the battlefield, put a plus one plus one counter on it, or create a one one colorless servo artifact creature token. And that's now that's an example of Fabricate 1. If it had Fabricate 2, it would be two counters or two servos and so on. So it's a choice that's made when the triggered ability of the creature is on the stack. How how rare are modal mm. keyword mechanics? It's mm. Yeah, I can't think of any besides... Yeah. Kicker is different because it's not... It, it's once you use Kicker, you get an effect. And you can pay additional mana to get an additional mm-hmm. effect. 
but it's not by definition mobile yeah, like this. Sure. Other mechanics have choices and options. Kicker's a good example, buyback and all these other ones. But I'm having a hard time thinking of one that is a keyword mechanic that specifically yeah, has like a choice. Yeah, like Punisher. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good example. So, boy, I'm not sure if there is. That's pretty unusual. That's very unusual, and that's good. I mean, usually having choices in magic is considered a a good thing. It means that you have more options and situationally, you know, better outcomes. Speaking of options, the next new mechanic is energy. There are a number of cards in the set that generate this new resource called energy. And energy is a resource that you track separately from others. That is, you keep a die or a note of it, how much you have, and then you can spend it for various effects. An example of a card that does this is Aetherworks Marvel, which is a four-mana artifact that says, whenever a permanent you control is put into a graveyard, you get energy. And energy, there's a new icon. Then you can tap, pay six energy, look at the top six cards of your library. You may cast a card from among them without paying its mana cost, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. And there's a lot of cards that generate energy in different quantities, although the quantity is usually between one and three. And there's a lot of cards that spend it for any number of effects. They've created a new symbol to represent this, so I I can't Mm -hmm. even remember the last time there was a new symbol added to a magic card in this way, in the text, in the rules box. I think it was the untapped symbol uh, in Lorwyn, (laughs) wasn't it? Well, regardless, this is a pretty interesting new mechanic. Now, the cards, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the energy cards. The cards are generally targeted at limited. There's a lot of commons and uncommons, creatures mostly, that generate energy and have, well, the uses of it have to do with power and toughness frequently. A lot of it doesn't apply to vintage, just kind of designed for limited. Yeah. But I do think one of the interesting things about energy is that thus far, of all the cards we've seen, energy is a resource it's accumulated, that but it can't, can't be, be disrupted. Dis- disrupted. Yeah. What I mean by that is, once you've got some, right. your opponent can't prevent you from using it or spending it. Within reason, There's there are a number of cards that you could spend it on, and you're <laughs> limited by the effects that were created in this set, but there are many of them. Yeah. What I would do is I would contrast that to regular mana that you use to cast spells, though, because so much of Vintage's disruption comes in the form of mana denial, be it Workshop Spear effects or the Thalia effects or Tangle Wires and Wastelands. But what energy can't be denied, now in a sense, now granted, all of those existing effects can still stop you from playing the spells that get your energy, so there's still a strong relation to the disruption, but it wouldn't take much for an effect in vintage, like a zero mana effect or a land, like there's a land in this set that gives you energy. As soon as we can translate energy into something that's really good and relevant to a vintage standpoint at a reasonable rate, then this could be a really interesting mechanic in vintage and allowing us to do some things that we can't do efficiently enough to make them worthwhile in vintage. I don't know. We'll just have to see in the long run. Well, magic is all about exchanging resources for other resources. So right now, you use energy to pay to pay activation costs, uh, it's certainly imaginable that at some point there would be that kind of translation. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it wouldn't take much for 
that's the what, translation like that to be know, very useful. Th- it would be cool to see an energy mana battery, <laughs> something like that. Right. Um, yeah, th- I mean, this is really unusual. I mean, just it's not. I mean, the me- we've never seen a mechanic quite like this, and that I don't. I mean, we have seen mechanics that that are in a sense resources, but not that can be added to or subtracted to in this kind of, at least that can be depleted in this kind of way. I mean, like Storm, for example, is a keyword mechanic that you do accumulate, but then it's a rules-based one. It's something that occurs when something happens, but it not not based on a card text. Yeah, agreed. And energy might not even be the coolest thing in this set, because I have yet to talk about vehicles. Now, what are vehicles? Vehicles are, across the board, artifacts. They they have power and toughness printed on them, but they are not natively creatures. You can make a vehicle a creature by using its crew ability, and the crew says, with a number, like crew, si- f- crew 5, for an example, on Demolition Stomper, tap any number of creatures you control with total power, 5 or more. This vehicle becomes an artifact creature until end of turn. So your creatures hop in your vehicle, so to speak, by tapping, and then the vehicle can go about and do its work. And these vehicles are across the board, effectively undercosted, so to speak, as compared to creatures. This demolition stomper that I use, for example, is a 10-7 for 6 mana. That's way overpowered for a creature, if it was naturally a creature. But of course, in this case, it requires five power of other creatures, in this case, to commit hmm. to be what it is. <laughs> a new card type, a new subtype, right? Oh, yeah. And new new subtype vehicle, you're right. We do rarely get new subtypes in Magic. Very rarely. The last subtype we've ever seen is either Planeswalker or, or Equipment, possibly possibly Tribal. I can't remember now. <laughs> No, Tribal is from Lorwyn. I Lorewin. think the last new subtypes were Planeswalker and Tribal in Lorwyn. L- yeah, and and equipment was printed in Scars. Mir- Mirrodin. No, yeah, sorry, Mirrodin in 2003. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty interesting. Now, there are other sub-themes going on in this set. There's a there's a whole Artifact Matters sub-theme, not, an, not additional keywords. In fact, they've avoided using past ability words in Metalcraft, since there are cards that count the number of artifacts and require you to have a certain number of artifacts to have an effect, it's Wizards' policy generally to not use ability words from past blocks, even though Metalcraft is effectively on one or more cards in this set. But there are just a number of things involving artifacts. If you have artifacts in play, how many artifacts you've got, sacrifice an artifact, when an artifact comes into play, all this stuff... This set probably has the most artifact referencing cards since Antiquities. <laughs> Is there any keyword mechanics that are particularly relevant for Vintage that have returned? Not especially, no. I mean, there's the usual fare of creatures and creature abilities and other things, but the artifact matters stuff that isn't keyworded or ability worded is probably the most specifically relevant thing in the set. Yeah. I think we should move on to our first card. Let's dive in. Let's start with Paradoxical Outcome. 
3u instant return any number of target, non-land, non-token permanents you control to their owner's hand. Draw a card for each card returned to your hand this way. This card is is totally cool. Instant. Yeah, it's an instant, and it obviously has great synergy with Mana Acceleration in Vintage. Um, where to begin, Steve? Well, there are many layers of this onion we're going to have to peel off. Yeah. I'll, I'll take your lead. Well, one of the things I love about this card is how it scales in different situations and how you know the the theory of how much mana you need to make it good uh, scales up and down. Now, now, we always need to talk about mana cost, right? So this is a four mana instant in blue that has the same mana cost as Factor Fiction, for example. Very similar, easier mana cost than Jace the Mind Sculptor. So the playability from a mana cost standpoint is obviously there by default, I think. There, there, there is a long tradition in this format of playing blue draw spells at this mana cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, Factor Fiction and Gifts Ungiven stand out. And both of those were format-defining cards in their heyday. So, uh, you know, obviously the format is in many ways faster, but in many ways it's slower than it was a decade ago. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's anything disqualifying whatsoever about this mana cost. It's perfectly playable for vintage play. There are, of course, risks that are entailed by it, but we'll, we'll weigh those. We'll weigh those. Well, Prima facie, this card is is at a playable vintage mana cost. And I think the whether or not it will see play has everything to do with how it compares to the that history and lineage of draw spells, <laughs> right? If, yeah. If you were, if you, so we could we could try and measure some some standard metrics for how many cards you expect to draw off of this, and then contrast that versus fact, which sees fringe play today, very fringe, and and Jace the Mind Sculptor, of course. Well, I think you've just just shot an arrow at the heart of the matter here, which is the fundamental question as to whether this will see play or whether it's likely to see play depends on how many cards you can reliably draw off it for the mana cost. Mm-hmm. So, just taking the design out of just completely out of context, um, I think the the answer to that question probably the minimal answer begins with three. Factor Fiction mm-hmm. guarantees you at least one card. Um, if your opponent split it three and two, you can take a, a pile of three if you want, but usually the pile of two is going to be better, and people would rather take the pile of two than the three, right? And it gets to the old oh, yeah. fun with factor fiction. Oh yeah. Uh, sometimes you rather have the one than the four, but so it's not really just about card advantage. It's sometimes about card quality. But I don't want to get stuck in factor fiction frame. I think the fundamental question here is for this card to be viable. How many cards does it have to generate? And I think the answer is probably at a minimum three, right? Because if, if it's unreliably, if it's reliably anything less than that, it's probably not going to be good enough. Yes, I would agree. I'm only, get, I'm only getting excited about this card if it's typically four. <laughs> I mean, well, I well mean, if four, yeah, so, he, so here's the thing, right? The, the increment... The increment between two and three and three and four are not equal. Oh, yes. I mean, it's... It's a logarithmic scale, right? It's yeah. like the 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 value you get. I mean, if you could reliably get four from this card, we're talking a very very powerful card. Yes. I, I'm simply saying that in order to be a viable vintage draw spell, <laughs> I think you need to reliably be able to get three out of this. That's right. Well, that's what I'm. Uh, and but we haven't stated it explicitly. The floor is the comparison to Gush, right? Because if if you can only get two out of this, Gush is far, far superior. 
Oh, no doubt. Right. Even at three, Gush is situationally superior because of the two lands you return to your hand, the mana generation, the you know the synergy with Dak and Jace, all the other reasons. So even at three, sometimes you would prefer to Gush. Well, right. I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Right. I, don't, I don't think but Gush is analogous because the the so they both have conditionality in yeah. different ways. Gush's conditionality is that you need to have two lands in play. That's just a factual conditionality. You need to have two islands in play that you can return to pay the mana cost. Mm-hmm. The other conditionality is a soft conditionality, and that is that you're not likely to play Gush unless you also have a land drop yeah. that you can make. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, you're just sucking all the mana out of play without maximizing your mana advantage of Gush. So this is a very different kind of conditionality, which is that you need to have permanence in play. And so the decks that play Gush and the decks that play this are not likely to be the same. But in the abstract, I take your point. Your point is that Gush gives you nets one card, and this for no mana. Mm-hmm. It, the, but the condition is that you really need to wait until turn three or four to play it. Yeah. Whereas this has a different kind of conditionality, which is that you need to generate a lot of permanence, which we'll we'll focus in on in a second. But yeah. I just want to acknowledge that all of these draw spells have different degrees of conditionality. Thirst for Knowledge also has conditionality. Its conditionality is that you need to play a certain density of artifacts to really maximize the benefit, right? I mean, you don't want to get into a position... You don't have to, but generally the decks that use Thirst and use it effectively run a certain number of artifacts in there beyond just the usual Moxon complement. And I expect that we're going to find a similar conditionality here, right? A certain density of artifacts, but it's a broader... It's a broader permanent set, so it could be non-artifact things as well. Yeah. Before we go any further, I want to go back to your very first point about how this scales. I, I think there are two interesting points to make about that. One is that one of the best ways to design cards for vintage, and I, you know, I've written this whole article on how to design for Eternal, is to make cards that are situationally better or situationally worse than other existing cards. Um, Factor Fiction sees a very modest amount of play right now, but I think it's clear that there are going to be many situations where this card will be better than Factor Fiction. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, part of the advantage of factor fiction is, is I mean, there are really subtle aspects to fact that, that I feel, I feel you know what, I kind of feel bad for people who didn't get to play during fact's <laughs> glory days because it was such a fun card to enjoy, right? I mean, especially in vintage, part of the subtleties of fact that, that are really difficult to appreciate if you didn't actually play in, that, in those days was that, one, Binning cards actually has value. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, if you open up, a f- if you play Fact and the Fact has, I don't know. Mindslaver. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I was going to say Yawgmoth's Will or Regrowth. Oh, yeah, yeah. It becomes a real a real question as to how you, you, you know, how you create those or generate those piles or mm-hmm. build those piles. The other thing about Fact is that Fact digs really deeply. I mean, five cards in a 60-card deck is... N- is difficult to appreciate unless you're actually experiencing the raw digging power of fact. Yeah. You know, it's like, because the, the, the first fact gets you so close, if not directly into the second fact. Mm-hmm. So unrestricted fact is really kind of an experience where you're just kind of blowing through your deck with, with r- rapid speed. Mm-hmm. So th- this card may have some of that latter function to it. But there is real value to binning cards. So if like you split two and three, you might say, I'll take the pile of two because 
I'm going to get these other three cards sooner rather than later. Like if I have a welder in play or whatever, that's a lot of thirst value. <laughs> so I just want to set that aside. I, I just think that there's a lot of to praise here. The other point is that, that you made is how this scales across formats, right? In some formats, this is going to be perfectly innocuous. But in vintage, in formats that have tremendous amounts of permanent-based artifact acceleration or mana acceleration, this card gets tremendously better. Uh, and there's no format that enables that better than vintage. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> welcome to vintage, Paradox of Alchemy. You're a perfect design card for vintage. And it's going to test, stress test a lot of features of the format. And I'm interested to stress test, not just in, in testing, but in this conversation. So with that said, let me ask you another question. I think we've decided, we've come to consensus, you and I agree, that if this can generate four cards reliably, this is going to be a very good draw spell. If you can generate three cards we both think it's going to be good enough to see play right well uh potentially potentially i mean if you can pay four mana instant speed to draw three cards i think that's a playable spell i think i don't well, think there's anything analogous to that i mean you know the, 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 there's so much um... brain geyser and, and stroke of genius neither one see play skeletal scrying does not see play in the format but it has i, I it is very difficult to imagine a card, let's suppose this just said blue three, draw f- three cards. Mm-hmm. At instant speed, would it see play? I, no. I'm not, no. But but the fact that it has the potential to draw more is really what draws you in. So you think you think a four mana instant speed card that said draw three cards would not see play. That's hard for me to evaluate. Well, but I agree, I, I mean, I agree you're with overlapping you. fact, with fact there, which yeah. we've already discussed. But also, I mean, that just drawing cards is is also oversimplifying this card because this card scales in terms yeah. of mana no, advantage I, as well, I, right? Definitely. Yeah. I want to just focus on the draw aspect yeah. for a second. So, so, but but we're establishing a baseline that a card that costs four mana and just draws three cards would not see play. A card that costs four mana, instant speed in blue, that draws four cards would see play. I think so. You believe? Yeah. And and be very strong. I agree with yeah. that. That's a that's a pretty enormous gulf between those two things, right? Well, I mean, that's it's, you go but it's, from unplayable I mean, to incredibly good. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, how many copies of that four mana spell would you put into a deck, though? Right? You're talking about there's a lot of cascading I effects. An, I think it would be an insane draw engine in vintage. Yeah, but uh, but vintage <laughs> has a hard time supporting a lot of four mana spells right now without some in, without some considerable deck design going into it. There are some decks yeah. that can support four mana on like more well, than four, like four or more cards, but it's not the it's not the norm for blue decks right now. Well, let's talk about why. Yeah. And in in the uh, feedback we received on the last podcast, one of the pieces of feedback that we received was that we did not pay enough attention to mana cost and efficiency. And to that, I would my initial response is that our assessment it's baked into our assessments. We evaluate cards holistically. And we screen out cards that don't meet either traditional norms for vintage play or that we think are overcosted for the effect. I would also say that um, if we err at all, we tend to err in terms of underestimating cards that fall outside of those traditional or conventional bounds. And the most prominent examples are cards, I've already mentioned Dark Petition, but other cards besides, like, oh, I don't know, the Eldrazi <laughs> Right. Uh, or even the Delve spells, or cards like Chase the Mind Sculptor, which are under, underestimated because they're at the upper ed- edge of uh, uh, vintage playability with, with respect to cost. So I just want to make that point that most players actually underestimate the power of ex- spells that are at the top end of the vintage mana curve. The Dragon Lords. 
The Dragon Lords is a great example of that. And I think the flip side of it is that efficiency is so baked into vintage analysis or card perception that we actually tend to maybe overestimate a little bit cards that are hyper-efficient. We get overexcited about them. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think we need to keep that in balance here. Um, so why is it then, and I have my own theories, why is it that the, a card, cards that are at the upper bound here, let's just say a four-mana spell that can tr- generate tremendous card advantage don't see play? What, what are the basic reasons for that? I think there are some pretty obvious reasons, but why don't you start? Uh, the gush, the omnipresence of Gush has, you know, sucked a lot of the oxygen out of the room, of course, from a deck development standpoint. From, from Blue Decks. From Blue yeah. Decks, yeah. But, it, but that's in more than one way, right? Gush is very attractive as a draw engine because of its raw power, and so a lot of people are attracted to it. Gush decks also prey on the big mana blue decks, and an yes. instant that just that simply cost four mana and drew four cards would be very attractive, but from a deck development standpoint, it would push you toward big blue, which would push you toward mana drain, probably, because those kind of strategies tend to overlap, and it would... And such a deck simply... It uh, has an inherent weakness to the gush strategies, so it, it's it's tam- it's you know the whole thing is tamped down by how good gush is right now in the environment. You well, I think you've tanked. Go yeah, ahead. So you can construct relatively readily a, a factor fiction deck in vintage right now, for example. All the cards are still there from when factor fiction was yeah. great, right? It's just that yeah. that strategy is inherently weak to the gush decks, and those big blue decks have inherent advantages over things. Uh, over gush decks against the mana denial decks, the, you know the workshops and the Eldrazi's of the world, but it's still just too much that you know thirty to forty percent of certain tournaments are gush decks right now. Well, I think that that there are a couple of strands to untangle, and I think you've hit on most of them, but not all. Okay. One is in one you've left, perhaps most important, you've just left implicit, which is that decks that incorporate gush have a different mana base than the big blue decks. Mm-hmm. So the, most Gush decks don't run the full complement of mana acceleration. Even if they run... So as a starting matter, <laughs> Gush decks run on-color Moxon, but they often don't run off-color Moxon, let alone Mana Crypt and Soul Ring mm-hmm. and Mana Vault mm-hmm. and Lotus Petal. And those are the cards that we typically see in the bigger mana blue decks that would run, say, Factor Fiction or Gifts in the past and would presumably run a card like this. Mm-hmm. So not only do the, are, are those a different class of decks, means your Gush decks aren't going to incorporate it, but the other point that you made, which is that Gush decks prey on those decks mm-hmm. because of the fundamental mirror advantage they have, that Gush decks, by virtue of having a leaner mana base and fewer mana sources, over the course of the game, generate virtual card advantage. One of the advantages of Gush I describe in my Gush book. So that kind of advantage makes it more difficult to run big mana blue spells in contemporary vintage. But I think that's somewhat overstated. <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that that is entirely what's driven out these effects. I think that the the density of spheres in the format is completely different than it was in 2002, let alone 2007. Mm -hmm. There were more sphere effects, and and certainly that's changed somewhat in the last year with the restriction of Lodestone Golem and Chalice, but both Lodestone Golem, I mean, when you have Sphere, Thorn, Null Rods, Golem, and Chalice, that's a real disincentive to play those big mana blue decks. Certainly the same argument could apply to Gush, though. But I think there's something else besides all of that. I think that 
the bigger point, and perhaps the far more important point, is that we have more pinpoint counter magic than ever before. Hmm. And yeah, Flusterstorm so cards, has a, a singular impact on cards like Factor Fiction. Exactly. And when you were playing Factor Fiction 2012, the if you you know if you went first, you could easily set up a situation where you could either resolve it before your opponent got blue blue and therefore mana drain, or <laughs> your opponent. Uh, or they could time it so that when you're they you know because it's instant you could you know get around whatever you know it was, in other words <laughs> this is no longer something that many players will appreciate but it's a lot harder to keep up blue blue than it's just one blue <laughs> you know yeah. and so if if the the single moment that they let their two blue mana up you would fire off the fact or the gifts mm-hmm. and it would reliably resolve unless they had force that's no longer the case today uh, it's just a single mana being held up could signal Pyroblast, Flush of Storm, or Spell Pierce. Mm-hmm. And any of those could easily counter this card or this class of cards. So I think this class of cards, and I'm going to throw Thirst thirst for Knowledge into that, that class. Thirst, Fact, Gifts, and this card all suffer from the fact that pinpoint counter magic that costs one can counter these things, and it's devastating in terms of mana. You spend four mana on this, and your opponent spends one mana and counters it, that's a big blow, and gush decks are best able and positioned to use as hyper-efficient counter magic. Mm-hmm. And those those counter magics, for, for the most part, did not exist a decade ago, or they were safely ensconced in sideboards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that's that's a big issue and a big contributing factor to why these class of cards don't see play. Agreed. So all of those issues notwithstanding, it sounds like what you're saying is this card can't serve the role that a thirst or a fact or a gifts did in the past. You you just can't be the sort of deck that sits back and waits until you you have four mana on your opponent's end step and expect to have success against gush decks well, today. It's it's all about cost and benefits. Mm-hmm. There are costs to play in these class of cards, but if you can protect them and if you can generate enough card advantage, I think any costs are going to be worth it, right? I mean, I mean, it just scales up. If this, if you could generate six cards off this reliably, any of those uh, costs that you just described would be definitely worth, you know, okay. definitely worth planning for. I just think that, uh, I just think it just means you have to build into it. So the critical question for me is, what kind of deck would you have to design to reliably get four cards out of this? Right, that's the critical question mm-hmm. because we've established that three is not going to be enough. Four, this card's going to be pretty darn good. And I think, I agree with that. I think it'd be worth it. I think it certainly could compete with gosh decks mm-hmm. if you could get to four because the card advantage, that just resolving one is going to be so significant, it's going to pull you so far ahead. But how do you do that? How do you design a deck where you can reliably do that? That's the critical question. Now, it's obvious to me that this deck is going to need a lot of artifact acceleration, but here's the crux of the matter incorporating enough artifact acceleration to get you to reliably cast it means it's going to be hard to build in defenses to protect it. Mm -hmm. So you could just imagine a deck that, let's just max out on artifact acceleration and play this. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to build in a lot of protection, right? Right. So you need to, you can't max out an artifact acceleration. You're not going to be able to play all, you're not going to be able to play on top of the Moxon, Mana Crypt, Soul Ring, uh, bearing in mind, and Mana Vault, and bearing in mind that Lotus Petal and Black Lotus don't help you generate card advantage off of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least not if you're using those cards to cast it <laughs> they as well. They can't do both. <laughs> yeah. 
They can't do both. Yeah. Uh, so if you're maxing out all those, and you're playing cards like Mox Opal, which is probably the next Mox that you use, and Grim Monolith, and I don't Chrome know, Mox. we'll go all in. Chrome Mox, yeah. let's say Voltaic Key, yeah. and probably not Mox Diamond, but let's just say you're maxing out. You're not going to be... I mean, you begin to look like a Belcher deck. Right. And you're not going to you know, use a Pact of Negation to protect this. And Force of Will yeah. is going to be hard to use to protect it. So... I, I think there needs to be some balance. Um, I'm not exactly sure what that is, but I think there's a fundamental tension between maximizing the card advantage and consistently resolving the spell. <laughs> well, you um, you went the, you went down the Belcher road. It seems obvious to me that this card is competing for diminishing returns in diminishing Mono Blue Belcher, right? Mono Blue Belcher is not a yeah. allowed a proponent of the metagame right now, but Still, the, this card seems very synergistic with everything you just described in that one deck. Now, that deck, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It, yeah. it, for the few people who are succeeding with Belcher, this could become a mainstay in that deck. But the next best thing is, is there a deck that has a well, high density... Can we, hold, can, can we stay on Belcher for a second? Okay. Because I think, I think there's an interesting aspect to this, which you wanted to get to, but just sticking with Belcher... There's an, the advantage of diminishing returns over this in Belcher is that diminishing returns will always get you at least seven cards. Oh yeah. Assuming you assuming you like haven't like consulted away most of your deck or something. Right. Uh, the but the downside to diminishing returns is diminishing returns generates no mana. It always costs blue blue two. Whereas this card in a Belcher deck, it's easily imaginable that you could get two three mana out of it so that it functionally costs just blue. Or just one mana, so, and so I don't know how you weigh that trade-off, but you know, let's say just for the sake of our, let's scale it all the way up, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say you have, I don't know, let's say, Mox Opal, Mana Crypt, and an off-color Mox, okay, mm-hmm. and you cast this, you will draw at least three cards, mm-hmm. right? But you will get to replay all of those permanence. Right. So it'll fun- it's functionally free. <laughs> right. So so is that better? Is it better to to play a zero mana draw three or a four mana draw seven? <laughs> Those are hard things to, to weigh, especially for a Belcher deck that has a re a paucity of win conditions. It needs to find its few win conditions, like its Tezzeret mm-hmm. or its four Belchers. I don't know how to weigh that, but <laughs> that's something the Belcher pilots are going to have to figure out. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on Belcher. Uh, well, I'm not experienced with playing the deck, but I can tell you that the thing about the Belcher d- deck construction that is implied by this whole discussion is that the floor on how, what you would draw with this card is very high. <laughs> Meaning, yeah. there's there's almost yeah. no Belcher draw, barring Mulligan to four, that is going to cast this and, and return fewer than three artifacts, right? Unless you have, like, Black Lotus. Uh, yeah, it's not, you could construct yeah. But even then... I mean, It'll draw, like, well... So, uh, it, it's yeah. funny. So, the further down the Belcher-style construction that you go, the higher the floor on the card advantage this gets right three becomes the reasonable floor and four and five are going to become common in my estimation yeah i think the problem though is the one we already articulated which is protecting it the further you go towards the the 
Belcher style deck, the yeah. fewer tools you have to protect it. That's why and the flip side of that. <laughs> yeah, and the flip side of it though is that the I just don't know whether the card advantage matters more than the mana. That's what. So so for example, That's a good point. if you could let me just frame it another way. So I gave an example where we started with three. What if we could get to four, but this costs functionally one or two mana? Is that better? You, so you would get. Is it better to draw four cards for one or two mana than to draw seven for four? Well, it, I, I, I don't at know. At that point, you're you're com- you're comparing very closely to Thoughtcast, right? Yeah. And Thoughtcast doesn't serve the same role as diminishing returns in the kind of decks, which is kind of the tension you're talking about, right? Right. Uh, I have to believe if you told a Belcher player that this card was going to cost one mana and draw them four cards reliably. They would say, "Sign me up." <laughs> they would yeah. say, "I'll take eight. <laughs> you know, fair enough. Um, and I realize fair. it's not that simple, but I do genuinely think that that when you're able to cast this, I mean, the Belcher deck has this, you know, has this overarching design, right? It's trying to get to four mana. It's trying to get to seven mana, really, but it's trying to get to four is like the the fewest mana you can really stomach in that deck within reason, barring hands that have ancestral. So. That's the that's the the trick is it can you afford to put a whole bunch more four mana spells in the deck? Well, I think you'd have to you have to make cuts. And but this card seems just so synergistic with how that deck gets constructed. And if you told me it was free and it drew three cards every time, yeah. it's like that's like the best Gitaxian probe ever, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, it's true. I, so I mean, if you compare it to Gitaxian probe in that sense, it seems like a no brainer, does it not? <laughs> it's it's true. I just I I wonder if there are even additional ways to generate. So Blue Belcher often runs Expedition Map. Mm-hmm. So that's another artifact that you could throw in right. to generate art. To gen- I think you'd have to do a lot of testing. In in like for example, if you're playing a Blue Belcher pilot, just test, draw up a hand, a bunch of hands, and see if this card would be better as diminishing returns or par- paradoxical outcome. I think if you ran that test. You know, at least 20 times. I think you'd come up with a pretty reliable answer. Yeah. Now, the trick is that you'd probably you may have to make some adjustments to make this better. Like you might tweak a couple of cards around it. Yeah. Sure. But I think you could figure that out pretty quickly. Candle Opera gets better the, the, with this, for example. Great example. The the thing that I don't want to get trapped in though is that we started with the premise that we're talking about Belcher, and really, what when we say Belcher, we don't mean the deck that uses Goblin Char Belcher. We mean a really fast combo deck that uses a lot of artifact acceleration, and it can use it in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. We've been talking specifically about Blue Belcher, but there are a ton of decks that could be constructed that way. It just so happens that Goblin Char Belcher is the best finisher for those kinds of de- strategies. Right. So, I mean, Rogue Hermit is another example. If anyone remember, remembers the, the <laughs> deck from uh, I think Drag- the cards that were printed in Dragon's Maze, you, know, you could use a similar kind of approach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you could build a lot of different strategies that way. Um, but the reason I say that is because the reason I want to take the wind condition out of it and just focus on sort of the shell mm-hmm. is because the mana generation potential from this card actually has a secondary effect that is potentially enormously powerful, and that is storm generation. Mm-hmm. The returning the artifacts to hand and replaying them isn't just a way to generate mana or reduce the cost of the card, but it's also an inherently a storm generator. Right. And so... so you know, th- 
throw this in a deck, say with I don't know four empty the Warrens or some other storm. You, <laughs> I don't know what the next best storm card is after it's so, so it's tendrils. Uh, obviously, Mind's Desire is an auto include in any deck with paradoxical outcome because mm-hmm. <laughs> this thing is going to make Mind's Desire absolutely bonkers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I don't know what the next best thing is. But Grape Shot is probably not good enough. I have a hard time imagining that Brain Freeze is going to be reliably good enough, but it's possible. No, the, the storm possible. requirement on Brain Freeze requires a, a real engine. Eight. Yeah. Like like not, High Tide. Yeah. I mean, so it's probably Empty the Warrens, unless there's anything I'm, anything I'm missing. Empty the Warrens is probably going to be the most synergistic. The only other played Storm card that I can think of is the Ignite Memories, which is just not reliably good enough in vintage hunting pack would be insane if you could cast it <laughs> i think i'd rather take it's, empty the warrens over hunting pack yeah me me too I, any discussion that hunting any conversation around hunting uh hunting pack went out the the window when empty the warrens was printed yeah. so so you know Imagine we played a fast mana deck, but had paradoxical outcome and empty the warrens. Does that get you? That might be a, a potential. That might be something, right? It might be something to consider. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's uh, it's interesting. There's a tension with empty the warrens because it's red. There's the same tension with well, with Mox tendrils. Opal. Yeah, Mox Opal though really okay. opens I mean, the door on granted, that. You don't even need spirit guides. You're going to, to have. And, by definition, you're going to have six or seven. The, you know, opals, ruby, petal, and lotus. You're gonna have those seven. Opal, yeah, opal is the one that really opens the door, and the fact that it only requires one red makes that much more viable. Mm-hmm. But even beyond that, there you could use cards like I think you've mentioned this one before, pentad prism. Yeah. You could use pentad prism or even chromatic sphere type effects, although those would not synergize with this. <laughs> although you could play a chromatic sphere and then bounce it and then just replay it. Tinderwall is a permanent that produces mana. That gets you from green to red. <laughs> I mean, so you, yeah. you could be on land grant still in a deck like this. So we could be we one. could be land granting for a trop or taiga, going through and, and going through either land grant or tinder wall to get our red mana, you know, our red mana count up. And you're completely right about about um, opal really facilitating as well. So so maybe this this could go into an existing big mana combo deck, or it could help facilitate a new one. Yeah. Well, if you dial back from the enormous artifact count of a Belcher shell, you get something more like Steel City Vault, which yes. has its own implications in terms of different permanents, right? That deck plays Goblin Welder. Goblin yes. Welder is a perfectly reasonable thing to return to your hand to draw a card if it's not otherwise doing its job, or if it has already done its job. So, just so folks know what we're talking about when we talk about Steel City Vault, I think it was 2009 at the uh, Steel City Power 9 event in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. Brian DeMars had designed this this uh, kind of blue combo-ish deck around Time Vault, but it was a different kind of Time Vault deck than we were accustomed to because it jettisoned a lot of the control cards for a bunch of artifact accelerations, draw sevens, and stuff like that mm-hmm. to really power up, to, to more reliably set up the, the combo. And it had welders. So here is the latest version of Steel City Vault that Brian DeMars published in 2014. Just really quickly reading through it. Two Goblin Welder, two Dak Faden, four Seat of the Synod, two City of Brass, two, four Mana Confluence, one Talarian Academy, Black Lotus, Lotus Petal, Mana Crypt, Mana Vault, Memory Jar, five Moxen, 
the Hill Spell Bomb, Soul Ring, Time Vault, two Voltaic Key, Ancestral Recall, Brainstorm, Fire Ice, four Force of Will, one Gift Sun Given, one Hercules Recall, one Mystical, one Thirst, one Vamp, four Box Opal, two Burning Wish, Demonic Tutor, Imperial Seal, Ponder, Regrowth, three Thought Cast, Time Walk, Time Twister, Tinker, Wheel of Fortune, and Yawgmoth's Will. What's interesting about this deck is I think it's a very natural home for this type of effect. Mm-hmm. This deck, at least in 2014, ran multiple of this class of card, right? He had Gifts Ungiven and Thirst, which were both restricted at the time. And he had Thoughtcast, which you've already made as a direct comparison to this. Mm-hmm. So Thoughtcast is a very interesting card to compare. Why don't we do that? Well, Thoughtcast, yeah, the, 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 the scale on which these two cards move is fascinating. So <laughs> Thoughtcast, right, you have one artifact in play. Thoughtcast costs four mana. That's a terrible rate. It's you know it's uncastable basically. You get three artifacts in play. Thought cast goes down to two mana. So now two mana draw two cards is a reasonable rate. If there was a if there was a card that was just blue one draw two cards, it would be a good vintage card. So at yeah, th- it would be Knights Whisper but blue. Yeah, at, at <laughs> three right at three artifacts, thought cast is a good rate. Once you get the fourth artic- artifact, thought cast maxes out one mana two cards. Now look at paradoxical outcome. If you got one artifact, it's unplayably bad. Four mana, draw one card. It's kind of like three mana because you're assuming the artifact yeah. costs zero. So maybe it's three mana, draw one card. Still unplayably bad. You get us two artifacts. Then it's still four mana, but it's draw two cards and it generates two mana. So it's kind of like two, draw two cards. They're getting close here, right? Three artifacts with paradoxical outcome, and it's a lot like one mana, draw three cards. Right. It's a lot like Ancestral Recall, and that's only assuming that those artifacts produce one each. Certain scenarios, right. they would if, produce more. If you have a mana crypt, it's just even better. Yeah. It's and, it's just so. And as soon as you get the so, four artifacts, then it's not even close. Then Paradox Law comes generating new mana in almost every context and drawing twice as many <laughs> cards. I I wish we had brought. I should have put Thought Thoughtcast into the original discussion around conditionality mm-hmm. because it's both the same class of cards it's a burst draw spell as uh as thirst in fact and gifts but it's also highly conditional mm-hmm. in in you know that you need to have artifacts in play in order to make it work so the fact that steel city vault loves thoughtcast and has three or four thoughtcast depending on the list suggests to me that at least prima facie that this is a shell where paradoxical outcome could work mm-hmm. and work well. Mm-hmm. And I think that inference is bolstered by the presence of thirst and gifts in this deck, although, again, that was when both thirst and gifts were restricted. So the question then is, um, is Thoughtcast viable primarily because of the presence of four Seed of the Synods, or does it rely on those? Because, obviously, this card has an important clause it says non-land <laughs> card yes totally reasonable see that the synod does not synergize with paradoxical outcome except in the fact that it can provide blue mana not nearly as well as it synergizes with thought cast but the simple truth is is that a draw that has see to the synod as one of its artifacts could still be just as good in, at ramping up paradoxical outcome anyway Right. Like thought, and again, the Steel City Vault here has four Mox Opals. Yeah. So. And so it, it <laughs> seems to me that in order to facilitate Opals, you need to keep the cities in this mana base just to keep your artifact count high, even though you would never be returning one to a paradoxical outcome. The Seed of the Synod, you mean? Yes, that's what I mean. I think the seats are still necessary yeah. in this particular mana base just because of the artifact count to support the Opals. Yeah. 
interesting. You, you <laughs> could still tweak the mana base yeah. to include more artifacts. It's it, it's not running the absolute yeah. max. But my instincts wouldn't be to start there. My I mean, my instincts wouldn't be that I immediately need to in, increase the artifact. Well, I, if I was if I just taking his deck list, what would you cut? Would you cut Thoughtcast or would you cut the the gifts and the thirst and put Paradoxal Outcome? I on there? would cut gifts and thirst to start with. I would probably just start yeah. with two, maybe three of them. Uh, you know, if it's a four Thoughtcast list, I could cut one of those gifts and thirst and try yeah. three Paradoxical Outcome and try that. I don't want to be raising the curve that much, of course. And I know that one of the attractions of Thoughtcast is that it can be a turn one or two play. Well, you know, maybe a turn two play in the kind of draw where you wouldn't be able to cast Paradoxical Outcome on turn two, right? Yeah. Turn one Welder, turn two Thoughtcast when you only have it's... two or three artifacts. Yeah, I mean, if you could bounce, I don't know, a Mox, a Mox Opal, a Voltaic Key on your either on your opponent's end step or your main phase, you're likely generating some good mana. Yeah. And, you know, you're getting... This is going to be a pretty efficient spell. I like... I think this card f- fits in well. I, I like how welders are an additional permanent that aren't just producing mana. I think one of the ways that you can make a really threatening yeah. paradoxical outcome deck is if you can find non-mana-producing permanents that you're either okay with or are actively getting value out of returning. Like a Baleful Strix. Yeah. Throwing Baleful Strix in here. That's a good example. So, yeah, we haven't been covering the whole non-mana elements of returning permanence either. There are certainly plenty of cards in Vintage that get just benefits out of entering play, like Baleful Strix. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's a ton of those kinds of effects. Right. Um, like Snapcaster Mage or whatever. Mm-hmm. But... Um, so so we've gone from Extreme Combo to Steel City Vault, where this is a natural fit. We've talked about how conditional this card is. Steel City Vault, I don't know how viable that deck is, but I will say that, that Null Rod effects have, are at another low ebb again. True. So uh, there may be an opening for this kind of strategy. Of course, the most obvious objection is going to be Combat and Gush decks. Uh, but there are a lot of tools here to do that. And this deck did really well in 2014, which is three years into a Gush era. So it's not like Gush decks didn't exist, right? <laughs> I mean, right. right? I mean, like they were they had top aided the Vintage Championship each of those years that Brian was killing it with. Brian and Paul were killing it with this deck. So I think that this car, this deck, this deck is a very obvious home for paradoxical outcome. But how many Steel City Vaults have done well in the last year? Not many. The, yeah, they put up very uh, scant numbers in paper. You know, the Thoughtcast decks from 2016 are they're mostly Workshop or Tezzeret decks, actually. It's kind of bizarre. <laughs> that there's not much of the Steel City Vault model doing well in, in paper. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we've spent almost all of our time talking about artifacts as the permanence you're going to use to generate card advantage with this, mm-hmm. but there are other cards that you could use to, to generate permanence or other classes of cards. Creatures, there are a, a, a whole class of zero mana creatures, like kobolds and mm-hmm. ornithopters and sphere, shield spheres that you could potentially also use. Now, the downside with all those things, of course, is that Cobalt Clamp won't help you cast this card. Right. You would still <laughs> like, need to draw the necessary artifact. Yeah. But you would potentially get a lot more a lot more card draw, card advantage out of it. If you can get it onto the stack, this card functions like additional copies of, of Glimpse of Nature in a Cobalt well, style it's deck. Insa- 
It's insane with Glimpse. Yeah. If you have Glimpse and you play a bunch of Kobolds, and then you cast this card, return all the Kobolds, replay them, you you double your money. It's, well, yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> you, you draw all the cards for the ones you've played, replay them and draw for the Glimpse. It's kind of like you drew two more copies of Glimpse, right? You tripled yeah. up what you've done. That's, yeah, it has insane synergy with Glimpse. That's pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, so if anyone's in the business of casting Glimpse of Nature in any format, <laughs> you're probably going to want to look at this. <laughs> this card. <laughs> Are there any other permanent generation engines you can think of that might be able to use this to generate card advantage? Because I can't think of them. Creatures, zero mana creatures and zero mana artifacts are the most obvious to well, me. Well, the token generation and vintage that need not apply because of the non-token it, exemption here. Yep. Um, boy, there's there's not much. So uh, this card has minor synergy with fast bond in the sense that. You can get all of the, or most of the benefit of fast bond and then return it to your hand without cost, really, <laughs> right? If you got fast bond and yeah. you, play, you play your lands out, then returning the fast bond has no cost, effectively. So uh, assuming that a Paradoxical Outcome deck were the sort that had more than one land in it, aka Belcher, assuming you're the sort of deck that has, you know, 10 lands in it, then you could also be a fast bond deck. Um, I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of other things other than what we've listed. Yeah, Snapcaster Mage. There, you, you know, you could make a case for Snapcaster if you were trying to also be a a, a duress, you know, Thoughtseize deck. There, there are many engines. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there are many engines for generating permanents in the format, but all of them I can think of are token generators. Yeah, I mean, even beyond the most obvious. I mean, you know, things like I don't know, Thopter Foundry or or uh, uh, what's the old one that used to be banned in Type 1 because of Type 1.5? Earthcraft. <laughs> yeah. Another example. All Squirrel those craft. that can kind of go, yeah, all those that could go kind of like take you, you know, kind of to the limit, mm-hmm. right, of card advantage potential to kind of draw your deck. Those are just completely exempted here. So this was a clever exemption or a necessary exemption, rather. Right. <laughs> The, the token exemption makes this, I think, fair. <laughs> Can you think of any other cards like Pentad Prism where you spend the value of them and then want to return them to your hand? You know, there are a lot of um, egg-type decks in other formats, like Second Sunrise decks, but I think all of those decks, if you're resolving Second Sunrise, you don't need this. You're, it's, this engine is not the right. This... Yeah, I would... I would say you're probably right. The synergy there is you're skirting the mana costs of all those eggs with the sunrise, right? You're you don't want to be recasting yeah. them because they all cost one mana. All those eggs. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, there are a couple of zero mana examples, you know, the, the baubles. But generally speaking, baubles hasn't been a thing in vintage for decades. Also, we need to talk about the inherent dissynergy of all of these strategies of returning things to your hand against spheres. Oh, right, it's terrible. Y- you don't. Yes. If your opponent puts Sphere in play and you go land, mox, 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 right? You've, you apply all your moxes through the Sphere. Assuming they don't disrupt you further, the simple act of returning all those mox into your hand is, is doubly negative tempo in a matchup like like against Workshops or against Thalia. Yeah, I mean, your objective in those matchups is to re- get those permanents into play. Yeah. Putting them into your hand is the exact wrong zone that you want them in. <laughs> yes, exactly. <It's> the... <laughs> You're putting them down such that you can deploy something else, 
and just returning them to your hand to draw cards might put you so far behind that it doesn't matter that you drew four or five cards. It's a fundamental structural limitation of this card, I think, that this card is kind of like only really usable on turn one on the play against any sphere deck. Right. Like, if Thali, and unfortunately there are more sphere decks than ever, the restriction of Lodestone Golem actually expanded this quantity of sphere decks in the format because now there are Thalia decks running, running wild, kind of like hopping all over the format. So, so so it's worse than ever. Let's say you're you put a well, couple paradoxical outcomes into a deck like Steel City Vault. Do you need to add compensating measures to eliminate spheres and thalias then also? I think almost certainly you're going to have to have something unless your compensating measure is the the Belcher plan which is to win on turn one or before they play a turn with Leyline of uh, Anticipation, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so So yeah. So, I mean, Belcher doesn't need that talked- but I mean, we think we've basically talked about three classes, th- three archetypes in which this could be used. One is just sort of, we're calling it Belcher, but we'll put that in air quotes, just fast mana, all-in fast mana decks. Yeah. The second is, I think, far more marginal, which would be, we'll call it like Cobalt Clamp <laughs> Glimpse decks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other permanent third, decks. Yeah, other like creature permanent decks that use a lot of zero mana creatures. And we could put Suicide Virus in that too, which can generate a lot of permanence with, this, with the intu- Artificer's Intuition and the... Uh, yeah. um, what, what are those... What's that one-mana creature the, that you clamp up? The Mirror? The, like, what, the, what, the Mirror Servitor. That's the one. Engine. Yeah. Yeah. That that one, you could, you could generate a lot of... And that deck also used Ornithopters and things like that. So we'll, we'll call that the second, the, the creature, zero-mana creature deck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the third, I think the, the most plausible of all perhaps, besides the super artifact acceleration deck, is the uh, Steel City Vault. The question I have, and the fundamental question I think that we need to address last is, could this also just go into a more traditional big mana blue deck? Like a Bobby Green type deck from here I'm referring to the deck that was in the finals of the Vintage Championship last year. Mm -hmm. Grixis. That was a Grixis Thieves deck. Yeah. Could it it go in in a deck like that? I think Possibly, possibly. I mean, well, you could imagine a deck like that on turn three or four playing this for, you know, some some three to generate three cards or four cards. Even those decks right? have the higher than average, you know, mana artifact accelerants, right? So they're they're Solomoxin plus man, uh, mana crypt. They're, they're they're blue tinker decks, right? Blue tinker decks tend to have that as the baseline mana base. They're not welder decks currently typically but then again you and i none of us have really seen the impact of Duretti on grixis yet yeah and so there's there could be some cascading effects played there. with it but not in the not we haven't observed it as a metagame yeah, exactly yeah. so i think in exactly bobby green's deck no because that's a notion thief deck right and notion thief is better in his deck than this would be yeah but true but you, you know swap out some notion thieves and and make a couple of other adjustments and it, it could be a kind of value card i don't know i i think it's possible i also think that notion thief is just far better in the format right now because of the impact on gush it's that you know thieves is the yeah. way you you get one over on gush when you're trying to be a, a big yeah. man blue deck and Cavern, Cavern is the other piece of that, but I don't know if this deck uses Cavern. Uh, Bobby's but didn't, but it's possible to construct a, a bigger mana yeah. blue deck with Cavern. So, I, I I don't see it. 
I don't see it not with the way that Grixis is positioned in the metagame right now. Well, if this card can't is not going to be used by a big mana Grixis blue deck, then that I think pretty much limits it to the decks, the archetypes that I put in the first three categories. Yeah. And I think unfortunately that's well, th- there's a lot of potential there, but I think any experienced listener is probably going to also bring a big dose of healthy skepticism to it. <laughs> that, that those well, are pr- pretty marginal strategies. Yeah, uh, it, everything you described is about, fringe. Will this be a card? The, the implicit question is, will this see play in top eights in the near future? Yeah. And if if those are the decks where this sees play, then the count is probably going to be pretty low. Yeah, Belcher has only put up, in paper, has only put up, looks like three or four top eights all year in 2016. Um, uh, now this seems like a very obvious inclusion in that deck. Not necessarily auto though. I mean, I I, I, I asked I asked Randy Randy Bueller on Twitter and he said he thinks it doesn't draw enough cards in Belcher. Hmm. But, well, but that that's a mark again, against that's why him. I was, if if you know Randy, I was trying to weigh the 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 drawing cards against the mana generation, yeah. right? I mean, that's the critical question from my perspective. Well, Randy is on the short list from... of people who even attempt to play Belcher, so <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And and there's no doubt that returning Chromox in a Belcher type deck is you know it means you need another card to even make it worth it. The right? synergy, gotta, yeah. yeah. Well, I I am not a Belcher expert. It feels like an auto include to me, not an auto four of, but it just seems terribly synergistic with that deck. And so I I feel like any Belcher list you see is going to have access to this card. But I I can understand it's not it's not a it's not perfect. Yeah, I, I can certainly see the argument why you would want to measure returns instead. I think where I'm more excited about this is if you can just try and build a, a more reliable, again, I want to get away from Belcher, but a big mana deck that uses, instead of Belcher, yeah. dis and empty, and empty the Warrens. I think that has far more potential. So you, Not far more, but I will say more potential. So you think that is where the, the play might come from, is a, a new midway point? Yeah, I mean, if you could, I mean, I mean, empty the Warrens is still a good card. Oh, yeah. It's still a good card, and if you can, you know, I don't know, imagine a hand where you can play empty for three or four, right? Well, Paradox of Outcome can double that. It can make a lethal empty on turn one. That's a good point. So yeah. you're not going to be able to use pack to protect it, but there may be other things you can use to protect it. So I do think Paradoxical Outcome has some decent synergy with Defense Grid. Defense grid is the sort of interesting the sort of permanent <laughs> the, the thing that the paradoxical outcome deck like you know four copies of this kind of deck would have trouble with is setup it would have trouble with what can I do on turn yeah. one if I don't feel like casting this card defense grid is right. a great answer to that if you just go landmarks grid then you're set up to do whatever you want on turn two because the grid will protect this and when you yeah and the, you play the permanents aren't returned until resolution so you could bounce the grid if you wanted to to draw another card right and then just replay your mana replay grid and then do whatever you need to do yeah. or just replay the mana and replay and then play empty the warrens and kill your opponent <laughs> and you would probably that's interesting assuming everything i just described kind of went to plan you would probably have enough mana to okay probably is a strong phrase it's reasonable that in certain situations you would have enough mana to both replay the grid and then play empty. Yeah. And th- th- the threshold kind of there d- isn't very high. You'd have to, I mean, at, th- it, at three Moxen plus grid, you draw four cards and you regenerate assuming, three mana. Assuming you drew another three mana in those three cards, I mean, it's close. It's, it's close it, to reliable. If this, is a, if this is a deck with, let's say, 11 or fewer land, mm-hmm. and you could certainly imagine a deck like this that has, I don't know, seven, eight, nine land, uh, it strikes me that this is that you would probably 
just go all in and play four paradoxical outcome in that kind of deck. That's why would you play less? Yeah, it, you know, it just occurred to me that this card's also really good with top. You get an extra. Oh, you get yeah. a card out of top, God, and you get a good. card out of this because it's instant speed. That's nice. Maybe we just maybe we just have a new deck here. Honestly, <laughs> you take. I mean, it's it's a it's a fast mana deck, but you have a different route. Now. Yeah. And and empty the warrens is far more powered, and I would certainly play Mind's Desire in this deck. Yeah. You know, because this will power up any Mind's Desire you can just about build. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if... Think about this. If you have Mind's Desire in hand and you play Paradoxical Outcome, not only do you get to replay the mana you just ha- had and hit, just return, mm-hmm. but you're going to draw three or four cards, so you're going to get more mana to be able to result play your Desire. So yeah. this is like the best setup for Desire card ever. <laughs> it draws cards... It, it's better than it Retract, even, because it, yeah. it draws you more Artifact Acceleration. Well, I okay. I I think we need to move on to our uh, to our actual prediction. method of prediction. I, predicting. I think I think though the we need to predict two things though. We not not only need to predict how many decks are going to top eight with it, but we need to make a prediction as to how many cards we think we'll see play in these decks. That's what <laughs> I was trying to get out there. Okay. I, I think in a Steel City Vault deck, it would appear as a one to three of, probably not a four of. In oh, a yeah. Grixis deck, it's probably like a one or a two of, yeah. if it would see any play at all, and I'm, I doubt it. But in these, in the say like empty, let's say empty opal deck, you probably play this as a four of, right? Whereas in a belcher deck, it would be more like a two of. Yes, I would agree with all of those numbers. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So if we see it, we're gonna see a, a lowish number in a belcher list, probably. You know, between one and three in belcher, right? You could you could envision putting three into a belcher deck if you're going whole hog, but. Sure. Yeah. That, that, I guess that's one advantage over diminishing returns. Is the second returns is is less good <laughs> yeah well and and also you can you could the more of these you get you can reasonably expect to chain them together that's the that's, that's the another most attractive thing, thing right? of all is that you could you could probably go ridiculous i mean if you if you resolve the second paradoxical outcome you, you probably didn't you probably lose. <laughs> get the rest of your deck you probably get the rest of your deck right i mean yeah you're gonna find the third one and the third it becomes like desire into desire yeah right the first paradoxical outcome if it hits the second you are going to win that turn and probably draw the rest of your deck <laughs> Uh, prob- I, I, prob- I mean, right? Well, I, okay, so well, it c- kind of depends what so, the first one was for. If the first one was for four cards, and you draw and you four hit- cards, and there's another paradoxical outcome in them, then the chances are there's another two or three mana sources in those four cards. Let's say two. Yes. You, so you play those additional two mana sources, then the second paradoxical outcome is for six. That's that's great, but it's still not draw your deck great. If you don't Well, Mind's Desire yeah, Mind's Desire and the second Mind's Desire is probably still better. <laughs> it is better. Yeah, but, but, but but still if you get the second if you get the second paradoxical outcome in the same turn You're probably gonna I think win. your chances of I think your chances of finding either the third desire the third uh, outcome paradoxical outcome or a desire are probably more than 50%. Well, at that point, the card becomes like a be- almost better than Time Spiral, right? Because you're drawing... You drew, drew six almost. cards, but it generated you six mana also. Maybe more than six mana, depending on which artifacts they are. Yeah. That, I mean, that's that's Time Spiral territory, and that's pretty darn good. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would expect to win I, if I Paradoxical Outcome for four and then six. But it, the fact that it has this uh, spiral this snowball effect... Yeah. Is also very attractive. <laughs> it is. Uh, l- l- let's not. Okay, we've we've extolled the virtues. I do think this card has serious issues because of the workshop Eldrazi. Yeah, Thalia it's just metagame. clearly ter- really bad or really weak or soft to a huge part of the metagame. You have to you have to have a really problematic, a major major reliable plan against those matchups. 
I think it's probably pretty darn good against Dredge, though. So that's a huge upside. <laughs> yeah. But it's really bad, really bad against against Thalia and Shops. Yeah. It's probably okay against it's probably okay against Eldrazi, Jake Eldrazi, as long as they don't have a null rod. <laughs> if they have null rod, yeah. you're toast. That's right. That's that's <laughs> the, the linchpin for them in this matchup. But even well, then, you can still be a Leyland of Anticipation deck and still get one over on the null rod sphere deck. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason why Belcher only puts up a handful of numbers all year. I, I mean, I would be surprised. This this does not appear to make Belcher significantly better. This new combo deck you're talking about could be could well, exist in the space between Belcher and Dark Petition Storm in terms of speed. Well, this is that's why I'm trying to get away from Belcher. I mean, Belcher is not the first deck to use all these artifact oh, accelerants. Oh. It's just yeah. I mean, there was Academy decks before that, right? Sure. That used. Yeah, use uh, power power monolith. And there, there, and the thought cast decks, the ones that are doing well, well are, and Lion's Eye Diamond will not be able to help you cast this either. Right. The, the, that the, the thought cast decks that are doing well recently are not the the X City Vault model. So this could reinvigorate Steel City, but even then, the numbers I think are going to be quite low. I'm not optimistic well, that this pushes anything to the forefront in the format. Well, before we do a number prediction, I just want to say that. That when we do these predictions, there is a danger of the what Daniel Kahneman calls anchoring effect, mm-hmm. which is where you give a number and then my response to that number is relative to your number. Yeah. Uh, so I think we just need to be careful about that. And as our listeners evaluate for themselves, just be aware of that bias. So the way that this works is, you know, if if I said to you, and the example that he gives in his book is if I said to you, did Gandhi die at the age of 140? <laughs> You're going to give a very different answer to when you how long you actually think he lived than if i said did he die at the age of 35 right so and it, it's actually a cognitive bias that happens unconsciously so i just <laughs> as we go through this kevin i want to make sure that we're just making sure that we're determining our answers with not responding to the other person yeah uh so just note your prediction whoever goes first note your own prediction before the answer is given uh, uh, try not to i expect be... that my answer is going to be lower than yours and the and okay. the more that I think about it, th- this card is so bad, so strategically bad against shops. In the format. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So you. Pred- I don't know if the all-in paradoxical outcome deck is reliably faster than Belcher. I just just I believe, but Belcher is the fastest deck that puts up any performances in the format in terms of yeah. average turn, you know, victory. Does this deck is this deck slightly faster than Belcher? I'm not confident that it is. Well, I think there's. I, again, I, I don't think that I, I am actually inclined to agree with Randy. I don't think this goes in Belcher. I think that's a mistake, and I mm. I, I want to get away from talking about Belcher. Well, that's I think that, that's fine. That's fine. But I am also not confident that this makes an uh, a multi empty the Warrens deck even exist. Right. I mean, that's well. That's a it, it doesn't have to be empty. It can just be another type of the. Well, you know, but deck I think we like teased. That. I think we teased out well, that it. That's the best. That's storm the best storm card in the deck like this, just because well, you need rituals if, to make tendrils reliable. If this has a, if this has a critical mass snowball effect, I think brain freeze is perfectly serviceable. Honestly, yeah, fair enough. If, if it, I mean, if if the second paradoxical outcome really gets you to the third like that, mm-hmm. I could I could easily see brain freeze working, but. I agree. I'm skeptical that deck is kind of going to break out of this hostile metagame. <laughs> right. Although the restrictive chalice does make it a lot more attractive. One other thing that we should just throw into the mix is that you can also use paradoxical outcome to 
protect your cards from a removal spell at an opportune moment. So let's say you're holding on to it and you're deciding when to play it, and your opponent, I don't know, plays Lightning Bolt or Swords of Plowshares on one of your permanents. Like, let's say you're Goblin Welder. Mm-hmm. If you're going to draw three cards off it naturally, you're also going to get additional bit of card advantage by negating their removal spell. Or even an, an Ancient Grudge is a good example, or a Shatter Effect. So, that, you know, that's something. That's true. That I mean, if they're removing your, your mana artifacts, it's reasonable. And if you're the sort of deck who has found a way to maximize non-mana artifacts, then that's also reasonable, I think. Yeah, it's worth considering. How do, how does the the effect with Leyline of uh, Anticipation is also quite funny, just because it's instant speed, so you can replay stuff in instant speed. But anyway, <laughs> that is pretty good. <laughs> I think the most intriguing idea or avenue here is whether Brian DeMars will come into Eternal Weekend <laughs> with with a with a Steel City Vault deck <laughs> using Paradoxical Outcome. I, I would not put it past those guys. No, and fair. and I know they've done very well with the, this that deck in the past and. Just knowing Brian's psychology, I think that he would love to play that kind of deck in Eternal Weekend. I don't know if he'll do it, yeah. but if he does, you know, you could see at least one of these in the top eight there, if not in tournaments around it, or subsequent. So Fair enough. I'm going to go with a non-zero number because I think there are just enough possibilities here that it will it'll appear somewhere in a top eight. But I assume you're taking zero. I am thinking back to a specific card that had similar conversation, not because of the features of the card, so so to speak, but about creating new Cabo decks. And that was Whispering Madness. The four-mana windfall was Cypher. <laughs> and, you and, I, yeah. and you and I went round and round about how, well, geez, I mean, if you get to play five windfalls, doesn't that facilitate a new deck? And it just never materialized. Well, that there's a lot of reasons now, for I, that. I, but... I don't want to start a comparison between these two cards, except that we... That's the feeling the that feeling I'm for you. Getting, exactly. It's a... It's a loose concept. Well, it's a loose connection in my mind, and I just, I just, there's so much else going on with conspiracy and still Eldritch Moon, and now this set that I can't shake the notion that this isn't going to be the the thing that really pops out from the metagame. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to go with zero. It's funny. There are some people out there who think this card is just going to get restricted, <laughs> and there has been a track record of. These kinds, I mean, Gifts, Thirst, and Fact were all restricted at one point. But of course, none of them are restricted right now. (laughs) So the question is, is this so much better than those? Uh, I think that the ceiling ceiling is high, but the floor is also pretty low. (laughs) And the conditionality that's built into this card is not, it's not its mana cost. To, To the listener's point, it's not its mana cost, it's the design cost. And the requirement to generate card advantage. Yeah. For the effect. It's really the effect that's critical. <laughs> the floor on this card is you die and it's in your hand. That's the floor yeah. on this card. <laughs> so so I'm gonna s I think the answer is around two or three. Like I would say it's probably two and a half. So oh, you can okay. put me down at two point five, I'll say three. Okay. I mean it does you know, if the answer is one, I I'll still feel moral victory than if i said you know <laughs> yeah over you yeah if it was a one i would still think it goes in your in your uh technically your corner, it doesn't but, but I'll, uh, anyway I'll, I'll go i'll go with three <laughs> all right i'll go with three. it is decided i i don't think it's impossible to imagine this being i mean you could imagine if this does really well at one big event the next couple tournaments have a couple of these in the top eight and you could see this having seven or eight or nine you know that's an interesting point if someone spikes um European Eternal Weekend. Eternal Weekend with this, it would have a powerful yeah. impact on the, the <laughs> North American one. Yeah. Okay. Shall we move on? 
Let's do it. Let's talk. Good start. Yeah. Let's talk about Aetherflux Reservoir. Four generic mana artifact. Whenever you cast a spell, you gain one life for each spell you've cast this turn. For each spell you've cast this turn. Pay 50 life, colon, Aetherflux <laughs> Reservoir deals 50 damage to target creature or player. You know, you've got the option of damaging a creature or a player with this, with the 50 damage. This is all, Aladdin's ring on steroids. <laughs> uh, Steve, this Reservoir is a sort of, I don't know, retroactive storm card, maybe? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's an inverted storm card, inverted, yeah. I mean, it's kind of... You, you can't play it as the last spell, obviously. Well, let's 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 go through the sequencing. Let's just go through it and yeah. say what the math is. Okay, so let's say you're starting so at 20 f- life, right? Just for the sake of demonstration. Yeah. You cast a single spell, yes. you go to 21. You cast your second spell, you go to 23, 26. With this, this is all with this in play. Yes, you assuming go it's in 21 play. to 23. 30, 35, 41, 48. Your ninth spell puts you at 56. So... And all of this is assuming that you like started with this in play. If you cast this, then that's going to be your first spell, but you won't gain a life from it. So really, you have to pay this plus eight other spells in one turn to do it. Or yeah. starting from twenty, you'd have to you'd have to play nine spells to do it. For the sake of go ahead, go ahead. No, you first. <laughs> I was going to say for the sake of argument, let's just put let's just use as polar opposites Quirion Dryad and Tendrils of Agony. Okay. Right. Quirion Dryad represents the card where the damage builds each spell you play after it's in play, mm-hmm. whereas Tendrils of Agony is the card that you want to be the final spell. Mm-hmm. And both of those approaches, if we call them, let's say, polar storm effects mm-hmm. or, or cu- spell cumulative spell effects, have advantages. Let's go through the advantages of each, and then we can apply those principles to this card. The advantage of Quirion Dryad is that it the cumulative effect, you don't have to hit a critical mass. You can get a little bit over time and get value out of it, right? Totally. That's the value of the advantage of the tendrils effect, the critical mass, is that in the decks that generate the critical mass, you want to use all your resources and every card you draw building the engine. You want them all to be card draw, disruption, and mana. Mm-hmm. So you don't really want the tendrils at the beginning of the process. You want to find the tendrils at the very end of the process. Like when you dark petition for the tendrils after you've just generated a huge amount of mana from, say, a Yawgmoth's Will or a Bargain. So those each of those approaches has merits, but it's clear that this represents the Quirion Dryad approach, not the Tendrils approach. And mm-hmm. that means that you have to have the win condition at the beginning of the process, which, mean, which is when you have the fewest resources, <laughs> and the fewest tutors, and the fewest protection. Right. You know, and... And it has it's anyway, but that's assuming you're going, you know, whatever in the all-in approach. This card resembles tendrils in that you basically need to get to storm. It's you need to storm nine yep. after this is there. You need nine storm after this is played. Right. So it's like a tendrils. It also costs four mana, but it functions like the dryad effect. So I think there's a fundamental tension here. <laughs> you're totally right. <laughs> and the other thing the dryad has going for it is its its mana efficiency, right? It, the dryad yes. is cheap up front with all the power coming from everything you play it, after, which is and again, dryad represents a constellation of cards. Yes, it it's does. just we're we're putting dryad in quotes yes. here. It, it's it's <laughs> but many. The cards. only card that the only card that is dryad that I think is four mana is what Talrand. 
or something. Yeah. So there are cards at that mana cost. But well, there, there's also the the one that's literally closer to Dryad, which is the four mana green one. Hydra. Well, yeah. Well, I was talking about all of them. Yeah, which has know, been outclassed that, by Hydra now. So. <laughs> um, anyway, you're right. We're talking about that family of things. But to, uh, to your specific point, though, about you know how in a perfect world, if you had an Aetherflux Reservoir combo deck, what would what would its advantages be over something like Dark Petition? What was one possible advantage? Could, the one possible advantage is you could play it off of Mishra's Workshop. That's okay. That's reasonable. So we, a higher artifact count, you're not, and you're also not as beholden to what spells you play after, right? Yeah, so there you could maybe get like an artifact combo deck going where you play uh, Workshop. Are there any kind of like engines that exist like Thopter Foundry but are just playable off of Workshops? There are. I'm, I'm sure there are several. I'm not good at thinking of one off the top of my head other than... other than. Um, Isn't there like a, a weird Ashnod's Altar type combo that you could use years well, ago? There, there are there, there are several creature and graveyard based kind of combos that, that could go together. Like the Four Horsemen combo from from Legacy oh, yeah. is Mesmeric Orb yeah. and Basalt Monolith. Um, That's all playable off Workshop, yes, right? Yes, it is. There's also uh, Basalt Monolith and Rings of Bright Hearth, oh, <laughs> which is an infinite mana combo but doesn't draw you anything. <sighs> the Mesmeric Orb-Basalt Monolith combo is an infinite milling combo, which then you Does that use... work on Magic Online? Almost certainly no. <laughs> okay. I mean, the, the short answer is it's not any different than Salvagers, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, so keep going. I'm sorry. Those two combos though don't draw you cards, right? They don't. It's, they don't result in additional spells. Those are just you know mono brown infinite something combos. It could be that Salvagers is a good example of a combo that's good with this, but that you, sure. you're, you've got two four mana components there, and it's three cards, and they don't have any synergy. You know those three cards otherwise. I mean, Salvagers combo by itself is infinite mana, but. You don't, yeah, and it's infinite spells and infinite life here. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, if you don't have the reservoir, salvagers combo doesn't do anything, right? Yeah, salvagers combo is much better off just having spell bomb. Well, There's so much more synergy there. It generates infinite mana with the black lotus, but yeah, I take your point. But, right, if you don't have anything else, get... you can just say, "I've got infinite mana, go." <laughs> that that can happen yeah. when you get the salvagers combo. <clears throat> anyway, my my point is along the lines of you could, uh, if you have the reservoir early. The rest of what you're doing to complete the storm becomes a lot more open-ended. Dark Petition, for example, there's lots of different. I mean, Dark Petition is constructed correctly such that it's it's really easy to sequence the rituals into the tutor, into the into the tendrils, or you know, through via the 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 necro or via the will. This deck doesn't care what you do after you've got this in play, right? You could be playing kobolds. You could be playing mentor. You could be playing any yeah. anything to get you to nine spells. You could just be playing gush bond. You, you know, you could go to Yongmoth's will. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I think you asked the right question. the The question is, what advantages does this have being an artifact and so on? Like, yeah. What advantages does this have? And anyway, I don't think you finished analyzing what all the potential artifact combos are no i know there's like are... a nationals altar combo out there oh, yeah. it's some something but but the problem with those combos is they tend to be built out of cards you wouldn't ever want to draw if you yeah, don't have otherwise. if you don't have an engine going so, right so what what did you have in mind when you posed that question what, what, what advantage does this have I, I was what i was trying to tease out then was the next question is what disadvantages does it have <laughs> so we it's far more vulnerable to removal <laughs> no question there you about go. that it's a it makes all the your Storm opponent is... shatters into fluster storms <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Storm is functionally uncounterable except by Mindbreak Trap and, and Fluster Storms. Yeah, which is the reason those cards are used. But um, yeah, but yeah, this card, if you, if you get anywhere, you know, if your opponent even sniffs that you're getting close to, to going off, then and then abrupt decay, not abrupt decay, uh, uh, ancient grudge, you know, it becomes it's the, coming in. becomes the worst kind of thing. And because yeah. and because it's an artifact, every deck in the format is prepared to destroy an artifact because of workshop. Yeah, I think. I think the the one of the problems with this, besides the fundamental tendrils problem, which is that it's a storm nine card, but you have to have the tendrils first, mm-hmm. is that is that the it's a, also a critical mass card. Unlike dryad, dryad's cumulative, you know, again by dryad air quotes, I'm talking about the yeah. family of cards. The cumulative effect is enough by itself. So a dryad that's three three and then four four and then five five is lethal. Mm-hmm. I mean that's you know that's dead in three turns. Whereas this card is an all or nothing card. You either get to 50 or you don't. That's a good point. Right. You, you, yeah, there's no there's no prize for being at 49 life with this card. Yeah, it doesn't. Say, <laughs> it, do, it doesn't say. It doesn't say like 40 life. You can sacrifice this to do 10 damage. Right. Right. Whatever. It's that's like, a good point. You know. So and this doesn't team up with it, other cards like very tendrils. well at all, right? And you may rec- you may recall and probably don't, but the skepticism around tendrils when it was originally printed was that it was an all in card. Mm-hmm. Like tendrils for 18 when your opponent's at 12, 20 does nothing. Right. But t- but tendrils, you know, so it's the same kind of problem. Empty the war- that was when empty the warrens was spoiled. Why it was viewed so favorably is because you don't have to hit that critical mass. It's useful at three, four, five, six. Um, and so anyway, so that's th- this uh, card. Well, yeah. So this card has it doesn't scale. It, it doesn't scale very well, and also it's not. It doesn't have an amplifying factor turn over turn like the permanent counters do on a, a, a dryad, or like the tokens do on Exa- a young pyromancer. Exactly, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. And even the life, even the life doesn't really matter defensively because, like, if you play two spells, you only gain three life. Yeah. If you play three spells, you still only gain six life. That's not very much when you're facing down a mentor. Right. That's not enough to save you. And it's a losing proposition for you to try to expect to play three or four spells on several consecutive turns. That's just that's yeah. just not reasonable. No, you need to get to like the fifth or sixth spell to gain even re- uh, enough life to get close to, to right. jumping up to fifty. And, right. And if you if you were to try and construct... so you need a you need a dedicated storm engine. You need a dedicated storm engine. You can't graduate. Right. You can't gradually. You you, you can't win with this card in play by playing two or three turns, uh, uh, three or two, two or three spells a turn for a number of turns. And you actually have to hit a critical mass. You either need a, you neither need a dedicated storm engine or some kind of other engine, as you were asking about up front, right? Artifact based recursive engine. Yeah. At which point. It has to be spell based though. It has to be spell based. It has it to generate re- yeah, it has to generate recursive spells. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So so many engines just generate effects. They generate abilities or permanence, yeah. which wouldn't satisfy this. No. And and none of no. those engines are playable in vintage, right? The only one I can think <laughs> of is um Metalworker and Staff, right? Interesting. And yeah. you don't need this card to yeah. make Metalworker Staff good. <laughs> no, <laughs> right? that's it's already with That's a by two itself. card well, assuming you have the requisite hand size, that's a two card combo that ends yeah. the game just fine on its own. So yeah, I feel like this is um I feel like this is sparking up the wrong tree. <laughs> yeah, it's just cute, you know. It's an EDH card. <laughs> yeah. They wanted an excuse to put do fifty damage on a card. Well, That's why it says creature or player, by the way. It's for the players design... that feel like getting to one hundred and twenty yeah. life and shooting a creature before <laughs> they kill someone. <laughs> well, what's interesting? What's interesting is um well, first of all, th- this when you pay the fifty life, this card does not sacrifice itself. No, it just says so. There. You you can you, you can kill multiple players. Right, that's you know. that's on purpose. I'm certain they want they want <laughs> yeah. people to go up to to two hundred life. But, 
and shoot down multiple players with this or you know but but my point is that you need a dedicated storm engine yeah. and there are a limited number of storm engines in the format there is of course like mind's desire bargain necropotence draw sevens yeah. yagmoth's will whatever there are storm engines and even even hercules can be a storm engine but hercules doesn't work with this card right so uh paradoxical outcome you know, anyway. you know? There you go. What paradoxical, paradoxical outcome. outcome in this? Yeah, <laughs> you need a storm. It is definitely a storm engine. I, I have no doubt of that. Uh, I don't know if it's a viable one, but it's a storm engine. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is fun to discuss. In my opinion, the real linchpin is the one of the things you said first, which is that this is a the storm which progresses in reverse, which means you need this first. And any deck, you know, any deck that's trying to win off of one particular permanent. Is gonna have to expend yeah. energy most of the time finding that permanent, and you're never, you're just never gonna have enough gas get the in the storm. tank. Yeah, after you've done, you've put the energy into finding and casting this. Yeah, if if because this has to come first, it means you probably have to play four of this. Unlike tendrils, where you can just play one yeah, exactly. and find it at the end of the sequence. Yeah, the reversing the order makes all the difference in this context. Now, if it said, yeah, I think... if it said when you cast this. Or when you play a spell, However right? Many. If it was retroactive, yeah. if you could go 10 spells and then, well, you'd still only gain Play 11. this last. That still wouldn't be good enough. Well, no, this is interesting. So the, the question that you, I think we're both predicting zero. So yeah. let's get that out of the yeah. way. But I think the relevant question is how would this have to work to be playable? And I think the rel- I think the interesting question is that you would probably need to have a different life increment and would probably also have to have a different activation increment threshold. So the activation threshold would probably be, have to be higher, but would have to gain more life in a different route. So it would have to be something, I don't know how you would invert it, but because you couldn't just gain like 10 life from the first spell you play and then nine from the second and so on, yeah. but it would have to have a different increment, a climbing increment. It would have to be something like, it would have to be X times two or something. Well, or so just have, or just gain two life for every spell, right? That's the, the same result. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it would. that would probably work. So you go, you would go from 20 to 22 to 24 to, to know that, no, it would have to be, sorry, I'm trying to think of something where it's more algebraic than just cumulative, where it would be more... It, well, that would be, you're talking about you x squared, right? <laughs> that, yeah. That's so, so, so go... But either if, way, even at x times 2 or at x squared, you're still going to get to storm ap- after about half as many steps on this scale. You're still going to get there in 4 or 5. Well, that's what I'm saying. You'd have yeah. to raise the threshold, too. But you'd have to make the threshold... You change the threshold activation, but you also need to change the increment the go- because okay. the defense. The goal of your exercise, the- though, is to simply reduce the number of spells you need to play after this, right? And that's that's the, that's how you're making it playable. Because um, if you raise the if you raise the gain and the requirement, I all you've th- done is change the numbers, and you well, still have I, to pay no, ten spells. No, because I want this to be better defensively. Is what I'm interested you in. You want to get more is life that- per spell, but make it harder to go off. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Well, yeah. Then that's just a simple scaling factor, right? Like you take the one and turn it into a ten. You take the fifty yeah, and turn it into a five hundred. And now you've yeah. accomplished. But I. But yeah. But it's not as simple as scaling because it also has to be reasonable. It has to be. <laughs> so I don't know how you implement it. I, yeah. You get the idea, but I don't know how you implement it. So let's just just very quickly it, scale or, or walk through the if you gain two life for each spell. How would that work? You start at twenty and then you go to twenty-two instead of twenty-one, and then you would go to 24 instead of 23 and then you go to 26 instead of 26 that doesn't make sense because no no that's not right yeah yeah (laughs) i'm sorry go go through it yeah so assuming again that you're starting at 20 and you are playing your first spell of the turn not counting this meaning this you started the turn with this in play right yes yes so sec 
you go from 20 to 22, because the 1 is yep. times 2, then 26. Then 26, right, because you gain 4. Then yeah. 32, and then two. 40, and 50. You win on the 6th spell. So you'd have to probably take it to like 66 or something, or so, probably like 75. Well, the 7th spell puts you to 62, the 8th spell puts you to 76. Maybe it's 75. There you go. There we go. That's 75 how activation, it. yeah. Then it's it's one fewer spell to go off, all things being equal. But you have to have started right at 20 life. If you're at 18, right. you need a ninth spell. That's that's yes, interesting tension I like that. too. I kind of I kind of like it. Um, <laughs> I, I, in in my in, per, in in my opinion, that doesn't actually make this more playable in vintage. Well, but it, I, I think, think it, makes it does it more fun. because <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes it more playable because the defense is so much stronger. So you the critical so you could it's more plausible that you could cumulatively do it right because in other words, the whole point of this exercise is both that you have defense, but also that you could make maybe generate the cumulative life gain over turns. Okay. The problem the problem with its design is that you, the reason you need a dedicated storm engine is because you, by playing without a dedicated storm engine, you're not likely to generate more than three spells per turn, and the amount of life you gain with three spells is pitily. It's tiny. <laughs> yeah. Whereas you need to be able to generate a more life, you need in order for this to be viable, you you need to be able to make it work without a dedicated storm engine. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. by just playing a couple of spells each turn and actually make progress, and that design approach that I just, you know, you just successfully implemented based upon the principle I was articulating, I think works in that direction. Therefore, it'd be more viable. More viable. I, I agree. Think it'd be, yeah. I don't. Okay. I still don't. I still don't think your version makes it playable in vintage, but it's closer. And it's more fun in EDH. <laughs> I don't know. This is a cute card. I look forward to someone having fun playing it in some other format. Fair enough. Next up, Fragmentize. For white, sorcery, destroy, target, artifact, or enchantment with converted mana cost four or less. Well, here we have it. The intersection of nature's claim and natural state and... Uh, <laughs> Actually, I can't think of a good sorcery speed destruction spell that has ever seen play. <laughs> Help me out. Uh, not pulverize. Anyway, there was there was an exile one. Was it uh, deglamor? <laughs> yeah, overload is around there. <laughs> uh, deglamor is an instant. I can't remember think of the last sorcery speed. I guess ingot chewer. <laughs> Isn't overload a sorcery? Uh, no, overload's an instant. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so is crush. <laughs> Yeah, Hull Breach is a sorcery. There you go, Hull Breach. Yeah, so maybe this is like Hull Breach. But no, really, the the reason, because we only very recently reviewed Natural State, which we went round and round about how the mana cost restriction was only a restriction to a certain point, but you would only really want this Natural State if you already had uh, four Nature's Claims, basically. And that has turned out to be basically correct. Yeah. Fragmentize, though, I think has, I mean, it's... It has a lot of those same conversation elements to it, but a lot of different ones as well. Um, where to begin? Mana cost stands out fairly obviously and immediately, right? This now is the cheapest way that white has, aside from certain alternate mana cost spells, which are rarely played, uh, the cheapest way that white has to address artifacts and enchantments. White is typically, not always, but typically playing disenchant uh, these days. Lots of white decks have been playing Disenchant, I should say. And that's a nod to instant speed plus flexibility. But you have to believe that Fragmentize only costing one mana is going to be highly attractive to the Ingot Chewer crowd. And that some people 
who have been playing Jeskai primarily for Dak Faden and Ingachur over the last two years, we're going to take a serious look at this and think about taking another color instead of red. Yeah, I mean, when we discussed natural state in the, uh, how I don't remember how many podcasts ago. Yeah, the, it was three three set reviews ago. The the main thing that we tried to do was figure out what's the scope of application. That is to say, how, what are the what exemptions are built into the restriction and. Yeah. Uh, we found just too many. I mean, from Goblin Charbelcher to Lodestone Golem. Yep. This card suffers from no such drawbacks. The the <laughs> this this the scope of exemptions or the set of exemptions is much 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 smaller. So so let's just go through them, right? Which artifacts or enchantments does this not hit? I can name. I think I can name them on one hand. Memory Jar. Tris- Triskelion. Yeah, Triskelion, Memory Jar, um, any of the six mana artifacts like Worm Coil Engine. Uh, it doesn't hit. Uh, it it doesn't hit. Um, like Mirror Battle Sphere or things like that. But yeah, so some ditto. Tick- um, Sphinx of the Steel Wind. Yeah. Um, but a lot of things don't hit Sphinx of the Steel Wind. So there's some Tinker <laughs> targets, some yeah. high end workshop creatures. The highest end, and not many. The highest end, yeah. yeah trike. The kind of thing that your opponent Col- only has four of in their deck. Yeah, Koldotha Col- um, is the big one, I think. Koldotha, trike, yeah. and... And For- Forge Master sees basically no play right now. Yeah, so yeah, this hits almost everything. It hits Golem, which of course is now restricted. But mm-hmm. So so what difference does, is this between this and natural state right now? The instant speed is everything in my eyes, in the evaluation of this card. Yeah, yeah, good point. <clears throat> because, so what you're traded, so right, you, you now have the ability to hit Lodestone Golem and Smokestack and, and Uba Mask oh. and all the four-mana stuff in a workshop deck. Oh, Shattering you... Spree is a sorcery, by the way, Kevin. Oh, there we go. That was yeah. a good example. Um, what we've traded, though, is the severe, severe weakness to Tanglewire. And that might be a deal breaker for some people. Many people, I think, would look at this and say, you know what, I just can't stomach not being able to play under a tangle wire. And I think and those people are, you know, have a very, very good point. Now, it's worth noting that in a white deck, right? Let's say you're talking about Mentor, because this is this the logical home is going to be Mentor at least as a starting point. The the weaknesses that you have, so to speak, at the high end of the workshop curve are nearly nearly entirely mitigated by the fact that you're playing Swords to Plowshares also. So you can deal with a Trike or a, a Worm Coil or a Karn with your Swords because you're playing White. Which is definitely a, a mark in favor of Fragmentize, I think. If you can find a way for your deck to deal with or play around a Tangle Wire, then this card becomes quite good and it allows for certain avenues of deck construction that have inherently been weak in recent memory. The first one I can think of is just base blue-white. You know, the first Mentor deck that I built, played before it was even legal, was base blue-white. And the first next couple versions thereafter. Because I thought I could address workshops with just a combination of explosives and Hercules Recall and Plow. And you can to a degree, but then Dak rose to prominence and Jeskai became just the default for those decks. And I don't know as... I mean... (laughs) then it's a complicating matter because also Containment Priest complicated the, the presence of Oath Hate. And so in a Jeskai world, I don't think Fragmentize has any home. 
I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have a place in a Jeskai world, is what I should say. Really? That's so interesting. So the... Well, yeah, because Ingot Chewer and Dak and, and, uh, and as you just said it... Um, Shattering Spree. Shattering Spree are all so much better at dealing so, with workshops. So here's how... And then the other things are so much better at dealing with those. Yeah, so here's, here's, here's how I'd approach it. Uh, for years, White has suffered by the fact that Disenchant, the best Disenchant effects were no longer in White. I mean, that was, mm-hmm. for really a long time, the whites... Like, Disenchant, if you play old-school magic, anyone who listens out there, they will appreciate the power of Disenchant. I mean, mm-hmm. Disenchant is possibly the most powerful card, you know, the the high, highest utility card in the entire format. Because <laughs> right. just just because it, there's nothing else that can take out artifacts and enchantments. And n- Naturalize was a slap in the face to white. That was the beginning of the trend, because white was when natural light was printed as you remember kevin white was just the the fifth worst color in magic and it wasn't really close it was <laughs> yep. it was just by far the the worst color and um and naturalize was a slap in the face by being a you know identical to disenchant and mm-hmm. then and then they printed nature's claim which was even worse because then it just meant that like not hey not not only are we taking white's best thing away from them one of white's best things but then we're going to give a better one to green so it was the beginning of a shift of the color pie and kind of the, you know, the nail in the the last nail in white's coffin. Now, mm-hmm. now to give this to white, I think is as white is on the is on the rise, is is kind of like, uh, you know, again, it, it's parallels to what they gave green. I think this card really begins the process of unwinding the damage that was done by giving disenchant <laughs> effects to green and red. And there was a long period of time in the format where you couldn't play a deck and compete effectively. It was very difficult to play a competitive deck that c- against workshops that didn't have red or green or both. And and that's because of what you're just talking about, right? Ingot chewers necessary to combat uh, 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 you know, workshops either in red or the trade-off is, is nature's claim in, in green. Uh, and if you weren't running one of those cards, you didn't have a good plan for workshops. Like, literally, you had to be running four of one of those cards. And mm-hmm. now, I think this card says that you don't need red or green to fight shops. You can actually do it in white. So I think Esper as a color is far more attractive. I think even blue-white or whatever, you know, is is much more viable. I think this card is potentially by in contribution with other things or parallel with other things. I think it reconfigures the the color pie back in the original direction and is a is a format structural format cha- game changer in that way. So I think what you're saying is true from the perspective of status quo ante, but I don't think it's true going forward. I think it's I think it's yes in a Jeskai world, but but do you need to be in a in a Jeskai world if you have this? I mean Brian Kelly played Esper Mentor on the you know thing in in on the VSL. Imagine if he had this. Uh, yeah, maybe. But think about how important instant speed is against modern workshops. What with Hangerback Walker, Arcbound Ravager, Tanglewire, Triskelion. I mean, the huh? the instant speed tricks that workshops play these days are so numerous. And also just consider the fact that um, you know, Oath decks can simply go uh, untap, yeah. put Oath Trigger on the stack, <laughs> remove your Containment Priest, 
I think there are still plenty of attractive reasons why instant speed trumps the color pie implications. You know, you, your explanation of the history there and the, <laughs> I don't know, the, the tension that this card kind of undoes, it's all totally accurate. I think the only deck that I can think of right now where I would play Fragmentize is in straight blue-white Mentor or Esper Mentor slash Control of some kind. Well, that's fine. I just think that that alone makes this very playable. Yeah. Uh, playable, yeah. Well, that's what I was trying... That's the whole reason I did that narrative. That's why I did the whole narrative is to show these aren't sea changes. These are cumulative changes that have large effects over time. Okay, And I enough. think that this is this is either... I think this is part of a of a sea change, but it is not the sea change in and of itself. I mean, it's the rise of okay. white. It's the it's the printing of monastery mentor. It's the you know all it's the um, printing of containment priest. I think this fits a pattern or a trend that solidifies or reinforces that trend yeah. in in a very positive way. Yeah, I think I think it's crazy. I think it's really 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 good card. <laughs> I think it's clear. <laughs> it's a vintage staple. I think it's actually going to be better than nature's claim a lot more than you do. And yeah, I think it's nuts. I think because white is so much stronger than green right now, it's it, that's a huge, huge, huge function. And I think this is a game changer in the sense that now you don't need red or green to to combat shops. Mm-hmm. I think now white is back in the mix, right back in it. Because well, white has plow and this. Yeah. I, I think white is right back and in it. It's it's interesting that this is coming in the post chalice era Absolutely. as well. I was gonna get to that at some point. But and imagine how different the conversation about lodestone would be too if we already had this card. Totally different. More a, a bigger you know I mean a lot one of the decks I think it probably has the most trouble with lodestone are the decks that the hate bears decks, and those tend to be anchored in white. Mm-hmm. So anyway. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're totally right. So, I don't think we need to belabor, you know, the 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 decks or the mana cost or the function any further. Should we just go straight to predictions? Go for it. I want to find a comparison state for this, like I do with so many other cards in the past. And the obvious starting point is Nature's Claim, so let's look at that. Nature's Claim has a little over a hundred top eights <laughs> this year, and all but two of those are sideboard appearances, right? Two main deck top eights this year, more than 100 uh, in sideboard, which is hilarious and crazy. Uh, if you just look at, well, let's see, what is this? We're in mid-March, I'm sorry, March. We're in mid-September right now. So if you look back just in the past three months to mid-June, you get approximately 20 to 25 top eights, depending on exactly how you count, you know, how exactly how long you go back. So, you know, 20 to 30 a quarter is a pretty reasonable, I think, in the current state for nature's claim appearances. Now, how many of those decks are going to adopt fragmentize, right? Most of those appearances in paper recently are oath decks, ironically. Oath is the number one deck in paper that is utilizing Nature's Claim out of the sideboard. After that, probably the number two deck, and I'm just eyeballing this, appears to be Dredge. Yeah, and then, you said Oath and then Dredge? Yeah, and then after that, we're looking at a mixture of... Boy, that's it's uh, really hard to know what difference Nature's Claim makes in a Dredge deck. Probably not much, but some. Especially, some, I mean, especially yeah. since it hit ley, hits Ley Lines, Natural state. which Nature's yeah. State... Uh, yeah, and, and then after that, it's a not. smattering of... Yeah. Gush Mentor and Painter 
stone blade, just more mid-rangey decks. So here's one of those examples, right? If I'm an Oath player, I, I'm not replacing my Nature's Claims with Fragmentized, right? So I think that right there says that the majority of Nature's Claim implementations won't be replaced. If I'm a Dredge player... If you're player, an Oath player, you're not right. If you're an Oath yeah, player, you will not. Yeah. Probably, probably not. not. Nope. It's possible, but probably not. Um, as a Dredge player, it's a really tricky situation, right? Do you value the instant speed and the four life? Or, I mean, do you value the instant speed over the four life? Dredge frequently plays its removal at sorcery speed just as a matter of course. You know, not always, but frequently. But part of that is because its removal is Serenity, Ingot Chewer, and Wispmare. So does this replace uh, directly something like Wispmare just because it's more flexible but but uh, vulnerable to mental misstep? Wispmare is, doesn't have the same value being an evoke creature that Thorn does, right? You don't bring in Wispmare against the Thorn decks usually. No. With some exceptions. No, no, you're right. But it does have, it is, it doesn't hit, it's not hit by misstep and things like that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But but my point was that the vulnerability to misstep is, I think, less relevant for Wispmare than it is for Ingotchur. That's my, that's part of my point. You're bringing in Ingotchur against nearly everything. You know, the blue decks are having cages and whatnot. You're not as reliably bringing in things like Wispmare because Leyline is not, as universal as something like Cage is. And also, against the decks that have Leyline and maybe a mixture of things, you're also bringing in Serenity. So I guess what I'm getting at is that I think that Fragmentize is a good upgrade, is an upgrade for Wispmare, for those people who play Wispmare. So let's compare that. You think, you think, I'm sorry, one more time, you think it is, it is an upgrade for people who play West, Wispmare. Okay. I'm trying to think, is there any yeah. other reason that Wispmare, besides... Besides misstep, it can't be flusterstormed either. Wismare cannot be flusterstormed. Yes, you're right, and that is relevant. I've specifically encountered that a number of times. And Wismare has put up in a similar time period that is going back to mid-June. Wow, only three top eights. Wismare is just not as not as popular That's... anymore. I mean, it's strange. There was a big uptick in Wismare appearances in May, though. <laughs> It looks like it put up one, two, three, four, five, six top eights just in May, <laughs> but, o- but only three since. That's weird. So it may, it may be some ebbs and flows going on here, but the simple truth is is that if Fragmentize replaces Wispmare and Dredge, then that's good for about you know three to five per quarter, maybe. If it replaces, um, well, non-existent things in Esper Mentor, for example, then I can't. I'm, I, it's it's difficult to calculate Esper Mentor, but if you search for oh, I just typed Mentory. If you search for Monastery Mentor, you can tell that there is about twenty-five to thirty per quarter. It looks like in paper, at least recently. But the vast majority of these are are Jeskai lists. It's probably about a third um, Esper these days. That might be overstating it. So twenty to thirty percent of 20 or so, 25 maybe mentor decks is what? About four or five, maybe? And that's, in my opinion, it's probably a sure thing that Esper Mentor plays some fragmentized. Oh, oh. And it could it, lead it, to... An, I, don't th- I think it's a near certainty. Yeah. yeah, and it could lead to an uptick in Esper Mentor if people suddenly say, hey, now I wanted to play Esper all along. I don't like these Ingot Chewers. Uh, now I'm going to play right. this Esper deck more. So we might, you know, it might push it up to 
to 5 to 10 appearances. So I think all of that together means this is probably a this is probably a 10 to 20, probably closer to 10 to 15 in the next quarter. Uh, but but you know what we didn't count is one of the good examples that you gave, which is um, which is hate bears. So the Thalia decks, right? The Thalia decks, which are frequently, I mean, lately frequently mono white, but not always. You know, adding green. There's some Bant aggro going around, but the Eldrazi decks are frequently mono white. And going back to June, there was approximately 25 of those in paper. No, 25 Thalia decks in total, most of which are Eldrazi most of which will probably consider playing some fragmentized because they have been playing a mixture of disenchant and kataki and swords. So that's probably good for another 5 to 10 also. So I guess all those things together means this is probably a 20 to 25 card. Yeah, that's that sounds, all, that analysis sounds completely right to me. I, I there's not a step okay. I disagreed with. I'm going to I'm going to err on the lower end because I still feel like some people in those categories are going to be either not so much resistant to change, but uh, just not excited about this particular sorcery speed effect. Some people are still going to stay with disenchant, right? Maybe not many, but some. So, so I'm going to go with I'm going to go with twenty. Well, um, that's still a huge no, it's, number. No, it is a huge number. <laughs> I'll, I'll take I'll take I'll go a little bit lower because I think people are just slow okay. to adapt. Okay. But um, I'm going to go yeah, with I uh, think fourteen. The, the number. Using the methodology I just did, the number's higher than I expected it would be. But boy, there's just you know just the right amount of decks that are based on white right now that the number's going to be high. Yeah, it could be way higher. And if you're yeah. right, if 14 is right, that's still a very high number. That's still oh. way. I mean, that's still way higher than anything we've seen recently. Yep. <clears throat> All right. Yeah. Very good card. Next up is Torrential Gear Hulk. For 4UU, Artifact Creature Construct, Flash. When Torrential Gear Hulk enters the battlefield, you may cast Target Instant Card from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. If that card would be put in your graveyard this turn, exile it. 5, 6. So this is an enormous Snapcaster Mage of sorts. What you lose in paying 6 mana for it, you gain in not having to pay for the spell. I mean, theoretically. But... This is limited to instance only, so there's no flashing back time walk with this, which I think or is a Yogg big Moss deal. Will. Or Yogmoss will. I think that's a big deal. Agreed. <laughs> um, and w- we've already touched on earlier in the show about how uh, this mana cost is playable because we, we referenced Bobby Green's Consecrated Sphinx. Consecrated Sphinx has seen a handful of play in, in a couple of different, albeit all similar, blue-based control decks of late. Between Grixis Thieves and Blue Moon... And a few other, well, like Bant Control, which I've played it in. In fact, I'm at the top of the list. I am the most recent top eight for for uh, Consecrated Sphinx, according to TCDex.net. Nice. It has put up one, two, three, four, five, six top eights this year. I think this card is slightly more playable than Consecrated Sphinx because it has flash and because it has immediate advantage, right? You immediately get some benefit as opposed to the Sphinx, which can just be plowed as soon as you play it and you get nothing. <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> so there's there's that benefit. And flash is no small element, right? It I think it dramatically increases the playability of a card. Cuz one of the reasons you don't tap out in blue control for 6 mana is just because so much bad stuff can happen. But if you could sneak this in at flash and also this becomes a combat <laughs> trick. 5 6 is a magical power and toughness in vintage. Because that means this eats every Eldrazi without dying. Interesting. Good point. I mean all the all the non-titan Eldrazi's. 
Right, that's a good point. And they so certainly think, aren't going to blink it unless they have uh, a... Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. If you've got plow and other juicy things in your graveyard, they're not going to want to. That's a good point. I mean, it's it's resilient, not not impervious, but it's resilient to displacer for that reason. If you've got a graveyard that has plow and dismember in it, they're going to be hesitant to do that. So I think this is has some more playable aspects than one Consecrated Sphinx does. Sphinx is a nod to the fact that it's like a Grixis Thieves card, right? It's a nod to the fact that it's such a haymaker in the blue mirrors. I think this card is also good in a blue mirror, just in, in different ways. Because this will let you flash back a Force of Will, a Mental Misstep, a Flusterstorm, a Swords to Plowshares, a Dismember. It's still quite flexible. Oh gosh. The fact that this doesn't hit sorceries really hampers it in terms of being an Oath creature. If this hits sorceries, I think you we could be talking about it in Oath. Because you'd be using it on, as you mentioned, Yawgmoth's Will or Time Walk. Because it only hits instants, I really think it limits it in terms of Oath implica- implementation. The fact that this is an artifact, though, means that it gains increased playability in Welder decks. And you can tinker for it. Sadly, you can't tinker for flashback on Time Walker, Yawgmoth's Will, but you can still tinker for flashback on Swords, which is kind of neat. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the <laughs> I don't know what this card says about Snapcaster Mage, but it certainly makes me appreciate Snapcaster a lot more. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree. And Snapcaster for Time Walk is one of my favorite plays in Vintage. So It's one of the, the sickest. This, yeah. yeah, the fact that this can't do that is, is huge. Uh, I yeah I don't I mean it's not like you're gonna tinker for this you're not gonna put this in your oath deck uh like you said it's it's well, you, hold you on, might hold on you will tinker for this assuming you're playing a welder deck that has tinker yeah and okay. this is in your deck I mean your point is you'd never tinker for this over Sphinx of the Steelwind but I don't necessarily agree if you're facing down say Gristlebrand and tinker resolves. Then it might be more attractive to go get that plow You're right. than okay. a Sphinx of the Steel Wind. There are circumstances in which you tinker yeah. for it, but I think there. And are also, great... if you have active welder and a and a juicy graveyard, this is pretty attractive. Oh, and also, also again, I keep saying also, if they have Displacer, then this is way better than Sphinx of the Steel Wind. Hmm. So I do think you would tinker for this. I mean, if you took Bobby Green's list and turned it into a a welder deck just by adding a couple of welders and some Durettis, it's very reasonable to swap out the consecrated sphinx for one of these it gets way ah. better in a deck like that <laughs> is right? your is your Duretti target as as a as, as your thirst target as your welder target yeah. as your tinker target as your just play this in, in their That's combat step target no, i think i think it, you're right like with this, with this, goblin this on, card yeah with goblin yeah. this card becomes a lot more interesting and this is way better against dak too i mean sphinx of steel wind is still resistant to dak but this is way better against jace and because opposing Duretti's. Yeah. I don't I don't think this is better than Consecrated Sphinx, though. Well, in certain circumstances, yes. In certain circumstances, no. It's a little As less... As always, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a little less just overall powerful, right? I agree with you that Consecrated Sphinx is the sort of card that just must be answered, or else you're going to get buried. This doesn't quite have that feel to it, but again, we're kind of... we got to talk about different matchups. Like, against Eldrazi, I would far more have this than Consecrated Sphinx. Hmm. For the combat... And the removal aspects alone, I would rather have this than Sphinx. I think that's fair. I, now against workshops, it's a little trickier, right? Is Sphinx right? a five-five? Sphinx is six-six. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's better in combat. It's far better because it has first strike and lifelink too. It's far better in combat. Wait a second. 
I was just answering you for Sphinx of the Steel Wind. Yeah, I meant consecrated I'm, Sphinx. I'm sorry, I just realized there are too there are too many darn Sphinxes. No. <laughs> sorry, I'm getting broken up by Sphinx Tribal. Consecrated Sphinx is four six flying. Got it. Yeah. Four six, which means it trades it doesn't trade. It kills Thought Not Seer, but it it pushes with Reality Smasher, whereas Torrential Gear Hulk kills both and and lives. So what's mulling around in that that brain of yours? I just don't think this has enough oomph. I don't think this has enough energy behind it. Um, I think I think you've identified <laughs> corner. I think you've identified legitimate corner cases where it would be useful, but in the aggregate, I just don't. It's, I don't think those are persuasive. Okay, that's fair. I I think we can I think we can move right to predictions then. Let's do it. This this card has lots of options, but I don't I don't think our audience needs us to belabor all of them. I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with one. I'm going zero. <laughs> okay. I think that at least one of the slots that Consecrated Sphinx has carved for itself how, in the metagame is going to be replaced how, by this. How many Consecrated Sphinxes again do we see? Year to date, Consecrated Sphinx has put up one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. <laughs> All right. So there's a 50-50 chance that in the next uh, in the next uh, <laughs> semester you'll have one. <laughs> I'll, I'll take those odds okay. also we haven't seen the impact of Duretti yet either you know you and i both predicted uh, a bit of an increase in terms of artifact based grixis control so the combination of Duretti and welder and gear hulk could be a thing boy we'll boy is Duretti insane in steel city vault or what <laughs> i don't know crap. We'll, we'll have to wait and see Next, we come to Girapur Orreri. Four generic mana, artifact. Each player may play an additional land on each of his or her turns. At the beginning of each player's upkeep, if that player has no cards in hand, that player draws three cards. <clears throat> Boy, Steve, this is really, really reminding me of the Skullcap. Interesting. Grafted Skullcap? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what this triggers in you for you? <laughs> well, sure. At the beginning of Rupture. Yeah, no, I, I. Draw an additional card at the end of your end step, discard your hand. You excavated <laughs> that one in the pre Mirrodin <laughs> So, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a workshop based deck emptying its hand? Are we talking about anything else other than that? <laughs> That's I the mean, obvious place to go, yeah. This is probably a better card in Tiny Robots than it would be in Ravager Shops, right? Because Ravager Shops is not designed to empty its hand. It's got some expensive stuff. It's designed to control the board and have some good late game plays with Thought Not Seer and and, and uh, Trike. This sounds like more of a tiny robots card. Now, granted, so I'm thinking entirely about the drawing your, drawing cards out of your hand. But there's also the play an additional land each turn, which is really synergistic with Crucible of World. But it applies to both players. So <clears throat> there's going to be a quick race kind of condition where you can play two lands a turn, but your opponent can play two lands a turn. As soon as they run out, though, they're never going to come back. I don't, I don't know, maybe not. I don't know, that's kind of an interesting tension, right? You're playing a Crucible of the Worlds deck, and l l you let them play <laughs> two lands on their next turn. I think that frequently that's going to backfire. Yeah, that doesn't sound very good. Like, if you're no, in the Workshop yeah. Mirror, and you've got your opponent down, you want them to only be able to break out with, with Talarian. Or, or, yeah. yeah, that's a good point. You want them to be restricted. So, okay, I agree with you with... I don't think this is good if you're a Crucible Worlds deck. So then we're down to tiny robots. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I think the fundamental question is how reliably can you get this to, to, to draw you three cards a turn? That's really, and this is at the beginning of each player's upkeep. So oh yeah. This is just so you're both well, players are going to be trying to empty their hands as quickly as possible. <laughs> well, yeah, but the thing is, a deck like Tiny Robots is the one that can be do both do it quickly, but also slow your opponent down or or prevent them from doing it with cards like Thorn and Tangle Wire, right? So I think Tiny Robots True. is both good at abusing this and good at preventing your opponent from abusing Taking it. Taking advantage of it. Plenty of decks can do one, but not the other, right? Like, I think Ravager Shops is good at preventing it's... your opponent from emptying their hand, but it's not good at emptying its own hand. Yeah, it's especially now that you have Thought Not Seer in the mix. There's those hands yeah. where you can't play Thought Not Seer because you don't have the... You have Shops, but not the colors. Right, mana. you have to wait a turn or two, and that's just not synergistic here. Yeah. But there's no two there's no two ways about it. This card does basically nothing to turn you play it. No, and you get another you get your another land drop. Get, you get another land drop, but your opponent gets the first chance to try and empty their hand and draw three cards. Yeah, you wouldn't play it if they could though. Right? If your opponent has no cards in hand, you're not gonna play this. <laughs> unless if you're I, unless yeah. I mean Yeah. You're within, not gonna play reason, it. If, not gonna play if, it if, if both players' hands are empty, then you play. might <laughs> Yeah, right. If both players' hands are empty, you might still play it. But the simple truth is is that against tiny robots, your, your opponent's not gonna be empty handed. That's just that's gonna be rare. So so you play this, let's say you go turn one workshop mocks and you play this, right? Well no, you wouldn't. You would play anything yeah, other than this on the, the first turn. you play first, then you'd play something else, and then you play this. Well, hold on, so, hold on, slow down. If you've got Ancient Tomb and Thorn still in your hand, then you then do you make that play. play. Yeah. You go Workshop Mox this. That's where I was resolve. originally going with this. Yeah, <laughs> Ancient Tomb, Thorn, go. You would make that play. Or Ancient Tomb, Ravager, go, maybe. That's a very plausible. That that's a very plausible oh, hand, though. Oh, and don't forget deck. that with Ravager, you can just turn this off for your opponent if it's going to trigger. There you go. Now you're getting better. So, yeah. so you, you so you can be more yeah, aggressive than this, this than you would, I mean, in theory, otherwise, if you're a Ravager deck, which you're almost certainly going to be, because you can just sack it. This looks more and more like a let me draw three cards, then I'll eat it type thing, which is not doesn't sound that great actually. It definitely no, it definitely it, goes. No, up. no, think about it though. It doesn't. It wouldn't play out that way in practice, right? You you play turn one Ravager go. Turn two, you play this, another land, maybe you've got another creature. Maybe you've got a clamp or something, right? Turn three, you empty your hand. You've got this and a thorn and a ravager and a revoker or whatever. And your opponent's still got two or three cards in hand. They might be able to deal with your creatures, but then you draw three cards. If you can deploy those three cards, yeah, you just leave this in play. Because, yeah, right, because in theory, the more cards you're deploying, the harder it is for them to empty their hand because you're deploying Wastelands and, and Thorns and Revokers. And the closer and they get, the more likely you just be to throw this on the the Ravager. Right. And, Boy, it'd be really... and it also it, it, it incentivizes your opponent to focus on your Ravager, which is good for you. I'm not really familiar with the tiny robots deck. Can you just like rattle off a list for that? <laughs> yeah, I can. Okay. Well, the the mainstay tiny robots player in my area is Dwayne Haddix, and he has he has three consecutive top eights on TC decks from earlier this year and late last year. And that list looks like three Ravagers. At the time, it was four Lodestones, although it doesn't have that anymore. Four Memnites, four Revokers, four Signal Pest. There's your, your weenie creatures. And then Artifact Accelerants, all of them. Cranial Plating times one. Trinisphere times one. Then three Thorns, four Genesis Chamber, four Skull Clamp, four Tangle Wire. So this is a Genesis Chamber, weenie aggro deck, 
So, you know, a typical first turn would be Ancient Tomb, Genesis Chamber, Memnite, get a, get a creature, go. Or Ancient Tomb, Genesis Chamber, Mox, Signal, Pest, Memnite, have two tokens, go. I mean, that's a, that's a typical first turn off of three mana. They would end up with four creatures in play. And then there's the disruptive elements of Thorn of Amethyst and Tanglewire plus Lodestone to back it up. More recent lists could fact, you know, include things like Hangerback Walker, possibly additional spheres. No, Kevin, I think this deck is tailor-made for this kind of effect. Uh, it, it deploys all its things very quickly. It has plenty of ways. It doesn't have an overwhelming amount of land. So you know, <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> uh, I could easily see that you you hitting... What's it called when you have an empty hand? There's a keyword. Hellbent. Hellbent pretty, yeah. pretty quickly. Um, no, no good spot. Now the question is, so so this deck had four golem. Now you'd have three. This is the kind of the top of the curve for this kind of deck. Definitely, right? yeah. The decks that the the, the versions now that don't have <laughs> has, access to four golem. He has a brass man on the sideboard. <laughs> yeah, uh, there have been versions that had metal workers and were bigger, but I wouldn't really call that tiny robots exactly. The ones since the golem restriction have been just continue to be lower to the ground with hangerback walkers. Either way, though, this deck is not a, a consistent performer in the metagame. I mean, la- the time that it did put up some decent results in paper was around the beginning of the year. Since then, there have been some other variants, but I mean, that's when Eldrazi kind of really kicked in and people weren't seeking out a signal pest deck to play in, into the Eldrazi. And it's, there's no denying the fact that a Genesis Chamber deck got a lot weaker when Eldrazi burst onto the scene. So it it might mean that you have to straddle the line a little bit more between being a Genesis Chamber deck and being a Ravager Shops deck. Hmm. But I still think you can make a case for being lower to the ground than the Thought Not C or Triskelion decks and being able to reliably execute on the Aurarian. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, if Arthur Tindemans is still... Uh accumulating his list of playables for mud like he did in 2002. Giripur <laughs> 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 Arari uh, is, is, must be added to the list. And, and I think it should probably add it a bit to any reasonable list of workshop considerables, but it's going to be mm-hmm. very marginal. And uh, yeah. and uh, I don't think it goes into a, a typical workshop deck. I certainly don't think it's better than, say, Staff of Men uh, or I don't know what what else is probably out there in terms of a card drawing uh, effect. Coercive portal. Yeah, coercive portal. I don't think it's going to displace either one of those cards, but it, just because of the various reasons we've already gone over, the symmetry, the the potential drawback, etc. But I I do like uh I do like it, and I think uh, any card that becomes you know consideration is a good thing for vintage. Um, yeah, that's that's where I come down. I I like the a lot in tiny robots. Is tiny robots a, a viable archetype now these days in the in the era of um... Like I said, I it lost a lot of power because it's a Genesis trying to be a Genesis chamber deck in the world of the Eldrazi and that's a yeah. strategically bad place to be. So, I think the deck needs to adapt if it's going to be positioned well in this metagame. We just answered yep. the question. <laughs> so, I'm not very confident. Interesting card. Yeah, I'm not very confident. I'm going to go with zero. Well, yeah, co- confidence, you can have low confidence and still, you know, <laughs> you know you know what I'm getting at here. You, I do. So 
I'm going to go with zero as well, but uh, I think it's just because of the metagame positioning. And who knows, there could be a few people who are closer to the Ravager Thought Not Seer deck right now who are very excited about the notion of drawing three cards a turn. Oh, and we really shouldn't pass this card up without pointing out its synergy with uh, Ubermask. So Ubermask oh deck <laughs> yeah. would, really, would really enjoy this effect. Ah, uh, that good good point. Yeah. Now Ubastax is is even less popular than Tiny Robots, but it has put up a couple of top eights in looks like two in May. So it's been since May in paper that Ubastax put up some results that we know of, but it's always kind of on the on the fringe. It's always kind yeah. of certain players like it and will bring it to their own events, and who knows, they could spike an event with this. So I would not be surprised to see this next to Uba Mask in a top eight, but I also don't expect that to become any kind of standard. Agreed. Right. Cool card. Good. That was a good one. Next up is Inventor's Fair, Legendary Land. At the beginning of your upkeep, if you control three or more artifacts, you gain one life. Tap to add brackets to your mana pool for generic mana and tap sacrifice inventors fair search your library for an artifact card reveal it put it into your hand then shuffle your library activate this ability only if you control three or more artifacts where to begin <laughs> <laughs> so we've got we've got three abilities here and i do think we should address them each mm-hmm. you, you know individually and then talk about the sum the first ability to gain life is clearly pretty nominal one life per turn is in any deck in vintage right now going to be a, a speed bump at best? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's. I think that probably the better meta, better metaphor is probably just like roadkill, not even. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're yeah, you're barely going to notice it. <clears throat> also, this this land incentivizes leaving the battlefield eventually. So, I mean, you might gain two to four life off of it. You might gain right. zero, <laughs> but uh, that that's it is what it is. The second ability is simply producing colorless mana. It, I, and you also don't just gain life by having it in play. You gain life if you control three or more oh, artifacts. That's that's a good point. It's conditional weak life gain, yeah. <laughs> uh, taps for colorless mana, which is you know to be expected from a playable land in this format, in this day and age. Uh, which, but the fact that it taps for colorless mana that is not restricted by anything, like it's not workshop mana, it doesn't give you pain, means this is, it only taps for one, means this is kind of a middle-of-the-road land that you're really only yeah. playing for its last ability, and exactly. you are you are sacrificing, <laughs> from an opportunity cost standpoint, a more powerful, potentially, mana producer, like an Eldrazi Temple or something similar, or Mishra's Factory, for example. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's true. So, so what do we make of four colorless mana and sacrifice to tutor for an artifact? Well, tutoring for an artifact is the effects that, that can do that unconditionally and put it into your hand is basically a fabricate, right? I mean, the, yes. the, the, the tinker type effects that are in the format right now, I think are limited to, let's see, tinker itself, mm-hmm. uh, certainly Koldotha Forge Master which requires you to tap the Forge Master and sacrifice at least two other artifacts, but three artifacts in total. Um, yep, and Transmute. A, tra- Transmute Artifact is a, is a variant of that. Then, mm-hmm. then is there anything else in the format that allows you to tutor for artifacts that sees play in, in that vein? I mean, certainly there's the Enlightened Tutor and the, the, the Broad-based tutors like Vamp and Demonic. Um, mm. but not, that, not that it performs the Tinker action, but... Uh, 
uh, yeah, the broad-based tutors. So, so, but we're talking specifically not about Tinker effects because part of the, yeah. I mean, the better part of Tinker is actually cheating the mana. It's not, the mana savings. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the yeah. tremendous difference between paying three mana and paying twelve or whatever yeah. the Blightsteel costs these days. I forget. It's twelve or thirteen or eleven. <laughs> I can never remember the exact. <laughs> yeah, Blightsteel's eleven. Eleven. Okay. So wait, hold on. Now you got. Now you got I me. I think Blightsteel's twelve. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we should have never even. We never even bother. <laughs> <laughs> it illustrates the point, though, right? Blight, I, okay, Blightsteel costs 12 and is 11-11. There you go. Like, okay. So, <laughs> so the real effect that you're getting here is Fabricate, yeah. right? Which is putting the artifact in your hand. Um, you and know, we should note that Fabricate is not a playable vintage card. Well, well at least it doesn't see play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong, but I think you're on safer ground saying... <laughs> it does not see play. You are correct. Yeah. So, but this is uncounterable. Yeah, it's uncounterable. If you, the, the places this would see play are potentially varied, but most obviously in a workshop. Um, yeah. So, starting there, the competition. I mean, there are a handful of these. Let's put them like one of or singleton lands that you would play in a workshop deck that begin yes. with kind of like uh, I'm not bazooka bog, but um, what's the one that uh, that you get artifacts from the graveyard if you... Buried mana, Ruin. Buried Ruin. Yeah. yeah. And I think in the last couple of sets, we reviewed a couple of animals. Which is likely the biggest competition. That's... Wasn't there one that we reviewed in the last yeah. couple of sets that didn't see play, but is of that kind of class? It, it, we said it would compete with uh, Buried Ruin. I, are you referring to Seagate Wreckage? I believe so. Remind me what that does. Seagate Wreckage is taps for colorless, and a two mana and tap, draw a card, activates its ability only if you have no cards in your hand. Well, I think and we, we discussed were, that in a very similar context. Yeah, I, I'm. That may be the card I'm thinking of. I think there may be another land like this, but it's okay. Well, uh, for returning something, or I mean, tutoring for something. No, just something that we would think would compete with. You know, so if, if workshop deck, a typical workshop deck is going to begin with, you know, four ancient tomb, four workshop, you know, academy, four wasteland, script mine. Then what do you add after that? And you know, you might be remembering Drownyard Temple. That sounds which more is the, accurate, yeah. Which is the one that you pay three mana and it comes from your graveyard back into play. We, we've also talked about that in a similar context. Well, there's a long list of these kinds of effects <laughs> that you could throw in, right? That, I mean, yes. they, they all compete with cards like Mishra's Factory or in the Eldrazi context. They compete with the Eldrazi Temple and the, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the other... What's the other Eldrazi land? Its name escapes me at the second. Uh, the Eye of Ugin? Yeah, the Eye of Ugin. Yeah. So, you know, there is a... There's a lot of competition for those slots, and unless you have a very specific way to get, you know, those lands like more reliably, like with, uh, you know, there's some stacks variants out of the NYSC tradition that have sometimes run uh, expedition map for reliability, right. and and they've it's not just you know a lark, it's they also want to be able to, or crucible recursion with strip mine, they also yeah. want to be able to find things like tabernacle of the pendrel veil, yeah, know? or maybe dark depths or dark depths combo, right? So you know, but I think the most common card of this ilk that comes to mind, I think the closest comparison is probably Buried Ruin. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. I think Buried of Ruin all is the not, competition, is not legendary. Is close, no, it's not. This is closest in, in form and function to Buried Ruin. And Buried Ruin has seen some success, right? I mean, it was oh, it was yeah. in Hiromichi's uh, top eight deck from Champs last year. And it was in Blaine Blaine's deck from Blaine Christensen's deck a couple of years before that. Is is a multiple, right? Yeah. So it's had its day. It's just the Eldrazi really have pushed out so much utility from these mana bases. Yeah. Now Tribal 
Eldrazi has a fair bit of utility lands in it, right? You're talking about your Urborgs and your Ayavugan, as you mentioned. But regular, guys, yeah, go ahead. Regular Ravager shops just has been has been tuned to a fine point, <laughs> right? There's been no variation in those mana bases for the last several months. That's true. That's true. It has been. It's it because the the Ravager the Ravager Thought Not Seer shops deck has this fundamental tension between being able to accelerate out our artifacts and also reliably accelerate out uh, Eldrazi. And so yeah. if you're going to run lands, you really need Eldrazi Temple. Uh, yeah. And you know, so that's totally understandable. Um, yeah, so see- that would put... So the opportunity cost of including one of these over over one Eldrazi Temple is going to be a measured impact on the castability of Thought Not Seer. Right. And on top of that, <laughs> ironically, this land costs the same as Thought Not Seer to activate effectively. Well, not literally, but effectively in those mana bases. That's true. And so You can't use shops to activate it. And Barry yeah, Bruin's and activation is only two. Is only two, right, which so is far easier. Far easier. And also Eldrazi Temple doesn't contribute to the activation of this land's final ability, so there's kind of a doubling up of impact. Yeah, I think you've I think you've hit upon the critical question, which is opportunity cost here. Yeah. Um you know what's what's interesting is that it's not just buried ruin. There's a bunch of lands that that workshop decks would like to run if they have an additional slot. Like mm-hmm. you know, there's Ghost Quarter, which is good in a lot number of matchups. There's also cards like Caracas, which just have yeah. a lot of a lot of you know value. Um, and then there's also a, a land that has seen play in that kind of slot is Homeward Path from time to time because of the the effectiveness it has against Dak Faden, right? Yeah, that was a big uptick last summer as anti-DAC technology, which was which was pretty, I guess I would say, justified at the time because DAC was just taking over the metagame. Since then, or I guess as a as a postlude to that kind of environment, hmm. modern uh, thought not seer shops now are just increasingly resistant to DAC because all their creatures fight DAC in some active way, and so the homeward path has fallen out of favor. No, yeah, it's true. It's it's true. I mean, like Thought Not Seer itself is an answer to Dak, and indirectly, yes. basically every creature that's played is, with the exception of Hangerback Walker, which is the one creature that gets cut right when you're looking right. for more utility. But between Ravager, Revoker, Trike, and Thought Not Seer, all of those are resistant to Dak in one way or another. Well, the point of this discussion is that there's a lot of competition for any superfluous yes. slots, and in existing workshop decks. There really isn't a lot of room for any superfluous slots. So. And I'd like to put another axis on this, too, and that is all those existing workshop decks don't have silver bullets. They're built to be very homogenous by design, and for good reason. The days of workshop decks with a single Sundering Titan and that kind of thing went away when Forge Master stopped seeing play, basically. So this deck, if Forge Master was still the de facto workshop deck, if we were a year or a year and a half ago then I think you and I would be more attracted to this land a little bit because it would be more synergistic with how the deck was constructed also. Most Ravager Thought Not Seer decks aren't going to be excited to pay four mana, effectively five mana, because you've got to sack this land too, to just search out another trike. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's like, what are you really getting from this? Your deck is so homogenous. What do you, what's the value, right? Yeah. What's the value proposition? It's, it's not worth five mana and a card to just go get the next thing. It, granted, it could be situationally a great card, but it's still just something you've got three or four of in your deck. I think that's right. I think that's right. So, um, you know, if you're if you have a deck that has a it's more 
heterogeneous that's heterogeneous that's more like a, a Koldotha deck then the value proposition goes up but yes but I don't I don't know if this would justify a slot in uh, in a Thodnotseer or shop deck right now I would be skeptical. it's also yeah I agree it's also worth noting that the singletons that a Koldotha Forge Master deck tended to get were the super high cost cards because you were cheating them into play with the Forge Master you know your Sundering Titans and your other you know, worm coils, other things that were five and six and seven mana. This card's not good at doing that. <laughs> you're going, you're reducing your mana production by one and taking a turn off, which makes it that, that much harder to cast something that can't costs five, six, or seven. It seems to me that the 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 real tactical, not tactical, the real strategic home for this card is in a deck that has silver bullet artifacts that it's planning to cast in certain matchups. This card is good at getting graph diggers cage or engineered explosives or null rod right true and there's kind of there, there aren't very many decks in the format right now that are do, doing that that also happen right. to reliably have access to the four mana plus one plus this like your you know your young pyromancer and delver style decks those will play null rods every once in a while those will have graph diggers cage in the board those decks can't afford to pay this mana to have this effect <laughs> And something like, you know, maybe uh, Salvagers, Bomberman, for example. Now, there's a deck that does want to go get a Singleton Artifact and might have the mana to play an effect like this. But at the same time, that's still a steep cost. No, it is. (laughs) It's a very steep cost. You also basically have to put it into your your mana base is is another land. And those decks already run a lot of colorless lands, or they run Cavern of Souls. Right. you know, so yeah. So there's opportunity cost all around, no matter what. Yeah, and this is a terrible draw. I mean, this is down. This is a downright terrible draw. So there's. I feel like there's just no deck that is the right intersection of affording the slot in the mana base, having access to the four colorless mana and the time, plus wanting the the silver bullet artifact. And it certainly doesn't help. You've alluded to it, but it certainly doesn't help that Time Vault is kind of at its extremist. You know, its lowest. Uh, you know, ebb uh, right now. Yeah, yeah agreed. It's, it's pretty absent from the vintage metagame right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, remarkably I, so. Yeah, yeah, we have covered the reasons why that is in other shows many times. But um, yeah, I agree completely. I I don't feel like we need to belabor this one any further. I, I don't think there's a home for it. Yeah, I can't I can't see it either. I I think it's probably something that should be just borne in mind as a fringe card, but. Mm-hmm. You know the conditions for using it are pretty hefty, and it doesn't, like you said, doesn't cheat mana into play, and fabricate doesn't really see play. So, um, I would say if you're the sort of deck that's going to play something like Miko Koro, or or you know, as we reviewed recently, Gyre Reach Sanitarium. Oh, remind, gonna, me what, remind me what Gyre Reach is. Is that the yeah? That's the Miko Koro analog. It's yeah. the draw discard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're the sort of deck or player who really likes singleton lands like that. And maybe you're playing Grixis that has Key Vault in it. You're not going to lose a whole bunch of games because you put this land in your deck. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not going to be great. You know, some late game every once in a while, you're going to have Key in play and you're going to draw this. And you're going to hey, say, hey, it's an uncounterable tutor of a sort. But I don't know. I it, I don't think this is even as good as Miko Koro in decks designed to abuse Miko Koro. And those are rare. <laughs> yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. So I, I'm going to predict that this will see no vintage play in the next semester. Yeah, I'm going to go with zero as well. Well, well more specifically, that it's not going to appear in a top eight. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Of course. I'm excited to talk about Sky Sovereign console flagship for five colorless legendary artifact vehicle flying when Sky Sovereign console flagship enters the battlefield or attacks. It deals three damage to target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls. Crew three, six, five. Steve, I just have to go back and reiterate how much I enjoy evaluating these very simple and straightforward <laughs> cards that they produce these days. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just refreshing, really. This card is, this card is crazy. It's, it's, it, it's enigmatic. It's exciting, it's splashy, it's powerful, it's tricky, it's deceptive even. Um, a, a full disclosure, I have, I've played some games with this card already, so I feel like I have a better perspective than I would on several of our if, you know, first-time cards or cards we'll never play. <clears throat> this card is positioned, in my opinion, very well in the metagame. And by that I mean, if you're playing a workshop aggro style deck which standard workshop decks are aggro decks mostly these days you already have the requisite creatures to crew this in my estimation now you could make the case that you might need more or different but let's just take it as a given that you already have some requisite creatures but this card is very impactful on critical interactions in the metagame vis-a-vis your opponent's planeswalkers and creatures it's good when you even if you can't immediately crew it, it's still good. So that's, uh, that's a, I think, an important feature for a vehicle. It fits well into a workshop curve if you sacrifice a little bit of your mid-range to, upper, to a higher range. I spoke earlier about shaving hangerback walkers from workshops. I think you could fit one or two of these into a, a Ravager uh, Thought Not Seer type shell by shaving a hangerback and maybe a trike or something similar. And I find in practice that this card is just very potent, very threatening, right? Hmm. If you're playing a deck like, I don't know, let's say Gr- uh, Grixis Pyromancer kind of deck, and this comes into play and kills your Pyromancer that was in play, you might think, oh, boy, that stinks. But they did just kind of pay, they did just kind of just cast, uh, you know, Shriek Maw on my young Pyromancer. I, I can deal with that. But then you realize, oh, wait a second, that Ravager that they've got in play that's the only creature, because I bolted another one or something. That Ravager is only a 1-1. One, one. But if they eat two Moxin, make Ravager a 3-3, three, three, crew this ship, it's going to kill my next creature and hit me for six a turn? That becomes a problem very fast. And also, it's worth noting that one of the ways that people are dealing with workshops right. in the modern vintage environment is with opposing creatures. Creatures are at their, you know, their a really upswing, a really high point. There are more creatures in vintage decks now than there ever have been before. And that makes this ability, or this repeatable shotgun kind of ability, so relevant in multiple, multiple matchups. Now, I said a lot. What's your assessment? Well, that was an excellent soliloquy. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I think the, what I want to focus on is that the shotgun bolt action triggers two different ways. You know, both when it comes into play, but also when, it, as you said, when it attacks. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a repeatable action. Uh, it, it's just in terms of sequencing. That's first. Just in terms of sequencing, I think you're quite right. I think that there are a number of games in the current format where workshops gum up the game. They gum up the works. They make it difficult to play things. And what the gush player is trying to do is to resolve its threat, whether it's a mm-hmm. three mana threat or a two mana threat. They're just trying. To, they're just trying to get their creature into play, and then yeah. they pray that you don't have a trike. 
know, (laughs) because they can't really pump it, right? It's hard to pump a mentor when you spend all your resources to get into play. This thing can come down, you know, think of all the games that I can think of them where, like, Trike is, I'm just one man away from playing Trike, right? Yeah. Well, this thing just comes down and nails Mentor or nails the Pyromancer, and then not only does it nail it, but then it clears a path straight to victory. So, whereas Trike, you have to unload some of its power unless you just combo out with Ravager and Hangerback Walker, this yeah. card kind of just it reloads the shotgun every turn. And that's really insane. So so just just playing the scenario out that I just described, suppose you shotgun the, the Pyromancer or the Mentor. Next turn they can play another, but there's a good chance that you can crew this, swing this thing in, and then it before the dam before um, players can even declare blockers, uh, the creature is, is shotgunned. So yeah, it, if it works extraordinarily well in combat, yes. um, and I think that's that's critical. So you know, if your opponent has say mentor and a token, you can shotgun the mentor, and even if they can pump it once and generate another token, they're going to have to block a six five with one of their tokens. So yeah, except tokens don't block this. Yeah, <laughs> well, on top is, of all of that, oh, because this it, thing flies. Flies. Yeah, it flies. Yeah, So you shoot one, so one of their creatures, and then you're doming this. them for six. Right. This thing is amazing at taking care of planeswalkers. The evasion, you can, yeah. Well, the and the shotgun. evasion and the ability, right? I mean, how often does Jace have more than three loyalty? Yeah. How often does Dak have more than th- than three loyalty? You you can't target a player with this, but what you're basically saying is, whenever this attacks, it deals nine damage. That's really <laughs> that's, that's functionally that's, what you're right. Yeah, kind of. And I don't feel like you, I mean, you said you can't target a player, which is literally correct. But I believe that six flying damage is pretty potent. Yeah. I mean, this is actually the biggest creature in those decks, or would be. You know, uh, buffed uh, Ravagers notwithstanding, 6-5 is is large by today's well, standards. Well, there's not a lot of artifacts, frankly, in in vintage card. I don't think there's really that many in the entire card that can shotgun when it comes to the lightning bolt when it comes into play. I mean, there really aren't. I mean, there's Triskelly. No. And then yeah. there's cards that can remove tarp permanents, like Duplicant. But you don't get... I mean... Damage, damage, or I mean, serrated arrows is a kind of removal, but that can only parcel yeah. out minus one, minus one tokens one at a time, you know? Yeah. So, you know, there's probably things like Ale Pile back in the day that you could, you know, there's certainly Pirate Spell Bombs, <laughs> but but there's not a lot where just there's no activation, just comes into play, deals damage. I mean, I don't know exactly what's in the card pool, but I don't think there's many. There's, there, there aren't many, you're right, and there's nothing that provides this level of efficiency. Right. This overall and, level of and lingering power too. Yeah, recursive capacity. Usually those yeah. things are like one shot, or they have yeah. pay, heavy activation costs or colored activation costs. So this mm-hmm. card is all around unique. I think I think the thing that is most that elusive about understanding how powerful this is, at least you know, for someone for folks who aren't that have not experienced this set in play, but will ultimately come to realize and appreciate. Is how easy it is to activate the crew. It's it, you don't need three creatures. You don't. All you need is three power, <laughs> right? That's that's the craziest yeah. part about it. Is that if yeah. it, crew, it, you know, the the theme, the metaphor of a crewing a ship, crew three would seem to suggest that you need three creatures to man the ship. But <laughs> but, but that's totally misleading here as a thematic inference into actually yeah. how the, this works mechanically. It, it, one ravager, as you said, with two moxen sitting on it uh, are, are more than sufficient. Or, put in other terms, a 1-1 hangerback and a 2-1 re- uh, revoker are more than sufficient. Or, or hell, even a Mishra's factory pumped once is more than sufficient. Yep. 
It's true. <laughs> so uh, this is this is I think remarkably easy to activate. But the value, part of the whole value, when it comes into play, it shotguns something which is quite valuable right now. And then also, this is interesting. I think you know you can play this, for example, when your opponent has an oath in play. You know, yeah. you can shotgun say their <clears throat> Dak Faden. This comes into play, shotgun the Dak Faden, and then just attack every turn with factory to act, crew it, and they'll never be able to activate oath. So, you would need two factories for that to work. Two factories, yes. of course. But yeah. yeah. Or, or if they have a, they give you one token. <laughs> oh yeah, you know that's funny. Is that this is another way of punishing oath players for giving you spirit tokens? Yeah. This is really, this is really, really sick. Um, it's legendary, <laughs> so that's a drawback. I don't know how many you play, but yeah. And I think because of the crew mechanic, that this is, it's already self-limiting already. Uh, it's legendary, which means you, you're not going to put two of them into play, which would be really spicy. You know, play a second one and crew the first one. I mean, ugh, that would be frightening. But the, the simple fact that the crew is self-limiting anyway, this is not a four-of kind of card. Um, but I think you can make a case for anywhere between one and three, depending on deck construction. Worth noting that Ravager lets you help circumvent the legendary aspect if need be. So you can play one and sack it to a Ravager and play another one. What would you cut in a Ravager deck to play this, in the in the Thought Not See Ravager deck? Yeah, as I already alluded to, I would cut Hangerback, some number of Hangerback and Trike. And if you're yeah. the sort of list who has other other high-end creatures like a um, worm coil or karn or something those i would consider yeah i would consider cutting one of those for this as well and as you've rightly concluded it's not a four of so i think the proper starting point for this is probably two yep and if you find that it's just amazing you might go up to three this card is amazing <laughs> it beats i both. think it's a natural fit yeah, me too. I'm mean, just in terms of I, sequencing, efficiency, yeah. versatility, overall utility, uh, what we're dealing with in the format. This is crazy good. I've seen some people that compare this very negatively to Trike. They they believe that Trike is just far superior, and I acknowledge that Trike is is superior in certain contexts. It is superior at uh, ending a game immediately when your opponent is at sufficiently low life, plus you've got Ravager, right? That's something that Sky Sovereign won't ever really do. Sure. Strike has, you know, virtual haste of a sort when you've got them with low life and but you have Ravager. Yeah, true. So that's relevant. Uh, but Trike, but in the situations prior to that, Trike can't compete with this in terms of damage output, right? That's true. Yeah. Trike does three damage and when this it comes is, into play. And this is more and, efficient. It costs oh, one yeah. less. <laughs> yeah, Trike does three damage when it comes into play and then one damage thereafter if you take that path. that's That pales in comparison to this. Pales. Trike can do four damage the next turn plus another three, so it, it could do a total of seven damage the next turn if you're diligent about it. By that point, Sky Sovereign has done 12 damage if you crewed it. <laughs> you know, it's just there's no contest in terms of pure output. Now, granted, all yeah. that damage is not going to your opponents, but how many times have you had to sack your trike counters just to clear the way for Ravagers and and Revokers to continue dealing damage? So let's talk seriously, because trike, uh, I do think, is possibly the best comparison in terms of currently played yeah, functionality I cards. I agree, yeah. Yeah. And looking at the, as we've done for so many other cards and, and me, you know, methodologies, looking back to mid-June, approximately three months from today, Trike has made, in paper, has made oh, looks like 20, 20 to 21 top eights. That's just going Sounds back to right. mid-June. Yeah. yeah. So it's, a, you know, it's about a 20. It's a, a very, very popular format staple kind of card. <clears throat> 
I think that uh, I'm loath to suggest that this will be played in every deck. I think it's an obvious choice. Not everyone agrees with me. So there will be just general adoption slowness, of course. I also think that some people might be resistant to playing this card because I think it does require a little bit of alternate deck construction approach. You've alluded to it, and I think we haven't said it explicitly, but this card plays very well with Mishra's Factory, and such that I think you need to have factories in order for a Sky Sovereign deck to be successful. Really? Well, that um, that factory, I haven't seen a deck with factories. I don't think I've seen a deck with factories in Eldrazi Temple. So yet, <laughs> that means cutting Thought Nonsier, right? Uh, that, in, theoretically, it could. I, I don't think that's absolutely true. I mean, flat out, I, I think you can still play Thought Nonsier without temples. Uh-huh. But it may, but that's what I'm talking about. So I think you want some factories, which implies a reduction in Thought Not Seers, maybe not yeah. an elimination, but a reduction. And then it's tricky to find a good replacement for Thought Not Seer because the format has become so centered around it for those decks. But it's not impossible, right? In fact, uh, workshop decks were quite good without Thought Not Seer for years. So I think people will be resistant because it does suggest multiple cascading kind of deck construction changes based on the current du jour. Eldrazi temple kind of lists, and that's no that's no small thing. No. I, I I still think this is can be a, a staple card for workshops, but that that's no small thing. So it doesn't go in every possible build. So those things all being said, I think that this card might go in let's say thirty to fifty percent of those trike decks that are making top eights. I think that's a reasonable estimate, which would suggest that this is something like a five to ten kind of card. Hmm. I think it's a very accurate prediction. I don't think this goes in any other deck, incidentally. While Eldrazi has sufficient creatures to crew it readily, uh, it's just five mana is a little bit high for a non-Eldrazi card in those decks. It's not out of the question, right? Right. You've got ancient tombs, and and you're going to get there. And you can spend the first two to three to four turns even playing smaller, different Eldrazi. So it's not impossible that this could go into a Jake Eldrazi kind of deck. It's just not natural home. It would still be quite potent in those decks, and those decks play Endbringer, but Endbringers usually end up getting fueled out by three lands in those decks, <laughs> thanks to Temples and Eyes and, and Ancient Tombs. This this card can be cast off of two lands in Workshop decks, but not so much in Eldrazi decks. Here's another way to look at it. If if folks out there listening are skeptical, you know, think about how good how good Trike is. Instead of instead of thinking of in in the Workshop Ravager deck, instead of thinking about you know, cutting trikes. Imagine if you could play more than four trikes, would you? You know, like Montolio's out there. I, I think this this could easily be viewed as like trike five or six, or in some you know similar analogous fashion. Well, and maybe that's how people find room for them. Maybe that they're cutting thought not seers. You turn temples into factories. You cut thought not seers for some combination of of sky ships and then some cheaper creatures. And you get factory back. That'd be very yeah. interesting to test. Yeah. Yeah. Really good card. Yeah, I, so I th- I think this is card is a going to be a mainstay. I think it's here to stay. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's not playable, gonna, and I agree with you. I think it's a I think it's going to go right into some workshop decks. It so. will not be as ubiquitous as Trike is currently. Right. But it's still going to be popular. I think. I'm going to go with. Uh, boy, I don't want to overpredict this one because I just know that plenty of workshop players are going to look at it and dismiss it. I'm going to go with eight. Interesting. I thought you had just sketched out a range that was slightly above that. Yeah, I did. I mean, I'm going to take the over. I think it's. I think this it's, card I, is really I think good. I said five to ten, didn't I? Yeah, I said thirty. It's thirty okay. to fifty percent of My the bad. twenty or so appearances of Trike 
So that 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 estimates five to ten in I'm my gonna, eyes. Uh, I'm gonna go. Um, I'm gonna take the upper end. I'm gonna say ten. Okay, that's reasonable. I would go so far as to say I think that this card is gonna be in the top eight of champs this year. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I know that's not the that's not the kind of prediction we normally make in a set review, but yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm not gonna say that for very many other cards. <laughs> I think that this card w- there will be at least one copy in the top eight of champs. Old predictions. Mm-hmm. You could get them here. <laughs> that's right. I'm gonna put an asterisk by my eight. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, what a great card! I'm really excited to see it, and 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 a novel design concept, a cool design approach. It's, I mean, it's a mythic rare vehicle in the first release of vehicles, so they clearly pushed their mythic vehicle and wanted it to be attractive to players. And they, in my opinion, they definitely succeeded. Oh, plus, I mean, you get to make all the ship jokes. That's the best part, yeah. Kevin. Right? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the mind fairly boggles. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's move on. Let's move on to Chandra, Torch of Defiance. For 2RR... Planeswalker Chandra. I'm going to do something I haven't done normally and talk about the starting loyalty first, which is four. I think it gives more relevance to the pluses and minuses. So starting loyalty of four. Plus one, exile the top card of your library. You may cast that card. If you don't, Chandra, Torch of Defiance, deals two damage to each opponent. Plus one, add RR to your mana pool. Minus three, Chandra, Torch of Defiance, deals four damage to target creature. Minus seven, you get an emblem with, whenever you cast a spell, this emblem deals five damage to target creature or player. So, we have another legit four-ability Planeswalker, and we joked about how Kaya effectively has four abilities, but but this one is literally so. And she's no joke. Those abilities are all pretty relevant, in my opinion. Uh, I think we're going to have to talk about mana cost a lot, <laughs> if we, if we want to be thorough about this card, because in my estimation, it is the single biggest hurdle to her playability. But do you want to talk man of cost first, or do you want to talk abilities? Um, let's focus. I'll tell you what. We since we've got criticism about efficiency, let's talk about the abilities and then let's weigh them against the mana cost, just to keep it Fair discreet. Enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So let's just go by one by one. The first plus ability: exile the top card of your library. You may cast it. If you don't, she does two damage to your opponent. So that's a simple, basic, red version of card draw, right? Which we've seen on a number of cards in recent memory. Really? I, I don't recall them, but I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole exile the top card, you can play it thing. That's, you know, Prophetic Flame Speaker and prior versions of Chandra. It's become kind of the go-to red draw ability. I believe you. I just am not cued into that ability, I guess, or don't encode it once I see it. Well, fair enough. And But we've talked about it in... in, in a number of contexts over the years and we always kind of come down to a similar point which is this ability punishes you for playing counter magic but rewards you for playing cheap proactive cards so creatures or things like lightning bolts you know removal that can be proactive in multiple contexts and in mana sources right i mean it's it's fine to reveal a mox to this it, it's worth noting that it says you may cast that card and so if it's a land you you cannot cast it it doesn't say you may play that card Interesting. And, and you do still pay its mana cost also. So this rewards you for having cheap, proactive cards. But it's also worth noting that this so wait, is not... So wait, hold on a second. So if, you, if, if it's a land and you play it... You, you, you cannot. You cannot, okay. Yes. It says you may cast yeah. that card, Got which it. precludes... Yeah. <clears throat> but you do get minor upside for not 
casting the card, you get two damage. So um, damage to an opponent is one of the... I mean, it's it's very rare in Vintage, right? We don't play cards that say they deal damage to the opponent unless they're part of some game-ending combo, right. usually. Right. <clears throat> so that's you wouldn't play this for that ability, but it's nice. You don't, you don't get stuck out in the cold if you flip a land. Her second ability is also a plus ability. So you're going to have a choice when you're trying to tick up her loyalty, which is quite nice. The notion that you would ever choose the red-red ability over the revealing a card ability, I think comes down entirely to deck construction, in that you could have other cards in your deck that you just really need red-red to cast, even after you've resolved her. <laughs> you could have... <laughs> I, I'm jumping ahead to deck construction, but if you're in a blue moon, for example, you could have Consecrated Sphinx in your hand. So you get to four mana, and you play her... And then the next turn, you get two red mana out of her, and you play Consecrated Sphinx. That's a, a potential line. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of decks, though, aren't going to ever use her random mana production ability, because the first ability is card advantage, and, and as such, the default in many cases. But I still think it's nice to have. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a bummer that her own ability, which would be one of the greatest ways to get two red mana to cast her, is not available until after she's in play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the second one is the. I mean, they're all fairly clear. I mean, you can bolt. You can do more than bolt something immediately. Like that's yep. clearly useful. Like you play it, you kill a mentor. Good. You got yes. some value out of it. You played it, you killed. I don't know. Uh, uh, Thought, Thought not seer. Good. That you've gotten value out of it. The first. The first two abilities, though, I think are more questionable. I mean, there are a lot of decks where you would be very. Uh, you know, so so on the one hand, I guess I guess the way this would work is if it's a good card, you play it. If it's not, you, at least you get two damage out of it. So yeah. the problem is I'm not sure how strong either one of these abilities are. I mean, doing damage to your opponent isn't great, and you get unreliable use out of the first ability, right? I mean, it's like you, what yeah. you really want with the first ability is you really want it to be a card that you can play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you get the card advantage? But unless you have like a Sensei's Top or you know you just played Brainstorm or Ponder or Preordain. You, you, there's no real good, you know. There's no real excellent way to manipulate that. Um, well, you, you kind of you threw that out there as though that's unreasonable. It's not unreasonable. No, you just listed four of the most playable cards in the format in terms of no, fixing sure. draws. Sure, but it's but so, but it, it's not like you know, it's not a reliable thing. I guess I, I would I would argue that it, you're probably right, but it's more reliable if you build your deck correctly, right? As soon as you put Sensei's Divining Top in your deck, then it goes from you know, 50%, kind of a coin flippy kind of thing to very, very good. True. No, this is this is real value. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You get card advantage, you have removal, it can even generate mana in a corner case. It, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's not a lot you can do with red-red, but I'm sure you could use it for colorless purposes or combining yeah. it with something else. So this is, this is well, a real card. And it's worth noting that the red-red ability is still a plus ability too. Right. Like, I mean, you there could be scenarios where you've got top active... But there, none of the three cards on top will satisfy, you know, will be playable if you plus them. So you just get some mana and do something else. But, you know, no, now that I say that, that's a bad example because top feeds her top ability just out of necessity. You just tap the top to draw and then plus her oh, and cast the top. Yeah, top and her are good friends. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what's on top with her plus ability. You can always just get the top if you want. Which is kind of like adding a colorless activation to this ability just to put the card into your hand. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you could, many, many, many players would, right? I mean, that would be <laughs> be a great deal. So yeah. her and top are quite good. <clears throat> but, as we again, as I want to go back to, as we've said with this kind of draw ability in the past, this punishes you for being a reactive deck. Even if you have top in play, you still don't want a deck that's that's got 
10 counter spells in it and a whole bunch of lands like a deck like blue moon basically you don't you don't you don't get rewarded as much as you want to for this plus ability in a deck like that also red red is the color you don't want when you've got blood moon in play (laughs) 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 if you you want to produce blue blue in that situation (laughs) not red red that's funny there's something to be said for the notion that you could be playing in a red heavy deck such that she functions not so much as fixing, but allowing you to play more red spells per turn than you normally could. It's not unreasonable to think of a red heavy deck that has Ancient Tomb in it, right? So you go and you get two red duels. We could say they're Volcanic Islands for the sake of argument, because they likely would be. You get two Volks and an Ancient Tomb. You cast her. That's great. You plus her, and maybe you can cast a card, maybe you can't. But then in the next turn... Having access to red, red, blue, blue, two could be the difference in sequencing, you know, a certain line of play as opposed to just being stuck with red, red. It could allow you to play, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, young pyromancer and lightning bolt and still keep up flusterstorm, right? Yeah. So it's not, like, it's not a mana count issue, it's a mana quality, quality. issue. Yeah. It's now that's a weird deck I'm speculating, but you get the point. Yeah. I mean, so I think this brings into focus the question of how do we weigh the effects that she provides against the cost. Mm-hmm. You know, if she was too red, it would be not only overall less mana, but less intensive red requirement. She'd be far more playable. Oh, but, yes. But, but as it stands, as it stands, she, you know, part of the problem here is that really we have a small sample size in terms of the, the planeswalkers that are good enough to see play. And, like, mm-hmm. where that line is, like, we just don't really know where that line is. Like, Planeswalkers are a relatively new, you know, card type in Vintage. And, you know, for a long time, the ones that have seen play are been defined by Tezzeret, which has disappeared largely. You know, yep. even then Tezzeret 2.0. But but primarily, Jace the Mind Sculptor, Dak Faden. Um, we have new ones like Doretti and Kaya, but we don't really know yet. The jury is out as to where those guys will see play and people will see play or, or um, and in what quantities. So, I mean, certainly <laughs> yeah. J- Little Jace has seen a good deal of play, but I wouldn't say it's ubiquitous. It's, you know, um, it, it's popular where it's played, but it's not in every top eight, far from it. Um, so, sure. You're, and you're talking about Jace Rin's prodigy there, correct. right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Baby Jace. So, you know, we just, it's really hard to know. I mean, what what the what the line is the dividing line between a playable and unplayable planeswalker and vintage i mean just just to reiterate this every single planeswalker they currently see play in vintage right now that is before we really assessed already i believe mm-hmm. they're just about all blue is there one that's white that sees play there may be a white one but um no they're they're basically all blue yeah i mean i we can count on one hand the planeswalkers that, that actively see play right you already said dak Two Jaces, two Tezzerets, and that's that's a reach for the two Tezzerets, right? Yeah. The second uh, Tezzeret rarely sees play these days. Right. Uh, so that's kind of a half. I've played the new Tamiyo, but I'm basically the only one who has. <laughs> so they're all blue. And there's really only about four. I mean, really, there's Dak and two Jaces. Those, those are the top of the heap. Then you've got a little bit of Narset occasionally. Yeah. A little bit of second Tamio, a little bit of Tezzeret's. Tezzeret's probably fourth on the list. I'm sure so, someone out there is probably screaming at us that there's another Planeswalker that's appeared somewhere. I have no well, doubt that I there mean, are. 
But, yeah, it, it, it's happened. But I mean, there there was a gush deck with Garouk and Ral Zarek in it last year. I mean, <laughs> Ral, Ral Zarek. Remind me what the yeah. Ral Zarek does again. It, it, he's the combo with uh, with Time Vault. He untaps permanence, and then his he, ultimate has you flip points. He's red. He's red blue. Yeah. Red blue, but he's also blue. So. Yeah, exactly. So there's basically no non-blue planeswalkers. That's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. D- Doretti, I think, is going to be the first clear Kaya possible. But, yeah. But the question. To your point. Yeah. I- I'm sorry. I-, I-, I said I brought that all up though because I wanted to, to emphasize your point about how planeswalkers are relatively new from a vintage standpoint, and also how few of them see play. Yeah, because exactly. that's what I meant by small sample size. We just I know, don't have. A, my, yeah. We can actually quantify that because there are 78. Different planeswalkers <laughs> to date in Magic, and that that doesn't include the flipwalkers because they're not type planeswalker. No, I'm sorry, it does. I'm sorry, it does, but it doesn't yet include conspiracy because I'm using MagicCards.info. So there are 78, not counting Kaya and Doretti, so that's 80, basically, right? And if you and I are right that about four are seeing play actively, that's five percent of planeswalkers. That's a really high vintage. percentage. Actually, it's a really high percentage. I think that underscores... I mean, there's no other card type for which you could say... I don't think there's any <laughs> other card type for which you could say 5% of them see vintage play. Not any lands. That's a fascinating question. And no, of course, not any of the, the, you know, the original alpha card types. Not at all. Mm-hmm. I wonder about equipment, though. I, there's probably way more equipment than I'm giving Magic credit for at this point. Yeah, there's, there's 220. Yeah, but there's only like, yeah, I was gonna say there's only like two or three equipment that actually see play. So five percent is, I mean, something like I don't know, two percent of the overall card pools sees play in vintage. Yeah. Right? So there's like roughly 300, maybe a little bit more cards to see play in vintage in the pure and vintage top eights, and I don't know, like fourteen, fifteen thousand cards in Magic at this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm overestimating. So. No, I, I don't think you are. <laughs> <laughs> so that that to me. That, that's a lot. That, I'm really kind of surprised by that, actually. 5% is really high. And, and I think that suggests just how good the Planeswalkers are. I mean, they've created a very, very, very good card type. And the, the, the cards they do print in the type are aggressive, aggressively powerful. Um, you know, it's funny. Another way to put what you're observing is think of a blue deck in Vintage today that doesn't play a Planeswalker. Well, men- Mentor decks, oh, they all play Planeswalker. They all play DAC or, yeah, there isn't. There isn't. It's well, yeah. it's really only the the pure combo decks like you know Belcher and DPS, but all the mainstream blue decks yeah, from those, your aggro control call, decks to your control decks. Yeah, I mean DPS, I consider I don't consider it a blue deck, even though it has blue cards. Yeah, I'm being generous in my definition, but y- your point is well made. So at any rate, no, it's a great point. So planeswalkers are highly point. important, but it's but it's only about four of them that are highly important. <laughs> yeah, and it, some of those, I mean, I mean, it's only about it's only really two or three of them that are highly important. You know, Dak and Jace, the Mind Sculptor, Jace Vrin's Prodigy is still a niche card. Yeah, in my in my estimation, and Tezzeret has become a niche card. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, anyway, we're getting off on a tangent. No, no, now, this is an important tangent because the question the question before us. So I think you and I both think this card is. Is, is powerful. It, it generates card advantage. It meets some of the baseline criteria for vintage play. The efficiency question is is real. It, yeah. Four mana is it the is it the 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 net twilight zone of vintage playable? Uh, <laughs> there are cards that at four mana that that appear though. I mean, Planeswalkers foremost among them, but not not exclusively. Not many. Yeah. Not, not exclusively. And you know, I've seen people play like uh, Flame Tongue Kavu in sideboards occasionally. <laughs> yep. Which is, I don't think that's a joke. I mean, that's a hard card to stop. You can't bluster storm it or. No, I, I know why it was played. Yeah. And 
notion thief sees play is similar, you know, whatever. Um, So the question here is, is this one good enough to see play? And what I'm saying is that the problem that we have is that we just don't have a large enough sample size of, of, of planeswalkers to know really where that line is between playable yeah. and playable. I, I, I suspect that it falls on the side, the playable side of this, of the ledger, but without more information, it's really hard to assess. Well, let's, okay. Let's take a metric then that you're implying with a planeswalker who's seen fringe play. It's very comparable in Narset Transcendent. Remind, remind me and the audience what that does. <laughs> She's two white-blue, starting loyalty of six, plus one. Look at the top card of your library. If it's a non-creature, non-land card, you may reveal it and put it in your hand. So that's a, a very comparable ability. Minus two, when you cast your next instant or sorcery spell from this turn, this turn it gains rebound. And then her emblem is minus nine. Your opponents can't cast non-creature spells. <clears throat> now, granted, that's a four-mana Planeswalker, one of the mana being blue. Narset, I think it may be actually the most comparable card, right? I mean, it's... I, I, very much so. Yeah. Very close. I mean, the other there's some other four-mana Chandras that we could also compare her to. That's, but, they, I mean, Narset has seen legitimate play. She was in top eight of champs last year, but she's still very rare. Her first ability is very comparable to Chandra's first ability, right? Yes, it's going to be card advantageous. Thing, I think it's the closest thing that we've seen. Yeah, it's going to be card advantageous for a certain narrow set of cards in a similar subset. The thing is, is that this Narset doesn't protect herself in any meaningful way other than having super high loyalty. That was kind of her trick, is she starts at six and goes up to seven. That's really high loyalty. But Chandra's third ability, minus three, putting her down to one loyalty, but it kills a creature of power four or less. That's, in my opinion, way more relevant in Vintage. Definitely. I agree. So if you've got a comparable plus ability and a way better protective ability and then one other ability thrown in that's you know we agree is marginal at best but still non-zero and never mind the fact that in my opinion Chandra's ultimate is is really really relevant and amazingly good game endingly good whereas Narset's yeah. is just kind of game stallingly good <laughs> no, we don't really focus a lot on the uh we don't really no, focus a lot on the ultimates but this ultimate but it's is the important ultimate. to have this is the ultimate yeah, it's ultimate. important <laughs> to have a relevant one yeah and this is highly relevant so all those things combined suggests that that this new chandra meets or exceeds the the efficiency and, and utility of narset in my eyes and as such she should be considered at least above that level what about nahiri didn't i think i've seen nahiri somewhere right yeah, Matt Murray took uh, he made top eight at the the Magic Online Power Nine event in July with a Just Guy Planeswalker control deck that had a couple of Nahiri in it. That was an interesting deck. He had Gush and seven Planeswalkers and Moat, <laughs> and he had a copy of Emrakul the Aeons Torn to combo with Nahiri. <laughs> He's the only one I know of that has had any success with Nahiri. We didn't even review her. Really. I, I think yeah. I remember her, but I think I have a phantom memory. So, <laughs> it must be because no one asked for it, and, and we didn't end up talking about her in our set review. So he really planned on getting that ultimate off. Um, yeah, that, that's the only reason you put Emrakul in a deck like that. Interesting. Really interesting. I mean, that's the kind of thing when the Hiri comes down, your opponent's not going to start attacking. They're going to stop attacking with their with their token generator. Well, until they, can, until they can get the critical mass, right? Um, also, his deck had two moats in it, right? So part of his plan was... Clearly to hide behind Moat and <laughs> and plus Boy. his planeswalkers. Boy, you can't. Yeah, that Nahiri thing isn't going to work on uh, on your uh, ambassadorship, right? It's like, that thing is going to be uh, 
Oh, the Sky Sovereign? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, the Sky Sovereign is just the enemy of Planeswalkers in general. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It's going to come Jace down. Jace the Mind Sculptor, no bounce that. <laughs> right. Well, Nahiri is funny because she comes down at four and pluses, so she'll go to six to turn you player if you plus yeah. her, right? If uh, She could get over on the Sky Sovereign if she comes down first. I remember facing the Nahiri. I don't remember who played it, uh, but I definitely remember facing it online. Oh, yeah. And that card, that card feels like a blue planeswalker, <laughs> but yeah. it, it's in red here. And Chandra might just be better than Nahiri. I think it is better, actually. Well, let's compare. Nahiri's is four starting loyalty, so it's the same number. She's got plus two. You may discard a card if you do draw a card. Minus two, exile target enchantment, tapped artifact, or tapped creature. It's nice that she can just immediately exile an oath or something like that. But so she's more flexible. That's for certain. Yeah. But. Chandra is more reliable because the creature doesn't have to be tapped. Right. Um, Nahiri can get larger game, though. She can get a, a reality smasher or a, a large artifact creature yep. where Chandra cannot. I don't know. I think it's I think it's comparable, those two. So Chandra is in Nahiri and in, in Narset land. Yeah. Kind of in that class of planeswalkers. Chandra provides actual card advantage like Narset does. Nahiri doesn't provide actual card advantage. Her plus ability is card neutral, so I think Chandra has a bit of an advantage there. I think Nahiri's mana cost, though, is pretty directly analogous. So so it's pretty clear to you and I, and I think to everybody at this point, that four mana planeswalkers that aren't Jace, the Mind Sculptor, (laughs) are still playable, right? Narset and Nahiri have set the the scale, and and so we're kind of implying Jeskai decks here as well, right? So if they're red or white... I think that's playable. Uh, there have been some Kioras that we've reviewed and been pretty high on over the years that turned out to not be good enough. I don't know if that's a factor of, of Jeskai versus green and black. We'll just have to see with Duretti, I suppose, but obviously he's only three mana. But this, the you know the bar is set, which to me suggests that a Planeswalker of this caliber that has a card advantageous ability and a good removal ability with additional upside is, uh, is imminently playable. The question remains then is how much? And when it comes to Nahiri and Narset, the answer is very, very little, right? Yep, they've seen very little play. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the in, in the paper world, Nahiri hasn't made a splash at all. We're talking about zero appearances in top eights. Now, Narset actually has had multiple paper appearances, but it's still very rare, to the tune of three times this year. And every time it's been in a Gush Mentor deck. A few more times in 2015 when she came out because I think people are a little more excited. She was in a few different decks, a rogue deck, some keeper decks, control slaver. I mean, there was some excitement about her when she came out, but settled down to the point where she's really rare. Well, I I think I, that I think, she might be a, a step above, a gradation above Nahiri and and Narset. I think yes. I, th- I think so. So that makes it even. Remo- a, yeah. I think her removal ability is superior to theirs. In the modern that night makes game. that makes our task more difficult, not easier, <laughs> because if she's if she's worse, then we could just say, okay, well these these other planeswalkers exist and let's see play. In this particular case, it it's a real challenge. I'm gonna go but with that's the, why they pay I'm us gonna, the big bucks. I believe, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's playable. I think it I think it will see very top eight appearances, but I do playable. I don't even know where it would see play precisely. Maybe it, some sort of planeswalker control deck is certainly plausible. Um, there are a couple of other. Yep. Well, I agree with you. Uh, I think that a Jess Guy Planeswalker control deck, the likes of which Matt Murray played Nahirian, the likes of which uh, John Grudzina made top eight with last year and champs, those are natural homes. Blue Moon is 
you know, it's maybe not obvious, but it seems like a good starting point as a home for her. And that's the most obvious place. Yeah. Yeah. She's not, in my estimation, she's not very synergistic with what Blue Moon is trying to do. That deck has plenty of proactive cards, but it still has plenty of reactive cards, too. So you're going to whiff on her plus ability a fair percentage of the time. That deck is a high land count deck and lands whiff on her ability. So her plus ability is not maximized in a deck like Blue Moon. That's not a that's not to say she's unplayable, but it's just not maximized. Yeah. Her minus ability is quite nice, but when you minus her from four to one, you then have to plus for at least two turns in a row in order to minus her again, and that's tough too. Whereas Jace the Mind Sculptor, right, can alternate plussing and minusing. I mean, actually, he can plus and then minus two turns in a row, so he's much better at controlling the board than Chandra will be. And I think that's important to note. It takes almost all of her loyalty to commit to her minus ability. Even Nahiri can use her minus ability twice before she's dead, but she can use it on consecutive turns. Same goes for Tamio, the field researcher. She can use her minus ability two times in a row. <laughs> what a cool name. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's just nothing not to like about Tamio. But this is not about her. <clears throat> so I, th- I, I feel like it's just you, you and I guessing now what people are going to do. We've said it a million times before, but there comes a point in our set reviews when we switch from guessing what is possible to guessing what people will really do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Blue, Blue Moon is a subtly popular deck. You know, it shows up online with some consistency in the dailies and even in paper. You know, it, it, was, oh, it was a year ago now at the NYSE, but it, the Blue Moon was pretty popular in that event. I didn't well, actually pay attention to how many Blue Moons were in this year's NYSE. Well, I would feel more comfortable if you gave the initial guess here. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be an exceedingly low number. I'm going to go with two. Ooh, that was probably where I was going to land. Um, I'll take the under. I'll go one. Okay. Next up, I think I think two is probably around the right. Two or three is probably around the right the right call. Agreed. You know, I'm going to take two. I agree with that. I think it'll I think it'll show up twice. All right then. <laughs> We're doubling down on the double. Next is combustible gear Hulk <laughs> for four RR artifact creature construct first strike. When Combustible Gear Hulk enters the battlefield, target opponent may have you draw three cards. If the player doesn't, put the top three cards of your library into your graveyard. Then Combustible Gear Hulk deals damage to that player equal to the total converted mana cost of those cards. Now, Ryan Eberhardt is the one who requested that we review this card specifically. And Ryan, if you're listening to this, this is me scratching my head. (laughs) (laughs) Because... (laughs) Because... I genuinely think this card, it misses the mark on vintage playability, especially as compared to the other Gear Hulks, but... <laughs> and what are the other Gear Hulks? <laughs> well, we, I mean, we already reviewed Torrential Gear Hulk, which is the Snapcaster yeah. one. Yeah. The white one is kind of like a, a tragic arrogance, um, a catechism kind of hybrid, or it reduces everybody to one of each permanent type. Uh, the black one just destroys a creature and you gain life equal to its power or toughness, I don't remember. And then the green one is just enormous and cheap, pumps your team. Um, this one, you know, it's a, it's a punisher mechanic. If your opponent's at sufficiently low life total, you would draw three cards because they, they couldn't afford to risk the damage. And it comes down to deck construction as to what the the, the average yeah. or median damage yeah, is from that's, this card. That's, a, that's the question that, come, that pops into my head immediately, most immediately. So on average... In a vintage deck, how much damage is this actually going to be de- deal if they decide not to? Well, I can tell you that some of the folks that I follow on Twitter did that analysis for the purposes of standard, hmm. 
And they used our recent Teamer Emerge deck from Standard, which has a much higher mana curve than a Vintage deck because it's got some Eldrazi in it. It's, it has some some seven mana spells in it that are castable because of the Emerge mechanic. So from a Standard standpoint, in a higher mana curve deck, they're... I think the average overall average damage was something like 7.9, huh. which suggests that in a vintage deck that has a lower mana curve, but still some higher things, you know, you got your Force of Wills and your Gushes of the World, assuming that you built your deck to have some free mana cards in it, then you're probably going to end up in the 5 to 6 range, is my guess. That's just a... Yeah, a, I think that sounds right. Relatively informed guess, knowing what I know. <clears throat> And that's not very thre- that's not a very threatening amount of damage in my book, right? Nope. I, I mean, now granted, if you're playing with Force of Will and you're playing with Gush or some other things, I'm not saying you should be with this card, but if you are, then you're threatening 10 or 15 damage, and your opponent will know that probably. So it's a bit of a gambit, right? And it's worth noting that this ability triggers when it enters the battlefield. So if you're weldering something, you know, you can get this trigger multiple times. So it could be. It, the sort of thing that if it doesn't happen the first time, you know, they might they might be forced to give you the cards the second time. Hmm. But that's all a bit of a reach, <laughs> in my estimation. This mana cost of four RR is well, it's unprecedented in vintage, literally, but not comparatively. Right? We've talked about Yogmoth's bargain. We've talked about consecrated Sphinx. This mana cost is achievable uh, in low numbers. The fact that this is an artifact means you're going to get lots of opportunities to cheat the mana cost via Tinker and Welder, and if you were feeling pretty spicy, like Cold Wolf the Forge Master. And the fact that this is a creature means you can cheat the mana via Oath, but I don't think you would ever bother to do that in Oath. There's so many better choices. Yeah, so so most of the time, I mean, even if you were to put this in an Oath deck, you go to Oath this, you get to draw three cards, or you flip three cards, and then they take the damage. They're always going to take, almost always going to take the damage. Especially in Oath, yeah. which has an exceedingly low mana curve. I, don't I mean, it has a couple of expensive creatures and then Force of Will and then everything else costs two or less. Yeah, I just can't think of a deck where you would otherwise use this. You know, like, it's, this isn't really, like, I mean, like a Blue Moon type deck, maybe, but it's not like a, a Workshop card. I mean, it would have a red-based Workshop deck, I feel, has numerous other better yeah. options. Is this, it, maybe he's thinking about this in, like, a Control Slaver type deck, like where you would weld over and over again. And, you know, it is interesting, though, I don't want to overlook this, but... Putting the cards in your graveyard can be pretty nice, like that recursive capacity. It, it is a benefit, you're right, you get especially in a welder deck, deck. Mill through your deck pretty quickly. Maybe that's the place for this, is something like a welder deck. Maybe, that's what maybe, maybe we're thinking about this all wrong. Maybe this is, when it comes into play, you mill three cards and do some damage to your opponent. And then it's just a huge, it's just a huge threat. And then it's a large threat with first strike. I mean, it's going to own combat for, yeah. with everything other than... Than Sphinx of the Steel Wind and Gristlebrand. So in that sense, it's it, it's good defense on the ground. It's a good moat-like creature for for red. Uh, it's still not good at stopping a creature swarm like a mentor. And unfortunately, at this mana cost, you could even cheat this into play on turn three, four, five, thanks to Thirst plus Welder or something, and still just die to mentor. <laughs> <laughs> True. I'm, I mean, I've beaten turn two and three Gristlebrands with Mentor before just because they can't stand up, they can't put enough defense on the way. But, um, but that's, that, that's not the normal, right? That's not, that's rare. This is going to be, this is going to be good defense against workshops. It's good defense against Eldrazi, uh, except for Displacer. But anyway, <clears throat> it's not good defense against, it's not good offense against tokens. But if what you said is true, 
then this is the sort of offense that has reach. And I mean lo- lowercase reach, not uppercase reach. The the fact that you could weld this into play a couple of times mean the damage will pile up pretty quick. Yeah. They, could, they can only take five or six so many times, assuming all the relevant things are happening in the game. You can just weld this back. So, you know, like mm-hmm. you said, I think it's, it is a large creature. No, I, I think I see where he's coming from now. I think uh, at first this is a bit of a mystifier, but if you just look at it as a card that bins three cards into your graveyard, will do, I don't know, five, six, seven damage every time it enters play as a 6-6 six, six first striker, then it becomes to look, look a little bit more coherent or sensible, I suppose. Yeah. I still think it's pretty fringe at best. But but all those abilities really do kind of come together. I mean, well, and, yeah, and it's important to note too that the Goblin Welder strategy, in terms of the the, the old control like Grixis or Control Slaver model, is is still pretty rare these days. Looking at the admittedly poor or uh, occasionally incorrect grouping, uh, sorry, the you know archetype labeling from TCDex.net. If you if you look at Goblin Welder's top eights this year, it has put up several this year. It's put up what looks like maybe it's maybe forty this year Goblin Welder, but most of those are either mud or painter. <laughs> There's still some people keeping the mono red mud kind of you know flag flying. Keep Control Slaver is is only about a quarter of those. It looks like year to date Control Slaver one two three four five six seven eight nine ten yeah about ten so far this year, and in the last quarter. Going back to mid June, it's two. So it's a thing, but it's a. I mean, it's very. It's like you know, Narset level of rare, as we've discussed in our prior card. And does this card make you know give new inroads for that deck? In my estimation, no. There are still plenty of other creatures, big artifact creatures that you can be welding into play that are very threatening to your opponent's life total, right? Yep. You could be welding in uh, trikes. I don't know. Yeah. Well, tr- yeah, trikes. Are middling though compared to you know Sundering Titan compared to Sphinx of the Steel Wind compared yeah. to uh, what's the the Murder Ball uh, Mirror Battle Sphere? Yeah, Mirror Battle Sphere hits a lot harder than this Gear Hulk, even counting the come into play damage. So uh, for that particular role, I don't think this is a superior card. Yeah, I I, I, I I would uh, this. So we're down to this point where I think this card is playable does not offer great new angles for those existing decks or make an existing deck far better. Yeah, you know, like I don't want to I don't want to get myself into a position where I've overlooked some card like uh, the Red Titan that that Rich Shea used in in, in Auto <laughs> that I think is actually really good. Uh, what's, what's that red creature again? It's the Inferno Titan. Inferno Titan. Yeah. Yeah. But but I don't I just don't see a, a very practical application. The first strike is nice. So, you know, it'll do some things. And the, it's clear that, you know, this will do some damage to the opponent. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a 6-6. Six, six, it's a 6-mana six 6-6 six, six creature with first strike that'll do a little bit of damage to the head. And been a, yeah. been a few cards for you. I don't think that's yeah. enough value in this overall package. I agree. So, so I'm, I'm going to go, I'm gonna go with zero. Me too. Okay. Next, I'm excited to talk about Sahili Rai. Sahili is one blue-red Planeswalker Sahili. Starting loyalty of three plus one. Scry 1, Sahili Rai deals 1 damage to each opponent. Minus 2, create a token. <laughs> those are kind cop- of odd. The, the, those don't really relate. The Scry I know, I know. Okay. I know, it's strange. Minus 2, create a token that's a copy of target artifact or creature you control, except it's an artifact in addition to its other types. That token gains haste, exile it at the beginning of the next end step, 
That's your second ability. Minus seven, search your library for up to three artifact cards with different names, put them onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Interesting. Yeah, your, your observation about the first ability is spot on. Scrying plus dealing damage. It just—it feels like it was just tacked on to make it a little bit more powerful. Like, how uh, do we just—how do we just make this a little bit better? <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's ironic, in my estimation, the fact that they tacked on a damage dealing ability because it—it it means, and this is very minor, but it means that if you get to ultimate her and keep her into play, she becomes her own win condition for key vault. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. So she's like Mizium Transreliquat. When you copy it, oh, well, not only that, but but the Mizium Transreliquat copy. The remember how under the original Time Vault errata that worked on the second, not the original, but the third errata <laughs> for folks <laughs> keeping track at home. It copied Time Vault, but was untapped. Does, if you copy it, Time Vault here, is it tapped? If you make a copy of a Time Vault, it enters play as a copy of a Time Vault, okay, and so Time Vault play. enters play tapped. Yeah, that's yeah. why, that's the, right, because Trans, Mizium Transreliquat is already in play, and then becomes yes. a copy, so that's why it's untapped. Got it. That Makes is sense. the critical difference. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Here, you could just eventually, in fact, you can get Key Vault, and you can get uh, Blightsteel. <laughs> so. I start, Steve, I, I can't let it go past. I just want all of our audience to raise their hand wherever they are if they remembered what the heck Mizium Transreliquat was. <laughs> 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 because because that is that is some bottom of the barrel obscurity right there. <laughs> anyway, so uh, you, uh, it, it, I mean, anyone who was deeply engaged in the time vault would, would feel my pain. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, we just had a whole conversation about the playability of planeswalkers, right? Um, and this Sahili, she yeah. has the, the same mana cost as Dak Faden, which is probably the most played Planeswalker in Vintage. Yeah. So, you know, efficiency in terms of mana is clearly a non-issue. So we can stick straight to the relevance of her abilities. And her first ability is very weak. I mean, yeah. it, it's, hard, it's hard to get much weaker unless you're a Planeswalker named Ajani. The, I mean, yeah, this is, it's just, it's just very weak. You're, and the, unfortunately, her starting loyalty of three means you're going to play her and minus her probably by default, yeah. unless you're playing her on yeah, yeah unless you're playing her onto an empty board, which means you're going to plus her and you're going to get that that you know that tiny value there. But in my opinion, her unlike Dak Faden, Dak Faden steals artifacts right, but his plus ability is so useful in so many different decks, and her first ability is not. You know, it's a it's a pale comparison to Dak's first ability, and her second ability is is similar to Dak's second ability in that it can could be theoretically game winning, or at least you know very threatening, or it could be you know borderline irrelevant. Yeah, I think the, <laughs> I think the most fatal two words on this entire card are you control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, you know, if this could copy any artifact, then there would be, I think, some sort of debate or argument because you could like you could copy your opponent's trike and then kill their trike and even attack. You could copy something. Well, they wouldn't let that happen, but I, your point not. is right. <laughs> but you, you know, you could copy something that the, your opponent has. It this and it, therefore would be actually useful against workshops. Mm -hmm. As it stands, I mean, the best thing you can do is like copy a mox against workshops. Rolling. Um, I just I don't see a lot of value there at all. And the cost tremendous of two loyalty, and that's mm -hmm. just I mean, you get to draw two cards for it with Dak at plus so. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's 
I agree with everything you just said, and clearly we're setting up the fact that Sahili is a, I mean, her ability is purely offensive, right? Dak's ability is a mixture of defense and offense because you, you can take a critical creature that's beating you down and that's defensive. And then that creature can switch gears and play offense for you. It's a long term. It's a short term investment in defense, a long term investment in offense. Right. And then his plus ability is getting you value uh, you know, over time at twice the rate Sahili's is basically. So how would we maximize her? You would have to be using her second ability on a very impactful yeah. artifact. Yeah, we. I mean, we've spent in this podcast, in this particular show, a good deal of time talking about artifact decks. We talked about Steel City Vault type decks. Those mm-hmm. decks don't use a lot of artifacts that you would want to copy. I mean, they almost all have mana. They're mostly artifacts are mana, like yeah. from, from Mox Opal to Black Lotus. Yeah. And then you know the other artifacts are restricted or singleton. You know, there's a couple utility ones like Top or Engineer Explosives, but copying yeah. those is not. Great value. It's, it's terrible value, yeah. For the cost. Yeah, for the you're right, for the cost. I mean, getting a copy of a top is cute. You get some value out of that, at least a, a free card. But it's not worth three mana and then minus two on your planeswalker for that effect. Yeah. I mean, the only way that her effect is really worth it is if you're copying some kind of game-ending thing like Memory Jar, right? That, that would be nice, right? She's yeah. worth it as three mana for another jar. That situation is hard to engineer, yeah. <laughs> right? Because yeah. Jar is so ephemeral as a card that it's frequently either not <laughs> worth it or not even possible for you to wait the turn it would take for you to assemble this combo. Yeah, it's a fleeting type thing. Setting it up would be, I mean, is unrealistic. If you could play her very proactively, if you play her on turn one in Steel City Vault, right? You go land, mox, mox, opal. I mean, what I mean is mox, mox, and then mox, opal. Then you cast her, and you, you plus her, and you pass the turn. And then next turn, you tinker for Jar, and you make a second Jar with her. That's probably a game-winning play, right? But the question is, would was it her that made that really game-winning? Or would any other three or four mana spell on the first turn have been as good or better? <laughs> I think plenty of three mana spells in deck, those decks would have been just as good, if not better, in that scenario. Yeah, even if, even if this... Here's the thing. Here's the real kicker. Mm-hmm. Even if this ability, the second ability, was plus zero or minus zero, whatever the case may be, I still think mm. this card wouldn't be good enough. That's the kicker. Let's switch gears. Her second ability also copies creatures, so maybe that's where the value like, is. Again, but, you control. <laughs> yeah, So, but it's you and I have spent some time, again, in this episode earlier, talking about well, cheap creatures that have... Okay. Uh, beneficial effects no, like your bail no doubt, no doubt. So let's 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 look at that. I mean, again, Planeswalkers is a primarily blue deck card. Mm-hmm. We, we all, all acknowledge that. Secondly, the kinds of creatures that are used in control decks are used. N- most of them are used not on offense, or at least not in for a single burst of offense. So yeah. I mean, the exception, of course, is like Mentor and Lightsteel. Yeah. So. What kind of creatures are you going to be copying? Like Goblin Welder is probably the be- the best. You could no, Goblin Welder a, or, or yeah. Baofil Strix or or you know even like a Dark Confidant, but you don't give it the you don't even get the benefit out of Dark Confidant. No, you, know? you get so, the benefit for comes in the play abilities. So like your Snapcasters and your uh, Stoneforge Mystics, your Baleful Strix. But what's the so so you get another Welder or another Baleful Strix or another Snapcaster Mage or another Stoneforge Mystic? What's the cost? The cost is minus two on this this uh of loyalty yeah. you know again even if this said plus zero as an ability i would have serious reservations 
in high level of skepticism as to whether this would actually see play. Yeah. You know, you, the fact that you went right to Goblin Welder as the creature that's easy to get value out of leads me to believe that, I mean, a Goblin Welder deck that has the welders for, you, you know, putting to their key vault and getting value out of thirst and putting a, a giant monster into play occasionally, that deck probably is the best possible home for her because you could be copying your welder to get extra value or you could be copying a large artifact, artifact. either creature or not to get extra value or you could just be du- duplicating a, a, a tinker target of sorts you could be putting a second sphinx of the steel wind in play putting a second you know mere battle sphere into play for a game ending swing theoretically game ending if not you know hugely swinging so in that sense Maybe she, unlike other planeswalkers, maybe she functions more like a sorcery. I think she definitely does. I think that's part of her problem. <laughs> well, I mean, from from the standpoint of comparing her to other planeswalkers that see play in Vintage, sure. But are we thinking about this card wrong? Since so many of our other planeswalkers see play because they're long-term strategic value? I mean, every that's one thing that all the planeswalkers so, that see play and vintage have in common is that they have a there's like a there's a path when you play them. I'm going to use this ability. I'm going to use this ability, and right. this planeswalker is still going to be in play four turns from well, now. Well, so you're saying like should she be used like more explosively as kind of like a clone effect like immediately? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's I, I think he, here's here's part of it. So a lot of the cards that see play and vintage, like some of the most powerful disruptive effects, tend to be they they tend to sit around for a while, and and you know like you shift from Tormod's Crypt to, say, Rest in Peace, right? Or Tormod's Crypt to Grabdigger's yeah. Cage. Yeah. She she's she copies it. To really get the most out of her, you're going you're gonna to need to do something. You're going to need to copy something that you can use in a sorcery-type way, in like a, yep. you know, a discontinuous way, a discrete moment in time. Sure. Like, you know, like copying a Tormod's Crypt and then, you know, keeping the original in play but then being able to use it. That's the kind of value. But... but I think it's just we just went over. I think the critical point I made was that this requires you to have good artifacts or creatures that can be used in that manner, and yet most of the artifacts that you would be able to copy are either restricted, like Memory Jar, or they're played as Singleton. So you're not really going to get that much value out of it, no matter what. I just don't, I think yeah. I don't see uh, a reliable use scenario, especially at this cost, right? I mean, I don't see there's anything explosive enough that you're going to get enough out of it. Maybe there's something I'm missing. I'm, I'm trying to think through the card pool to see if there is something, but... It's really, I mean, again, everything I, I think about is, is these are continuous effects that control decks would use, not, yeah. you know, one-shot cards. Well, it's no secret that cards see play in Vintage because they are immediately impactful. Um, they fit into it some broad categories, right? They're immediately impact, hugely impactful, like a, a memory jar, or they're super flexible, like an engineered explosives, or they have long-term consistent value incremental value like a, like a sensei's divining top yeah there yeah, aren't too many other that because they get the copy you, you you've got to then use at least right. your plus ability once more just to get back to what you, you know whatever right so to your point she really only impacts one of those families of cards she really only helps you with the explosive stuff yeah she doesn't i mean <laughs> you would not you're not going to copy Grafdigger's cage you know and attack get <laughs> right one. right you get you could copy like a Nihil spell bomb or a pyrite spell bomb or something like that, but that's really low value. And on um, and related to that, all the all the big flashy explosive artifacts they tend to either come into play via Tinker or via the graveyard. And the kind of decks that want to bring artifacts into play via Tinker or graveyard 
want Dak Faden far more than they want this effect. Yeah, I agree with that. Because Dak just provides such a greater value. Yeah, we haven't even talked about that. Yeah, the opportunity cost of the slot is enormous. <laughs> yes, it really is. Really... I mean, I'm going to go on the record. I don't think she's going to see any play. So I, I think in a universe where Dak didn't exist, <laughs> which is not any universe we live in, we'd be she would be more considerable. But the opportunity cost is just through the roof. You're just not going to want to draw her until you're already in an advantageous position. She's, I mean, to put it another way, she's kind of win more. She doesn't help you get out of any situations, really, which Dak definitely does. Yeah, I'm going to go with zero. I think that was your conclusion as well, yes? Cool. Okay. Next we have Kambal, Console of Allocation. Now, I don't know if I'm getting the pronunciation of Kambal right there, but I'm going to go with that. Yeah, Kambal. Legendary Creature, Human Advisor. Whenever an opponent casts a non-creature spell, that player loses two life and you gain two life. Two, three. <laughs> oh, this just feeds every negative comment about hate bears that is out there, humans. <laughs> I can hear our audience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who needs Scab Clan Berserker when you have this thing? Right. <laughs> um, so let's talk mana cost. Yeah. Now... We recently reviewed, as in, what's three sets ago now, the card Anguished Unmaking, which is at the same mana cost. And we spent a fair bit of time during that review comparing it to Vindicate, which is a historically played vintage card, though not much in the past few years. <laughs> so this mana cost it's been, it's has a precedent. Been, I think more than a few years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so this mana cost does have a precedent, though not a recent one. It doesn't have one on a creature. But we all know that mana costs like this that are even more difficult, like, for example, Mantis Rider, are readily played in five-color Cavern of Souls-type mana bases. And Kambal is a, is a human, which means he sort of naturally slots into a deck like that. So I don't think the mana cost is much of a restriction, and it could actually push what was a five-color human's deck into maybe only three colors. In I mean, theory, you could only go white, black, green. Owing, go ahead. Owing in part to the power of Thali. All yes. the humans' decks are anchored in white. So yeah. to to make a three-color, you know, one YX human where white is one of the you know colored requirements is is I think very much within the realm of playability for any basically any kind of humans hate bears strategy. Uh, that's, a, that's a very good point. I'm glad you stated that so explicitly because this is similar to making a good blue creature that has blue as one of the mana colors like Trigon Predator, right? It's just imminently castable. Yes. And this ability is just everywhere that that hate bears basically want to be in terms of disrupting your opponent, putting pressure on them, and shutting off certain avenues, namely Storm. <laughs> well, the, that's the beginning of that, yeah. It, it, it's interesting, it doesn't just... So, now that you you brought that up, let's uh, let's compare it to Scab Clan Berserker. Because there's two critical differences, in my, in my opinion. The first is that where Scab, Scab Clan Berserker deals damage whenever they play a non-creature spell, this... That actually creates a very narrow window for a tendrils player to storm out and win. Not only do you have a narrow window to go through with tendrils, but you can also play a mini tendrils to build up your life, and then like Yogg will back into tendrils to win the game. Yeah. This actually makes that impossible because not only do you do does the storm pilot lose life with each spell, but the opponent gains two life. 
So <laughs> it's it's impossible to thread the needle. You have to remove this. This becomes you have to remove it or find another way to win that does not involve storm, right? Yep, yep. It's a totally fair point. You just can't gain any ground with many tendrils on this. The the other thing is that uh, you know the life gain just in, in against other decks that seek to do tempo. I think is going to be very frustrating. Like this card is, I think one of the hardest matchups, honestly, for hate bears is Delver type strategies because Delver decks they have larger creatures, they can out tempo you, but this prevents them from out tempoing you, right? This card yeah. is so much better in hate bears than Scab Clan Berserker because I think fundamentally because it's better against your worst matchups. It's better in your bad matchups. So that to me is fundamentally important. I would agree. You can't be tempoed out with this. You can, you know, Scabclan Berserker attacks the opponent and it has haste and that's huge. It also has renown. You don't, but it's Scabclan Berserker. You actually have to get renown before it actually works. This thing works as a continuous effect. It automatically gets that ability, uh, yep. and it it's not, doesn't require double red, which can be a little bit more diff- a lot more difficult, in fact, for some hate bears decks. Um, except for the fact that you can actually use this Simeon Spirit Guide to cast Scalpham Berserker. But that's it. And not every deck that played or made top eights with Scalpham Berserker was a five color humans deck either. It was splitting its time, though less so, in some gush aggro kind of shells that were similar to Delver and Pyromancer gush decks or yeah. thing in the ice style decks that also included some scab clans. This thing is a complete nightmare for Storm. I mean, y- y- <laughs> you have to be able, you have to remove it. So you have to rely. I mean, part of the thing with respect to Storm is what I just said is there's only two ways to win. You have to remove it, or you have to find find a path around. And the path mm-hmm. around is going to have to be like Tinker for Colossus or a mini Empty the Warrens or something like that. But this boy, this makes it really difficult to win. I I think this might be so, it's certainly clear to me that this is great in humans, but I I think it's probably good enough that it could see play in a number of other places. Really? Well, I mean, if you I, are an Esper mentor deck uh, and you play this, can you imagine the effect that has on your opponent? Like <laughs> like let's say you well, play it against a, like a Delver deck, right? And you're an Esper mentor deck. I mean, this card really makes it hard for your opponent to win ever. Just as if you can have even modest defense, they can't really do much. Every spell they play is di- you're digging. They're digging closer to death, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. You're, you're completely correct. That 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 much is true. I'm just I'm concerned about the opportunity cost of putting this in a mentor deck. Well, or just an Esper or Planeswalker control deck. I think it probably would ha- could have a similar use. So let's talk about where this card isn't so great because I want to give the appropriate perspective. I don't think this card is any good against workshops. I think it's. Not going to punish them very much after you know turn three or two and turn two or turn three when you play this, and the body is just pretty puny. It will hold off well, a revoker, but that's basically it. Well, when you play a hate bears deck, I mean you've got the hate bears that are used for each matchup, right? Like Spirit of the Labyrinth is a three one against workshops, right? right? I mean you know uh, Ether Sworn Candidate does absolutely nothing against workshops, uh, and so on. <laughs> that's why you run. Right. That's why you run Kataki and uh, uh, and Relic Warder. You know, just like Leonin Arbiter does nothing against workshops, except you know the uh, off marginal case of uh, Coldeath of Forge Master or whatnot. But, yeah. So I I don't see that as a disqualifying function here. I mean, a two three body for three is actually fine. <laughs> you know, it can block a Revoker. It can uh, survive combat with you know a number of small things like that. A factory. 
right? It can yeah, block a factory. It can gang up on thought knots here. That, that's true. It's I would imagine this is probably one of those creatures that you would board out in that matchup. That's true, but but I mean, if it's in the- I mean, even if you let's say you gain four life off of it and do four damage, and then you have a a bear that can attack. That's that get. I mean, that is functionally like a three or four power creature here, right? That's that's. Uh, that's a. I would say that's a little bit misleading because a three or four power creature means implies that it's going to be that threat continually. Right. Um, it does mean your opponent the, can't just do whatever the, the they want. The damage being yeah. effectively free of a sort does does mean you get some free attacks in basically. So it, I would say it's not irrelevant against shops. You will do some damage against the shop deck. It's just that this, the way that shop sequences tends to be turn one Moxin plus a sphere, turn two creatures. And then once your Kambal is down, their sequencing really is only going to lead up to Tanglewire. So obviously I'm generalizing. Not every workshop draw goes that way. Sometimes they're going to top deck spheres in the mid game and, and try to play them. So, you know, it it's not like it does nothing. I just think that it's pretty, it's, I think it's a liability in that matchup. I don't want to be yeah. paying three mana for my grizzly, my two threes, right? Well, let, I want to be paying two mana for them. Well, let's look, find a hate bear deck, and let's see which yeah. cards is it worse than or better than in that matchup. Yeah. Like, well, so people. I've got from, let's see, Eternal Extravaganza, a top eight deck that was uh, a five-color fish deck. This is Sam Castrucci playing five-color fish, eighth place at Eternal Extrav- Extravaganza four. And the creatures, of which there are many, include two Grand Abolisher, two Reflector Mage, Three Containment Priest, three Dark Confidant, three Mantis Rider, three Mayor of Everbrook, three Klesali Pride Mage, four Noble Hierarch, four Scab Clan Berserker, and four Thalia Garden Th- of Thraben. This looks to me a lot like the deck that won the Bizarre Moxon. I think it might be it's, identical. Or it's very, very, very close, yes. Yeah. <laughs> a couple pluses and minuses, maybe, but yeah. So, I mean, obviously, um, Klesali Pride Mage is good against shops. I would say Dark Confidant is good against shops. Yeah. Um, Noble Hierarch is the weak against shops. The but weaknesses against shops are the Abolishers and the Priests. Priests, yeah. So this is... I, it's interesting. Like Think about Containment Priest. Containment Priest is good against Oath. It can deal with Tinker. It's good mm-hmm. against Dredge. But in a sense, Combal may have a broader scope of application. I mean, it's good against all the Gush decks. I don't think there's a question about that. It's good against all Storm decks. And I think it's probably good against Control decks. Because it it means that the control deck has a limited number of spells that they can play for the entire game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and control decks are designed to play a lot of spells, right? They want they want to not lose the game. Th- this has to be removed. And yeah. you know, when the whole point of having good hate bears is that you have so many hate bears that your opponent can't deal with them all. Even if they can deal with one, they can't. So let's say they remove the Spirit of the Labyrinth. Great. Good luck dealing with Camball. Or they remove Camball, but then Spirit of the Labyrinth is sitting there, right? So yeah. Well, in terms of breadth of application, I agree with you. Uh, my observations were specifically about the workshop matchup where yeah. I don't want my bears costing three. <laughs> it, this is clearly a superior creature once it's in play to, say, a Grand Abolisher or a Containment Priest in that matchup. But if you're building a a four- or five-color humans deck after this model, I have to believe that you're going to end up cutting some number of... M- combination of Grand Abolisher and maybe Mantis Rider in order to fit uh, well, Kambal's <laughs> Mantis Rider's been my first cut since the beginning. I mean, I <laughs> I noodled around with Hate Bears decks for the VSL, and I none of mine had Grand uh, had uh, Mantis Rider. Well, it, you know, it's worth noting what kind of what the purpose of Mantis Rider was. 
It was in there because it was fast damage and evasion. Yeah. Good at taking down planeswalkers and such. Sure. And Cumball overlaps with some of that functionality. It, you know, effective damage dealing is one of the things that Cumball does quite well. So it can't take out planeswalkers nearly as effectively. You know, flying over with haste was the thing that, that Mantis Rider does in that context. <clears throat> But Cumball threatens those Planeswalker decks in very real other ways, right? Such yeah. Such that perhaps having a Jace in play is still not good enough <laughs> if, you're, if your hate-bear-playing opponent has Cumball in play and other, other pressure going on. I can tell you that from the perspective of the decks I've been playing lately, even though my decks have been mid-rangey decks with uh, you know 10 or 12 creatures, I still would genuinely not want to see this card in play on the other yeah. side of the field. Yeah. I can, you know, if I'm not immediately holding swords to plowshares, then this represents, I don't know, four to eight damage outside of combat. I, I, uh, you know, this is not irrelevant, but even in five color mana base, I, I think I said this, but I wasn't explicit. Uh, this is actually easier to cast than putting aside Simeon Spirit Guides, easier to cast than Scrap Clan Berserker because every off color mocks, in other words, if you. For any given mox you might have in play, it's harder to generate a second of the same mana than mm-hmm. the first. So, like if you have, for example, a Ruby Jet uh, Rainbow Land, this is obviously immediate uh, the same castability as, as Scab Clan Berserker, but there are more combinations of Moxen and five Rainbow Lands that make this easier to cast, I believe. So, um, well, that's I think that's totally true because you can't draw a second Mox Ruby. Right. But I think the bigger impact is Noble Hierarch. The fact that Noble Hierarch can't cast Scab Clan Berserker. At all, but pays for half of this. Yeah. yeah. And that's really, I think, numerically, well, that's the bigger Well, not, not every not every one of those lists has Noble Hierarch, but your point is taken. No, you're right. Yeah. But I think the majority of them probably do. And if you're following this model of the deck that won the... Uh, the uh, Bizarre Moxen. The European event. Yeah, the Bizarre, Bizarre Moxen. Yeah. If you're following the model of the deck that won the Bizarre Moxen, then I think this card is imminently more castable. I think it's pretty clear that this card is playable. You know, that it, it seems pretty clear what homes uh, are obvious, but you seem to think that the card has broader application. You mentioned Esper Mentor, well, or, or, and or maybe even Esper Control. Well, let's let's you think, think about that. More to it than that. Yeah, let's think about that. I mean, you know, there are hate bears, right? I, a lot of the hate bears. To me, my favorite hate bears are Thalia and Dar- and I put Dark Confidant on in, in there is a uh, you know whatever. Beyond that, <laughs> m- my favorite ones are like Gadok Teague and Spirit of the Labyrinth. And Gadok Teague does not see a lot of play, largely because it's not a human and because of the color combination. But I also like Phyrexian Revoker a lot more in hate bears decks than other people. And you know I, the other ones after that, like Containment Priest and uh, Scab Clan Berserker, are some of my favorites. This guy, I mean, this guy, I think is is probably one of the best hate bears ever printed. And we, we haven't gotten to Prelate, because Prelate obviously hasn't had a lot of chance to see a lot of play. But this has got to be one of the best ones ever printed. And I think it's clear that when creatures that are used in hate bear strategies are good enough, they can be adopted by other strategies. So, I mean, for example, I have definitely seen Richet and other people use like Aegis of the Gods and sideboards of mentor decks and things like that, right? Hate bears have gone mainstream. Okay, they've gone mainstream, <laughs> and uh, and I I think that uh, there's no doubt that hate bears have the potential to appear in main boards and especially sideboards of blue decks and gush decks. Uh, and the question I have in mind is: Is this powerful enough to be one of those? I think because it's so good against gush decks, I I think there is 
probably yes. There's a good this could appear. The the problem, of course, is that you need to have white and black, and there aren't a lot of strategies that have both. Esper is the most obvious place, but if you were Brian Kelly and you were playing that Esper mentor deck that you played in the VSL, would you throw these guys in the sideboard? I mean, if you had Aegis of the Gods or this, they're dealing with separate problems, but this could compete for one of those slots, I think, easily. Uh, I am loath to have a three-mana response to Storm. But but Dave, Dave Williams plays... Is in there because, I mean, people... Sorry. Dave Williams and a number of other people played Arcane Lab in the sideboards, in their, like Landstill sideboard and so on and so forth. Yeah. Arcane... That's Landstill, right? I mean, Landstill is a hard control deck, and it's designed to stymie your opponent in the first two turns. Esper but that's a three-mana like answer. But Landstill, Landstill had fewer mocks in than the Esper, Men- Esper Mentor deck could accelerate Arcane Laboratory out more quickly. Yeah, I, I understand that. <laughs> that's true. That doesn't make up for the fact, though, I mean, that Esper Mentor isn't, ex- isn't ex- expected to be able to control their opponent for the first two turns, you know, the way you need to to, to get to turn to, to a, thir- a three-mana answer i just i just i would not personally play a three mana answer to storm in a mentor deck that's just no flat out. no i, I do that i agree with you but it, i'm saying if you it's not that you would again it's like you don't play with containment priest because you just bring it against oath you play within your cyber because it's good against oath and dredge right mm-hmm. i'm saying this might not be the best anti-storm card but let, let me put it this way if it's I, part of a package, then it, I would agree with. Well, you. not just part yeah. of a package, but let me let me reframe what I'm the idea I was just trying to explain. So the theory of sideboarding begins with the idea that the decks have weak matchups that need to be shored up, or there are matchups that need to be improved because they need to deal with counter tactics. Well, one of the ways you approach building a sideboard is you just pick the strongest card, the strongest tactic for each of those matchups. That typically only works to a point. Because you only have 15 sideboard slots, and you need to make the most of each slot. So it's not uncommon that the second or third or even fourth best sideboard card for a particular matchup is used to combat that matchup. And that's because you select cards that have multiple application, multiple matchup uses. So I'm not, I think that what you just, the way you just articulated how someone would use this card is, this isn't the best card against Storm. I agree with that, but that's not my point. My point is that it's good against Storm, and it's good against Gush decks, and probably even good against Control decks. So you might say this is the third, fourth best card to get in Storm, but it has such a good general utility and broad scope of application that you would include it anyway. That's what I I'm see. saying. So I, so I could see someone playing this as like a one or a two of in a sideboard, bring it against Gush, bring it in against uh, you know the Mentor Mirror, bring it in against uh, you know Delver decks, bring it in against... Pyromancer, bring it against Storm, bring it against, you know, even other control decks, like possibly even Landstill, you know, um, I could just see that, that's all. I think that's fair. I think that certain players would be attracted to that. The notion that it's maybe the second or third best card against all of those decks. Yeah. <laughs> pretty attractive, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it might be the best card against one or two of them, but uh, still, your point is well made. So <clears throat> I, I'm not sure what where that gets us then. Because it sounds like you are, you know, in favor of this being a sideboardable card in <laughs> Esper Mentor and in a, a hypothetical control deck that includes well, the Esper colors. Well, I think it's a, an auto-include first and foremost in Hate Bears. I think it's just oh, it's yeah. clearly one of the best Hate Bears ever yeah. printed, uh, for, first and foremost. I mean, this is the kind of card where you don't even have to even... One of the problems with Hate Bears is that at some point, 
So some of the hate bears... Let me step back and talk about hate bears for a second, because I know we were just talking about control, but this is this is so fun and such an interesting card. I'm so excited about it. One of the ways that I like to build hate bears is I like to build the hate bears that's maximal hate, right? Like, I love playing okay. the most disruptive hate bears and the most high-utility hate bears. But the ones that win tournaments aren't typically built that way. And the reason is because... Like Mantis Rider is not a is not a hate bear at all. It's not a hate bear. <laughs> it, it's only a hate bear if you see it as like an anti planeswalker card, and even then, that's a stretch. Uh, yet the one that won the Bizarre Moxin ran it right, and the reason is because when you're playing a hate bears deck, you can only hate so much. You actually have to shift gears and go into an offensive posture at some point, and you have to do that either when you've taken complete control, which is maybe impossible, or you do it kind of like in a hybrid manner. You generate tempo, and you attack them, and so on and so forth, right? So right. this card actually makes it so you can go all in on hate. You can be as hateful as you want. You can you can double down on hate, and you don't have to feel compelled to go into a, an aggressive posture anytime soon because the amount of damage that you actually will have to do at the end of the game is almost nil. Like, your opponent <laughs> is not... I'm serious. Am I wrong about that? You see what I'm saying, right? I, I see your point. I mean, if this card is working, then it's it's stymieing your opponent while also doing damage to them. Yeah, I get exactly. it. Exactly. So what I'm saying is this is a unique card in that, like, all the other hate bears that we've talked about, like Spirit of the Labyrinth, you know, whatever, at some point they can't just sit back. They actually have to attack, right? And, like, if you're just playing all hate bears and your opponent has a mentor in play... You have to basically be so hateful that eventually you get ahead in card advantage, then you can pick off the Mentor, and then you can attack. Or you have a flyer through the air, like Mantis Rider. This card makes that makes it so you don't actually need to have that plan. You can just go all in. You can double that on hate. You can be as hateful as a hate group. And you can just, you know, <laughs> you can just go, go all in, and then you don't actually ever have to switch gears and go back in an attack posture. That's what I, I think this card presents for hate bears. And so what I think that means is that hate bears don't have to dilute themselves with aggro creatures anymore. I think that y all you have to do is do, you know, get them near zero and then finish them off with your alpha strike and, and that's no problem. This card is the card that does that. Fair enough. I think that's really important. That's a huge, significant difference. Scab Clan Berserker couldn't even do that because Scab Clan Berserker often had to, it has to attack. You have to ha actually inflict damage in order to get renowned. To get the yep. the thing to trigger, this car, for this is you can actually now design a completely defensive hate bears deck with this as a centerpiece. Now, I, granted, it's legendaries, but so is Thalia, <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, I I, uh, I think this is really really good, and I think it also fits in control control decks for the exact same reason that I just said. You know, control decks their entire point of a control deck is to prevent the opponent from winning. Uh, and this does this extraordinarily well. It prevents them from sequencing cards through efficient cantrips. I mean, look what this does to Gataxian Probe, right? Just alone. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, so they have a limited number of spells. They can't. They lose options in multiple ways. I mean, one of the ways of thinking about Magic is that Magic is a game where you're trying to maximize your options and minimize your opponent's options. Brian DeMars has said that. Zvi and who's the beatdown two made a similar point. This card takes away options the moment it resolves. It means I have a limited number of spells I can play either to win the game or remove this. Right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, this in play and your opponent assembles Key Vault. They can't win unless they can remove this. 
It's likely they can't. I mean, they could jace. You know, like I said, they they can't remove. They have to remove it unless they have like a jace or a permanent play like that. It's hard right. to win. So I think this card is nuts. I think it's totally bonkers. It's incredible. It takes. It does so many fundamental things in terms of the theory of the game. I think it's its potential scope of application is large. And its power is high. Uh, the only thing holding it back is that it requires both white and black. Mm-hmm. Which. If you're paying attention to our set review in progress, you might notice that there is some overlap and impact between this and Fragmentize. We already said that Fragmentize could lead to an uptick in yes. Esper. Yes. This, there could be a, a combinatorial effect between Fragmentize and Combo. <laughs> well said. <laughs> so yeah. let's. I think we should move toward uh, estimation here. We're pretty clear that we believe... Five-color human-style decks will adopt this as a matter of course. Those decks are not very numerous in the paper metagame. If you search for uh, top eights that involve Scab Clan, for example, then in the in the last you know quarter, there's only been one. But oh no, sorry, two. There have been two. One of them was a five-color humans. The other one was a, a blue-red Gush Agro deck, Thing in the Ice. So that's one five-color humans deck in the last quarter. There were three others going back to the Bazaar of Moxon, including the Bazaar of Moxon in May. But it, it has diminished since April. Um, since June, I mean. There hasn't been one in July or August, which is pretty telling. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think there are specific reasons for that. I mean, so sure. one of the specific reasons for that is that Hate Bears is poorly positioned against Jake Eldrazi and Eldrazi decks. That's, yep. that's one of the problems. The other problem is, like I said, tempo decks. So I, I think... This so, does not solve the Jayco Drazi problem. Yeah, it, it doesn't. And so this card is not well positioned in terms of numbers when it comes to five color humans. It would take a bit of an overhaul in five color humans, as you put it, um, to if, reposition itself in the metagame in addition to just adding this card. Yeah. If you so were where play- do you think the volume of play is going to come from? Well, if you were playing a generic Esper control deck, would you consider playing this card? I would consider it, yeah. Would it you do the, a lot of what I want to do in the kind of matchups like against Grixis Pyromancer, for example? I how does it not? It, Cabal Therapy it loses its luster yeah, entire. But um, but picture this, Steve. They they I'm, go they go snuff out. I, mean, I take six. Land, I, I know. I go land pre. Well, okay, hold on. I go land preordain go, and they go land preordain go. So then I drew my second land and maybe a mob. So maybe I've got Spell Queller up, right? Or maybe I just play Comball on turn on turn two. Then they play Young Pyromancer. Now from that point in the game, they go to eighteen. They can still kill me with the next eight spells they've got. True, true. No, they don't even no, go to eighteen because no. it's not creature. No, sorry, they, no. they're still at twenty. Well, they can play a ton of spells, right? But this guy's two three, so he can block yeah. a pyro. They can't attack with the pyromancer. So I'm I'm just. Continuing to play out your sequence, on your next yeah. turn, you play this guy with the cavern and you resolve him, right? <laughs> right? Are we talking control or humans? Because I'm not playing cavern well, in that control deck. So just continue your sequence. Yeah, okay, it doesn't matter. Let's just say you resolve it, okay? So bear yeah. with me, you resolve it. You don't have cavern, but you resolve it. They Remember, every spell they play to generate a token is going to gain you two life. So right. it's not just that they're taking damage. So let's say they play eight spells, right? They go to four. And let's say they yeah. take two damage, they go to two. And they have, you know, eight tokens and a pyromancer. They can't kill you. You've just gained 16 life. Mm-hmm. Those tokens are not going to be able to win the game. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? You make a fair point. The, the card is better positioned against young pyromancer than I was imagining. But no. against Mentor. the deck as a whole, 
Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, the way they remove things is like murderous. We we always get hung up on in the past, right? And this Esper control deck, what other creatures does it have in it? Because if it's just got Cumballs, which I know it won't, if it's just got Cumballs, then it just dies to their lightning bolts. So now we need to talk about the second and third order effects of what other creatures are playing. It's it's funny, like every time they play a misstep or a force, it's three and four damage. So it, yeah, you know, I, get that. I mean, that's funny. Well, like, misstep can't, can't even be played. Like, misstep is. Steve, yeah. Ball won't win you a game by himself. He just N- won't. So, what else are you going on with him? You know what? Because if, if you just play Cumball and they only do things that don't kill Cumball, yeah, they're going to be in a rough spot. But they've got a deck filled what? with lightning bolts and and what? cards to find lightning bolts. So, yeah, they might take 10 damage. You know what? They'll be at 10 when they bolt I... this Cumball and then come over with their team. L- let me present a hypothesis and see if you can contest this. Okay. If you can resolve this on turn, let's just say I can resolve this on turn two or three against a mm-hmm. Pyromancer deck, and they haven't inflicted much, if any, damage at the point you resolve it. Yeah. If you can protect this, and that's all you do is just protect this, yeah. can Young Pyromancer win? I would uh, pause it on the. I would the card Young Pyromancer. Not, no, can't. Not really, no, 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 no. The, the player, the player the playing. Deck. Yeah, they can win. Okay, how? If you can protect this. Have they got Delvers? The have they got Baleful Grixis Strix? Grixis Pyromancer does not run Delver. It does run okay. one Baleful Strix. Well, that deck, probably not very well, no, if you can protect this. That's, so you just said that you don't think that this can win the game by itself. Now, nothing happens by itself. Well, I mean, but, but, you, what but I mean, the caveat you put in, if you can protect this, right? Yeah, if I so, counter every lightning bolt they draw, yeah, that, I'll probably win. That's the thing. But, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a chain of so, ifs that I don't no, think no, is reliable. I, okay, let, let me just... So, when I when you said if that by itself I don't think this can win, how I interpreted that, maybe incorrectly, but how I interpreted that is that you need other cards to win the game. That is, other threats, not answers. Other threats. I think that's true. Okay. So that's how I interpret it. So that's why when I responded by saying, if you can protect it, because I was considering tactic protection exempt from what you talked about, because I interpret mean other threat. I actually think that that may be, I think in a number of matchups like Rix's Pyramid, I think all you have to do is actually just protect it. And if you can just protect this, I think you win the game, it wins the game almost all by itself. Because at some point they're going to get to a, a, a point of life that's so low that they just have to. And if they don't no. scoop, then you will eventually just win because they're boxed in. It's They're completely locked out. It's like having Zer's weirding when they're... At, there, there's a lot of problems with what you're saying. One is that you don't get to go on the offense either, right? If they have young pyromancer, you don't get to attack. No. So there's there's you're boxed in to no. stay sitting back on this. It's like having it's like having no, I I don't agree with that at all. It's like having key vault. You're going to attack into three tokens Kevin, with this? Kevin, no. No. What I'm okay, saying is it's good. like what I'm saying is if you can protect this, it's like having key vault together. It's like it you don't need anything else. Whatever you, any minor thing will eventually playing literally just say draw go for the next and then eventually draw your tendrils. That's what I'm saying is that you can <laughs> I I I don't think you're right. I mean some games could play out kind of like that. Okay. But you're you're giving you're not giving your opponent very much uh, credit for not being a donkey also because they're not just going to they're not just going to run out Gitaxian probe into this. Just they're just. I mean, they're not. They're not going to just play normally Let's and dive. just take 18 damage. Let's dive deep, flush it out. If your experimental pyramid, like or or lightning bolt your Cumball, or draw additional cards to outcounter you so their lightning bolt resolves. The scenario that I've set up is that need any question. What I'm testing, I'm pressure testing a yeah. very specific statement that you made, which is that you don't yeah. need any other offensive threat to win the game. And I'm saying that's your statement. That's my interpret. That's what you said. You said that. 
I said you no. would need other offensive threats I'm to sorry, win the yeah, game. I'm, I'm testing. I'm, I'm <laughs> testing that. I'm testing. Okay. The reason that Grixis Pyromancer is so threat light is because it is so dense with other business. The notion that you could just protect a two-three creature from lightning bolts or or murderous cut is I, I don't think, I mean, you're making it sound like that's a given. You, you can't expect to protect this 2-3 creature in that matchup. The first five spells they play don't actually matter. The fact that, that you do 10 to them and you gain 10 doesn't really matter if the game has just centered around the presence of this Kamal. Like, if you just let them have a Pyromancer and, and then six or five or six tokens, they're just going to draw cards and take the damage and cobble therapy you twice and get two tokens out of it, or one token out of it, and they're going to strip your hand of mental missteps and forces, they're going to bolt your cumball, and they're going to start swinging over for like eight plus a turn. I mean, that's how, again, if you don't have other threats, that's how a game like that is going to go. I think that this strategic pyro, strategic trumps do not mean that they are infallible. They do not mean that they always resolve, or they can always be protected. Okay. Just like there are, you know, sorry, it's not a strategic, it's a tactic. Just like, yeah. just like, Containment Priest is generally a, a tact up to O. I don't think that this is an infallible card. It's not easy to cast. It costs. It's not going to mm-hmm. come down unreliably. But mm-hmm. I think this card is really crazy. I, 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 it could be a game changer. I just okay. think the way it interfaces with the tempo decks and is is the most important feature. This this might be more. <laughs> I don't want to say it's as strong as Leovold, but wow. It's certainly not literally as disruptive as Leovold. Right. But the net effect of yes. could be as oppressive in exactly. a game, right? Exactly, exactly. It, it again, yeah. it goes back to the way in which I can. Let me just state this, just so it's clear. I've I've said this in my gush book. I've said this on in other places. But the way that I conceptualize the game of Magic, like many games, is that both players seek to achieve strategic objectives, and most players, if not all players all simultaneously seek to thwart the opponent's achievement of those objectives. If we understand the game of magic, and especially vintage magic, as jockeying to create paths to victory, that is, options and flexibility, and the opponent's trying to take those away, I mean, that's the whole idea of inevitability, right? Is that your opponent has no path to victory, um, and that you are the only one who has the path to victory. This card does that in such a sweeping yet also non-obvious way <laughs> like mm-hmm. it becomes it becomes incredibly oppressive in terms of an it's an it is a card that exercises inevitability that's actually the best framework for thinking about it this <laughs> card is an is a card that generates inevitability <laughs> that's the simplest pithiest way i can put it to describe this card nice well, it's time for predictions. I want you to go first. <laughs> well, I'm I'm actually going to give you a surprisingly low number because okay. um, I'm just going to say seven, seven, eight is what I'm thinking. I think okay. this is possibly the best card in the set, but that doesn't mean I think it's going to be all over top eights. It takes some time for people to adopt. Um, and I mean, what? Like, there's only like a hundred top eight. I mean, the the card that sees the most top eights like in a year in an island period is like a hundred, right? Yeah. So so uh, I think seven or eight suggests this is going to be like you know probably a one or two in the top eight of the vintage champs, something like that. That sounds are right you, to me. Are you calling a shot that there will be one of these in the top eight of champs? I would if be. If you are, I want to write it down. I would be. I think there's a fifty fifty chance this will be in at least one deck in in vintage champs top eight. All right. That's some that's some good hedging. <laughs> well, I, I am clearly not as excited about this card as you. I acknowledge that it's playable, and I think you've identified some important 
uh, impacts to matchups and important uh, decks where it will see its play. I don't feel like many Esper Mentor players will adopt this. Yeah, and I, I'm so, not. That's why my seven is is I think it's going to be a mix. I think it's going to yeah. be like a, a, a Esper Mentor or two, like kind of like a multicolor control or two, a Hate Bears or two. Maybe it'll show up in like some random white black hate deck. You know who knows? But I think it, I think it just has so much power that it's bound to appear. It's too hmm. it's too powerful. It's too potent given the configuration of the format. You're right. It's not great against shops. We haven't even talked about how effective it against Dredge. It's slow against Dredge, but Dredge actually does play spells. Let's not get it twisted here, you know. Yeah, not very many. Not very many, but it does actually need to play spells. Yeah, they're going to kill you by playing three or four spells, though. It's not going to be effective. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with. But you two. know, you know what's interesting though is this plus Leyline or something like that does make it. You know, it does feed the Leoval. I mean, feed the uh, the Cumball. You know, so any Dredge hate with this makes it almost impossible for Dredge to actually remove the hate over time. Yeah, I just don't see it. I win. There, I think that. Uh, so you're saying two? That's your prediction for this card? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> well, part of the fun of our predictions, though, right? This is where we we get to express our differing views. Well, I I think it just it. I'm very heavily weighted on what I see as the structure of the metagame. I think the number one threat in the metagame are gush decks, despite okay. the fact that I think. Workshop decks outperform gush decks. The greater proportion of the metagame are gush strategies. Okay. True. <laughs> uh, then workshop decks. Those are the two things you have to beat. And I yeah. think there are very few. Th- part of the reason blue decks are so good is because there's so few tactics that trump blue decks in the entire game of Magic. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's they're so resilient because there's no silver bullet to blue decks. Well, this gets about as close as you can get. Well, I find that I. The fact that this doesn't stop your opponent from drawing cards via gush and whatnot is going to limit its effectiveness. If it did, then it wouldn't be as effective. The whole point is that you 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 <laughs> you want them to play more spells so they dig their own grave. You give them their own rope to kill to hang themselves. Yeah, I, I think in certain in certain scenarios that will work, and I just I just don't think it's going to be reliable. That's all. I, I think but the, the I think we got to move on. The one hedge th- enough about Cumball. The one hedge, though, I would just say is that if there's more gush decks that move to like I don't know Deathrite Shaman based versions like your decks, that that makes us a lot weaker because then you can just ride Deathrite or things like that to the end. That that's, that's true. Yeah, but but as Death it stands, as it stands, most gush decks don't run more than six or seven creatures. Yeah, true. Next up, ceremonious rejection. This card's pretty simple. Blue instant. <laughs> Counter-target, colorless spell. <laughs> finally, finally, simply. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, don't speak too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Hung firmly in cheek. Yeah, I know. So um, we don't have to, to, to bandy about with things like mana cost and stuff here. Uh, this card is Steel Sabotage that cannot bounce but can counter Thought Not Seer and its ilk, you know, ignoring Cavern for the moment. So... I think we can skip a lot of formalities when we're normally talking about cards and just talk about how much can this or should this replace Steel Sabotage. <laughs> uh, how many Steel Sabotages are in top eights? Yeah, you know what? I knew you were going to ask that. And since mid-June, there have been quite a few. Since, let's say arbitrarily, since there weren't any events between the 12th and the 18th of June, then it looks like there were 16 16 appearances of Steel Sabotage. That was in sideboards. 
which where it normally lives, and I would just want to confirm, yes, uh, one appearance in the main <laughs> deck. In the <sighs> oh, 17 appearances of Steel Sabotage in that time period. Now, it, it's worth noting that Steel Sabotage does serve a couple of different purposes in the format, because depending on the deck you're playing, uh, it, we, we know, all know it's, it's highly effective against workshops, but it's also used to counter certain other key artifacts. When you put Steel Sabotage into an Oath deck, for example then it's doing work against Grafdigger's Cage. And when you put it in a control deck, it's doing work against, say, mm, what's the card Light, I'm thinking of? Lightsteel. Oh, sorry. In a, in a control deck. In a control deck, it's doing work against Defense Grid out of yes. Dark Petition, for example. Yeah. Um, now, granted, this Ceremonious Rejection will still work in both of those contexts, but Bouncing of Grafdigger's Cage, for example, is a very real use for an Oath deck for a Steel Sabotage, because you can let it resolve early, get your Oath down, and then bounce it late to, to get a one-turn Oath activation in play. That kind of thing does happen. But we, we have to be honest with ourselves, though, right? What percentage of Steel Sabotage usage is against workshops? 80 or 90% probably? Yeah, probably. Yeah. And then the question becomes, what percentage of that is counter versus bounce? And that's really difficult for me that's, to tease out. Yeah, me too. I don't use Steel Sabotage a lot. I mean, that's, again, a Brian Kelly card. He uses... Yeah. He, he, I think he uses Steel Sabotage in his Esper Mentor decks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have played Steel Sabotage in my in sideboards of various decks, probably four or five different decks over the course of the last th- two or three years now. I've played it in the sideboard of Mentor. I've played it in the sideboard of three and four color control uh, in, in Bug and some, some Land Still in just several different decks. And... I still don't have a bead on what percentage of the time I'm countering versus bouncing. Interesting. I, I feel like Let's just assume it's, it's weighted fi- toward countering. Yeah. It's weighted toward countering. That much is certain. But not very heavily. I, my estimate is probably 70% counter, 30% bounce. Interesting. Now, granted, if, you're play, if you chose to play Ceremonious Rejection, it would alter how you play and possibly other sideboard selections. So... That I guess another way of putting it is I could have played some of those steel sabotages that I bounced with. I could have played differently and saved yeah. them for counters. Right. Uh, so you know, it's not to say that I'm just cutting off 30% of my steel sabotage castings. It's not quite that simple. Well, and also, you would invariably sideboard and play slightly differently with just the ceremonious rejection. Let's just assume for the sake of this discussion that you, that you would evenly split 50-50. Okay. So useful for discussion. Yeah, because yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to try and figure this out from a seventy thirty or sixty. Well, we we can't possibly do it accurately. We can only do it, you know, guesswork. Right. <laughs> so let's just assume that, and then let's proceed. So you get the yeah. counter part of it. The question is, does the broader scope of application warrant either usage in general or use? Not just. Let's just be clear. It it ca- it counters all colorless. There are artifacts that are not colorless, though. Uh, true. So, but not. But very few of them see play in vintage. Right. I mean, there there have been few, like Master of Ethereum or, yeah, you know, cards of that ilk. Um, it's but, worth noting that Eldrazi Displacer, while requiring white mana, is devoid. Is, is it's right? It's yeah, so. colorless. <laughs> Thank you. And, and so <laughs> are and so are uh, aren't. Um, yes. Got it. Yeah, that's that's the example I was coming up and coming up with. There are cards that do include color mana requirement and yet are considered colorless. So, well, another funny example might be engineered explosives, 
Right. You put you put exactly. a mana into engineer explosives quite purposefully. Still a colorless yes, spell. Still a colorless spell. Yeah. So first of all, let's just be clear that the set of these these cards have different. I think this card has a broader scope of application in terms of countering, but there are cards that steal sabotage and counter that this can't. I just wanted to be clear about that. Yeah, um, that's worth that's worth stating. I think it's weighted far in favor of the ceremonies rejection. Not even close. So yeah. so one thing I want to point out is that artifact and colorless. As between the other lands and color and, and colored spells, constitutes the the greatest plurality in terms of be, a class of cards of played cards in vintage. So there are more artifact and colorless spells that are quote playable in vintage than actually blue spells that are playable in vintage, which may, people might find surprising. So, <laughs> so in other words, I'm not saying that there are better cards. I'm just saying there's a larger class of cards. So what that means is that. Like, for example, Red Elemental Blast's counter function has fewer targets in the vintage card pool, and by vintage I mean cards that see vintage play in tournament top eights, than this card would, Unceremonious Rejection. Um, so take that for what you will, but there are, what that means is there are a hell of a lot of cards you can counter. And, and the critical question <laughs> for Steel Sabotage is, uh, what are the cards that this will hit that Steel Sabotage won't, and the most obvious class of cards are the Eldrazi. Mm-hmm. So, take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> so if you if you posit that you can get away with uh, not bouncing artifacts and gain a lot more value from countering Thought Not Seer and Reality Smasher out of workshops, yeah. or countering nearly any non-caverned spell in you know, the Jayco Drazi style decks. Yeah. If you feel that way, you know, anecdotally, then this card is a, a great upgrade, basically. Yep. Um, now, I, I would I would posit that no one feels exactly that way. You know, no one probably feels that thoroughly. People value the bounce of, you know, uh, it, contextually, people value the bounce of Steel Sabotage probably pretty highly, actually. And I would wager that there are people out there who would say, I'm just not even willing to swap these out <laughs> there are probably some people who feel that way and that might be the right thing to do in certain matchups or certain decks it might be just critical from a tempo standpoint that the only way to deal with with your artifacts op- opponents threats is to bounce them or at least have the flexibility i should say to bounce them or there might be certain decks that don't fear the eldrazi nearly so much which is another reasonable thing and feel like they want the flexibility to say bounce tangle wire on their upkeep with the trigger on the stack that kind yeah, of thing yeah exactly which is a, a pretty powerful use case yeah. for steel sabotage yeah, bounce yeah I, I remember so, watching brian kelly in the vsl i think there was a specifically a rare game where he drew the steel sabotage at just the right moment to win the game and i can't uh-huh. remember whether he count, it was countering something or bouncing something <laughs> uh. Well, there's no denying that a top-decked ceremonious rejection is going to be bad, or at least a you know an unfortunate draw in in a non-zero amount of occasions when steel sabotage has yeah. far fewer of those. <clears throat> but and also it's worth noting that we you know it's, it, as soon as your opponent your Eldrazi playing opponent plays Cavern of Souls on Eldrazi, then your ceremonious rejection is basically for nothing <laughs> with some some minor exceptions so saying that 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 points me to certain decks will be able to make better use of this card than others namely wasteland decks like landstill for example landstill can reliably 
wasteland a cavern on Eldrazi and then proceed to start countering creatures again. True enough. That's a, a very True real enough. use case. And, and uh, within reason, you know, Leovold bug notwithstanding, that's basically the only wasteland plus counterspell deck in the format that's, uh, that's a significant factor right, right now. So you landstill players might want to perk up a little bit and think about this if you're in the business of playing Steel Sabotage already, or if you're maybe looking for additional help against Eldrazi. That's very real. I also think that there are some decks for which Thought Not Seer is just a bigger problem than others. They're just they're just having a hard time dealing with it or finding good outs, and this can help there, like especially what? in the in the Ravager Thought Not matchup where Cavern is not typically a factor. Right. Well, I knew you were going to say. I knew you were going to ask me like what the the best example I can think of is um, Oath. Actually, interesting. Because I just where, I view Thought Not is a universal problem, not a matchup problem. <laughs> it's, um, just, it's just that some decks are better at dealing with it, or, and or yeah. its triggered ability is less detrimental in some matchups. Why Oath? Because you take the Oath, snagging Oath. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna. I was thinking. I think. I think it's probably decks that are more heterogeneous, right? Where if they can keep you off of Oath for the first two turns, thanks to Thorn and Wasteland or something, and then they play Thought Not Seer and snag your Oath, and all of a sudden. You know, you're just out of options you know, for the foreseeable future. That's kind of what I'm talking about. In my opinion, Oath is a little more susceptible to Thought Not's disruptive capabilities than, say, Mentor, right? In Mentor, what are they taking? They're taking, they're taking your Mentor, maybe if, you have, if you're about to get it down, or they're taking a Swords to Plowshares if you can't immediately cast it. But they're not, they're not cutting you off of your, your primary strategy in, in a lot of cases. That's, that's all I'm saying. Now, Grant, you might say that well, if they take your mentor, that's as bad as taking your oath. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't entirely agree, that's, though. That's why I was going well, I, because I... the mentor deck has plows. That's that's kind of what I'm getting at, right? They take your mentor, the mentor deck, and it still has like three plows and three more mentors to draw into. Yeah, but you have if a very limited oath, number of time to fi- find it. Yeah, that's... but compared to oath, though, if they take your oath, what's your plan? Find another oath. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I'm getting at. You're more impacted in my opinion, in those kind of matchups. So I think a deck like Oath can benefit from this being able to counter a Thought Not Seer slightly more than certain other homogenous blue decks, for example. Look, I mean, maybe the best example is at the other end of the spectrum is Grixis Pyromancer, right? What are you taking in that matchup that is that is strategically advantageous? <laughs> the answer is very little, right? I mean, yeah. there's just nothing you can take out of that deck that's they're like, oh, you got my this, I can't win. <laughs> you see my point? Yes, I do. Okay. I do. I, I, That's all. Um, I, so I think that I, I won't debate. I won't debate. I don't entirely mind. agree with what you're saying, but I won't debate the point because it's not really directly relevant to what we're we're trying to resolve, well, which is how how playable this card is. I, I well, what we're trying to resolve is where will this see play and how, and what quantity is this? I can't imagine how what I just said doesn't speak to. Well, because exactly to that, the, because the question the, the <laughs> question building, let me let me explain let me explain let me explain the issue of whether this is thought not seer for example is just broadly useful or is better or worse in some matchups I don't think is going to actually bear on whether people will use this particular card or not I think they'll use it because they want to address I don't think that difference makes much of a difference I don't think saying well thought not seer because it's really good against me. I'm going to use this card. I think I, if you're building a Pyromancer deck right now, you, Stephen Menden, you're putting the other yeah. Pyromancer deck, and you look at these two cards, and you're going to put some copies of 
one or two of them in your sideboard, you know, two copies, I mean, of one or the other in your sideboard, isn't that exactly what you're thinking? Isn't isn't how good is Thought Not well, Fear I wasn't me exactly while you're evaluating this card? Well, I guess what I would say is, again, I just I can't get away from thinking that Jake Odrazi is just a, diff- a diffuse metagame threat, and oh, yeah. it's it's just generically good against a lot of matchups. And I don't think it has any really bad matchups. Yeah. And I don't think it really, I mean, I don't think it really has any, yeah, I think it's just that. I, I don't think there's a deck that's like going to say, my God, I beat everything in this format except Jake Odrazi. Tell me what that deck is, <laughs> and, okay. and and how this and how this card would solve that. <laughs> I think you know? you're pigeonholing my observations about Thought Not Seer to specifically the Eldrazi deck. Uh, Thought Not Seer's prevalence in the metagame is is more numerically in workshops than it is in Eldrazi. It, it, if you play Thought Not Seer in champs, uh, probably two thirds of your opponents that cast Thought Not Seer are going to be workshop players, and one third will be Eldrazi players. So. For for you to oh that's a that's a tough dichotomy. So you mean like so emphasis on emphasis on Eldrazi, right? Like they'll probably I, most of them will have Eldrazi. I think two thirds of them will have Eldrazi. Wait 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 hold on slow down. No no no. I'm not saying what proportion of workshop decks have Eldrazi. I'm saying what proportion of Thought Not Seer decks are workshop decks. Oh got it. Okay got it. Sorry. I'm, I'm saying that I think two thirds of workshop. Oh sorry. Two thirds of Thought Not Seer decks at champs are going to be workshop decks. The remaining third will be Eldrazi, like Jake Eldrazi decks. Or White Eldrazi. And, and, yeah. yeah, or White Eldrazi. And the distinction there is Cavern, right? So what I'm talking about is the utility of Ceremonious Rejection Got speaks it. directly to how good is the Thought Not Seer part of those workshop decks against me, as opposed to how good am I against Eldrazi. It's, it's still a relevant question, don't get me wrong. But the thing is, the presence of Cavern in all of those Eldrazi decks it powerfully diminishes the utility of this whole discussion. Okay, right? okay, okay. That's I, what I'm getting at. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think, let me be clear what I meant earlier. I might have misspoke what I was intending to say, but what I meant to say is that I don't think that the, uti- the fear a particular player or pilot has of Thought Not Seer is going to really shape the degree to which people will decide to include this card. I think the fear is more going to be based on fearing the Eldrazi archetype, but not necessarily just thought not seer. Well, and so let me let me just carry the thought let me carry the thought out. Let, let me ca- let me thought process. Let me finish the thought because yeah. I think there is a match, a deck in Vintage that probably is pretty weak to Jack, strategically weak to Jack Eldrazi, and would consider using this, and that okay. is probably Merfolk. Uh, yeah, I mean that's the kind of deck that I could see using this kind of thing. It's like yeah, you're right. When when I said earlier that there weren't um, that there really weren't any other blue wasteland decks, I was. Uh, I was not thinking of, work, of Merfolk at all, but mostly that's because Merfolk is kind of a non-factor right now. I mean, yeah, but this yeah, kind I mean, this kind of printing could no, help them. I mean, that's work, Merfolk put up two top eights in in July and one in May, and then the one before that was in January. So technically, using the the metric we've been using, it was two in the last cycle, but I mean, it's four year to date. So yeah, if you think that if I mean if you think that there's going to be another Merfolk top eight this quarter, <laughs> which I would predict at most one, uh, then yeah, that seems like a reasonable home. So so that's an example of a matchup that would probably fear your uh, you know f- yeah, fear fear. I agree, but I don't think it's specifically a fear of thought knots here. I think it's I think it's more a fear of just the strategy. 
Um, uh, yeah, that's fine. I just think, I mean, okay, okay. so for, from the standpoint I mean, of Merfolk, I would agree, but from your average player who is playing Steel Sabotage, which is, uh, you know, the average of those is a Gush player, be it versus Pyro or, or Mentor, the, the, the calculus on whether or not you take out your Steel Sabotage and put in Ceremonious Rejection, I think, hinges very powerfully. You know, 60 or 70% of the question is, would I rather counter Thought Not Seer when I'm playing against shops? That's that's going to be the primary use case. What, you know, you play ten rounds at champs this year. Yeah, I mean, the, that's going to be the primary difference. And not that use case. I mean, difference is you're going to be sitting here and they're going to put Thought Not Steer onto the stack, and you're going to be finally I put ceremonious rejection in my sideboard instead of seals tabasaz for this exact <laughs> scenario. <laughs> because realistically, that that's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. realistically, you're, you are so, going to play against Jaco Drazi well, as champs. Well, the number of decks that would use this are pretty narrow. I mean, so, I mean... The number of decks are narrow? I mean, there were there were 18 top well, eights. Right, but but first of all, you, there are, you know, blue decks are only, I don't know, like 60% of the vintage metagame. Let's just say 60%, right? And then among those, there are blue decks that use counter spells and those that use very few. Yeah. Um, of the ones that do use use them, how many of them are going to be put this in the sideboard as opposed to some other tactic to combat Eldrazi? And I think... Right, right. Yeah, it's just not clear. Well, I mean, but putting this combat Eldrazi, I, I, I feel like that's a an, an unfortunate framing. What you're doing is you're gaining ground against Eldrazi with one of your workshop cards. That's what you're doing. A deck that currently has Steel Sabotage leaves them in the sideboard against Eldrazi. You understand, right? And so by putting Ceremonious Rejection in that slot, you've gained sideboard cards for that match. These, yeah, so, they're, so they're tell, me, tell me exactly what deck you think will use this. Just b- besides Merfolk, like what deck would you possibly use this? I think this would be used by Mentor. I think this would be used by Multicolor Control, like Planeswalker, Jeskai, Esper kind of control. Okay. I think this would be used by Oath. Yeah, I, this I, could, could be used by Pyro Grove, a little less so. Don't get me wrong. I think this is vintage playable. I just think it's very fringe. And... And I don't know that I feel very confident. I don't confident. understand how you're arriving at that metric. When when Steel Sabotage is a widely popular sideboard card. You, know, you said 18... 18 yeah, in the sideboard. 18 top 8s. That's a high number. In the, in, the la- in the last period, right? Yeah, in the yeah. last period. I don't, I don't get how you're... You, you seem to be dismissing the Steel Sabotage <laughs> as unplayable. I, no. I don't understand. So okay. this, is, this is comparable to Steel Sabotage, better in certain matchups. That is surprising. That is a lot. Yeah. Well... I don't see how it is. I mean, yeah, I guess you don't play Steel Sabotage decks, and if you don't, then you wouldn't see it, but it's it's popular. Okay. So, so some percentage of those Steel Sabotages are going to become Ceremonious Rejection. Some people will add Ceremonious Rejection to their deck when they were, couldn't stomach playing Steel Sabotage because it helps against Eldrazi. Well, I think we've right? done it. I, I, like the Merkle yeah. players you're talking about that don't, they might not play Steel Sabotage today, but they would be incentivized to play this. Well, I, you know, so we've, I think we've done every bit of analysis that needs to be done for this. I think we're, mm-hmm. you know, we, we discussed how this compares to Steel Sabotage. You know, we, we discussed that we've assumed for the sake of argument that you bounce half the time. So, you know, and obviously right. the scope of application, meaning specifically the fact that this can deal with Eldrazi, and I don't know what other colorless cards there are, but um, means that this has more utility in terms of countering than Steel Sabotage. But I don't know if that's enough to overcome the lack of the bounce feature. So I don't think this will see as much play as Steel Sabotage. I think probably not. Yeah. So why don't you tell? Give me a prediction. How? But why don't you start on this? You're the most pro of this I, card. So how many cards? Do you, how many? Yeah. I think that people, I think that, boy, it's going to be interesting, but my instincts tell me that people who are very experienced 
in playing steel, steel sabotage will be resistant to this because they value the sabotage's flexibility. I think they will see, they will say, I can deal with thought, not fear. It's not so important for me to counter that as it is to have the, the more powerful flexibility. So I'm just going to keep with this modal spell. I think there will be resistance to making the change to this card because of that. I believe that those players are probably underselling the value of countering Thought Not Seer and, and maybe overvaluing the bounce to a degree. So I would encourage people who, for whom that is the knee-jerk reaction to, you know, maybe do a little bit more testing than just theorizing. That said, I agree with you that fewer more people will stick with Steel Sabotage as a whole for, for numerous reasons. Certain decks, I think it's the right choice. Um, but I also think that some new players will be inspired by this card. The sort of people who are the sort of people who are playing their their modified legacy Delver decks at champs, of which we know there will be several. I think those players who maybe don't have any history with Steel Sabotage will look at this card and think that hey, this is a great answer to Shops and Eldrazi, and they're right, you know, all things considered. So I think there's kind of competing factors as to how popular this is going to be. I think let me put it this way: I think there will be the total of Steel Sabotage before this printing. And the total steel sabotage plus ceremonious rejection will be higher after this printing. <laughs> that's that's kind of what I'm I think. That, I think that might be wrong. Let me a do one reason of a conversion of some players and an influx of some new players is going to mean the total of the let, two will be higher than the original number. Let, let me give you one reason that might not be true. Okay. I think fragmentize is going to eat up real estate for this card and steel sabotage because a deck yeah. that would use steel sabotage would be a deck that doesn't have red or green. Because it doesn't have the best anti-artifact answers, and so the best next one is maybe Steel Sabotage. I think you know, fra- that's fair. That's fair. So the Fragmentize does suck up some of the oxygen for this card. I'm glad you said that because, yeah, I think I think what I said was not taking that into account. <clears throat> okay, if so Esper, give, bring it home. Bring it home. Well, if Esper Mentor does show an increase, as we've predicted for a handful of reasons, previously that might be the sort of deck that would play a couple of these. Now. I think it. I think some players who are looking for new cards would probably value fragmentize over this ceremonious rejection. Yeah, that's a very good point. That really that really does temper what I think is going to be the ultimate result. And so I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with three. Oh God! <laughs> I was going to take the under, but that's a pretty low. I'll I'll go two. I'll go okay. two. <laughs> Next is even more fun. Metallurgic summonings for three blue blue enchantment. Oh yeah. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, create an XX colorless construct artifact creature token where X is that spell's converted mana cost. Three UU exile metallurgic summonings return all instant and sorcery cards from your graveyard to your hand. Activates this ability only if you control six or more artifacts. So I really enjoy this card. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be playing it at some point, but probably not at champs. <laughs> <laughs> um, this card is way fun, right? This mana cost matches Tezzeret's exactly, and it also happens to kind of inform that mana cost. Kind of informs how you would construct a deck because this card and Tezzeret are very similar in that you are including them because you'd like to play them fast and early, right? Um, now it doesn't end the game quite as proximately as Tezzeret does, but there's a chance that it wouldn't be far behind because this check, this trigger condition checks for a spell's converted mana cost, and Vintage is pretty good 
at paying far less mana for a spell than its converted mana cost would be lie. <laughs> right? Between gush, force, misstep, dismember, treasure cruise, dig through time, snuff out, all of those spells cost far less mana, some frequently zero, as compared to their actual mana cost. I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know how reliable that can be. Yeah. Honestly, this, but this is the class. There's so much fun to be had. Really, you don't play five mana spells just as a general principle. Right. You know, four is usually the limit uh, unless there's an alternative mana cost involved, uh, and even then, four is only if you're playing. Um, you're more Moxen than just the on-color Moxen. Uh, the only way in a Gush deck you can really get to five or more is if you're playing with Lotus Cobra or Dark Ritual. Um, but, yeah, but but this is not out of the realm of playability in a Gush deck. Um, but we haven't even hit on the the second ability, really. Yeah, the second ability, I mean... <sighs> If you're if you're concerned about the mana cost, then the second ability also costing five mana has got to be a concern as well. But realistically, though, one of the this I would posit that this card functions kind of like a planeswalker of a sort, <laughs> in that you put it out and then it kind of protects itself, which is really just protecting you, because theoretically you're going to want to be able to announce some kind of free instant or something as soon as you play it. Ideally, you play this and and then you gush, which is Obviously, because if you, we're theorizing about a Gush deck that's casting this, you're going to have to be playing Gush in order to cast it a lot of the time. So you're going to have to get lucky to have a second Gush in your hand. Um, but the, because the turn the turn you untap with this could be crazy things could happen. Yeah. It's still not quite <laughs> as crazy as what Mentor can do, for example, in terms yeah. of raw power. So let's just game it out. Like, let's just sequence it out. Like, what are the, some of the sequences that we would be reasonably experienced here? Do, do you mean from a deck like from a sequencing no. standpoint? Yeah, seek a gameplay. Like how? What are some realistic situations here? Well, I think because this is five mana, you're going to have to build your deck around defending yourself to get to a point where you can actually announce this. I agree. Now you might do that by being a token generating deck to begin with, since you're clearly incentivized to be playing spells. So this could be the high end in a pyromancer or well, mentor shell. You don't def- defense doesn't necessarily mean token generation. It could just mean no. a really high high density of removal slash counter magic. Absolutely. I mean this yeah. could be this this could be the sort of deck that just happens to play like landstill and then yes. have this at the high end. So it's, I think that's reasonable, but it's harder. I think you're you, you you're, you're going you're back to deck design to play that yeah. role in a deck in Vintage these days, because it involves so many specific cards that are bad in certain matchups. You don't want to be the deck that has, like, six plows in it when you go up against Oath, necessarily, or Dark Petition Storm. Granted, those six plows will be pretty nice against Jake Odrazi, but yeah. the point is is, is that I well, do think defense in Vintage today implies one of two directions. I think it implies token generation or it implies moat. Interesting. There hasn't been much successful other than that. So, well, Landstill, I think. Counts. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say Landstill. Those uh, blue moon type strategies. Those those don't do either one of those. Uh, uh blue moon is a, a weird animal, right? I mean, blue moon won't be able to maximize this as it's currently built because it has a ton of creatures and other permanents. It's got right like multiple other enchantments in the the form of blood moon, multiple other creatures with trinket mages, multiple artifacts, engineering explosives, and the cage and that kind of thing. In order for Blue Moon to play this card, it would have to just become a, a different deck, in my eyes. You wouldn't call it Blue Moon anymore. Uh, um, but, you know, maybe that's just semantics. To your point okay. of 
<clears throat> how do you defend yourself with Blue Moon? Well, I think the answer is is that you are disrupting your opponent. You're putting small creatures in the way with Trinket Mage, and you're tutoring up removal. You know, Trinket Mage goes and gets engineered explosives, that kind of thing, plus uh, you know a healthy amount of counter spells. Blue Moon doesn't play a lot of removal, though. It's not rife with lightning bolts or similar things. There is another intriguing element of this card, is that usually win conditions are duplicative and have really low marginal utility. You know, yeah. The second one is not very good. That's not the case here. That I yeah. think the second one is... This is like Mentor. The second one is just I Avalanche. Think, I think the second one's better than the second Mentor. The marginal utility of the second Metallurgic Summonings is probably higher because you get a 5-5 five, five, and then, yeah, it's it's Avalanche. And then also you can use Hold one... On. You, you don't get a 5-5. Five, five. It only triggers off instances. It's just sorry, sorry. You don't get a 5-5, five, five, but you can then use one to recoup all your other things so the other one still functions. So you can oh, yeah, okay. That's a fair point. Yeah, using the second ability of the first one. Yeah, it, it's the second one. It's yeah. a this is both a continuous effect and a discrete effect, you know, one yeah. off. So yeah. it's it's pretty sweet. Uh, you could so let's just I, I you didn't answer the question I asked you, which was okay. Sequence it out in the game, like just imagine a, a generic blue deck. But but since you shifted into kind of like thinking about where it might fit, like. What if you just had, like, let's say, a blue control deck with four of these as your win condition, and then the rest of the cards were, you know, mana, counter magic, and removal, for the most part? Yeah. How would that kind of... Let's just imagine how you would sequence that out. Part of the game plan, obviously, would be to try and deploy this as quickly as possible, and then from yep. there, you go into kind of like a grow mode, which is you just play counter magic and yeah. let this take over. Uh, so I think you're a gush deck, just because the synergy is too too powerful. Yeah. I think you're, uh, you think you're blue-black, at least... Because the the two black removal spells are so good with this dismember and, and snuff, and you really this deck this card really incentivizes you to want to also play either mindbreak trap or misdirection. Yeah, in your sideboard, probably. I mean, you could play mindbreak no. trap in main. I think. You could also play but a misdirection in the main deck. Yeah, misdirection. Well, I mean, you want more of those free spells that will trigger this. Misdirection certainly fits the bill. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm leery of getting greedy, but. You're right. Those spells are much better. In well, you could imagine four force, one misdirection, mind break trap. That's a reasonable place to start. Yeah, could be. So, but I think the the real question is how are turns say two through three, two three and four? Um, how are those turns going? Because I could see playing trinket mage in this deck with the primary use case being go get me mana, right? Black yeah, lotus. Black lotus. Uh, Mana Crypt, Sol Ring, that kind of thing, so that I can reasonably expect to play Metallurgic Summonings the turn after Trinket Mage, and I'm not diluting my deck very much with a lot more Accelerants. Because I think there's a risk that you build this like Turbo Tez, and you have just way too many artifacts. So I can see that kind of approach. don't think Lotus Cobra is, is right for Vintage right now, just because of how much creature removal there is. Great. So I think that either Trinket Mage or its Gush, with maybe more emphasis toward Gush Bond... Right, because fast bond plus gush makes this easier to cast than just gush by itself. Of course, beyond that, I'm not sure. I mean, I think you're playing defense. I think you're playing some snapcaster mage and or Jace Vrin's prodigy because you get triple extra benefit from flashing back spells, <laughs> especially Jace Vrin's prodigy. Right, because then the oh, gush God. that let you resolve metallurgic summonings can be the gush that gives you your first token next turn. It's a good thing they restricted the delve spells because they're insane with this. <laughs> eight oh, eight. Yeah. <laughs> Good grief. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Landstill isn't going to be able to curve out to five mana very easily. Very difficult. I mean, it does play Supreme yeah. Verdict and Jace the Mind Sculptor, so it's not Supreme all... Supreme Verdict is, has very bad synergy with this card, though. Well, yes and no. 
<laughs> I mean, you can can't you put this trigger on the stack? No, no, because it will. No matter what you do, it's above supreme verdict. On the yeah, stack. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, it, I. W- I, I wouldn't say that if this deck became blue-white that you wouldn't ever put a Supreme Verdict in the sideboard because that's a good yeah. card in certain matchups, but it's not a reason to play this card. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I just feel I feel like you're going to have a three-mana creature in this deck. I feel like you're going to be a Mentor deck and or a Trinket Mage deck because the Trinket Mage is so good at letting you resolve this or getting you to cast it, I should say. Mentor is just highly synergistic with all the spells we've already put in. Um so maybe we're thinking about this card all wrong. Maybe you don't build a metallurgic summonings deck. Maybe you just put this as your high end and Esper Mentor or Bomberman. Yeah, Although I don't. Bomberman s- doesn't play Gush. Does no Bomberman's too permanent heavy. I mean, Mentor is really good, and obviously Mentor goes in a lot of things. But I, 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 I can't escape the feeling that you really want to go high end counter magic like Mindbreak Trap Misdirection. Maybe the best place for something like this is a Mystic Remora deck. And you just got, like, the Vintage Enchantment deck. Granted, you don't have Standstill. <laughs> but Mr. Grimora seems to fit the bill. First of all, Mr. Grimora means that you can play high-density counter magic, and you can play yeah. high-density pitch in otherwise, like, you know, Mind Break Trap type effects. Yeah. Secondly, you're going to want to play a lot of artifact mana, which will help you cast this. So it's like you play Mr. Grimora until you can cast this, and then you cast that, and that's your win condition. Well, I think that's... I think that's feasible. I think that in that scenario, Monastery Mentor is better than this card. Yeah. Um, just because of it's better against so many matchups, and it rewards you for a different, uh, you know, a greater diversity of spells. Ah. Mentor triggers off of all the artifact mana and the yeah. rewards. How how quickly? Okay, let's put let me put it a different way because it's clear that the problem with this card is the the presence of Monastery Mentor <laughs> as as a grow as a grow cre- growing creature. If you were to have Monastery Mentor in play, or let's say I had Monastery Mentor and you had yeah. this, who wins? Mentor player is going to get more tokens. Metallurgic summoning players' tokens are going to be larger Bigger. on average. Yeah. At least, you know, on average, meaning on both players' turns. Yeah, all things, <laughs> the all things equal. Grow up and be, yeah, the monks are still going to be bigger in combat, though. And even these, I mean, they're going to be comparable to these 5-5 five, five constructs that we're getting off of Gush and Force of Will. So I guess it kind of that scenario I guess kind of comes down to removal on the part of the metallurgic summonings player because the mentor player is going to have a really hard time removing this enchantment. The, yes, it's also not easy to counterspell either. Can't fluster stormed. Yeah, you know, so on. Agreed. So, um, so I, I guess I would say I, that's still pretty draw dependent. It's kind of close. The tr- the trick in my eyes is that did the mentor player kill you before you got to five mana? Or at least, you know, yeah. turn after you play. Yeah, the, the mana efficiency really becomes the critical factor here. Right. That, that Mentor's so much more efficient. But this 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 has, again, that, that end-of-game effect. Yeah. You know, you only that's, need... That's why that's why I find myself wondering if, if this isn't just Monastery Mentor's 5 or 6. <laughs> Interesting. Pair this with Monument Monastery. Mon- Mon- yeah. Wow. There's already, all the synergies already baked in. You As you've alluded to, you'd have to go larger on your mana. But otherwise, from a deck construction standpoint, you know, Esper Mentor already is doing all the things that this card wants, in my eyes. I wonder if all of the things in this set are going to conspire to make that deck really hum. I wonder if the presence of Fragmentize is going to make the Esper Mentor just that little bit much better against shops, such that you can afford to put a 5-mana Mentor at the top of your curve 
to get advantage over the other men, the other gush decks. Yeah. You know, let's do another bit of analysis. If you're Esper Mentor, do you want this or do you want Kambal? Because if everything you said before is any indication, I think you we want Kambal. Yeah. But this Metallurgic Summoning will kill your opponent faster than Kumball. I mean, assuming you have any number of other spells in addition to it, and it doesn't take many other spells, right? You just play this, and then you force force of will one thing, and you've already got a Waster Clock than Kumball by himself. <laughs> but that's pretty context-sensitive, right? It has everything to do with how many spells they're playing, etc. I'd live for the tension that this card creates the moment you play it. <laughs> even, if, even if you're on an empty board... Or, or let's say let's say your opponent is is even ahead. They've got a couple of creatures. Maybe you're not dead this turn to a mentor, but maybe they've got a pyromancer and a couple of tokens, right? You you played this on turn three or four thanks to your gush plus accelerants. They couldn't counter it because they were holding force of will and misstep. I'm sorry, flusterstorm and misstep. And so now it's their turn, and they've got maybe they've got gush in their hand, or maybe they draw a gush for the turn. And they look at you, and you're tapped out with Metallurgic Summonings in play, and they've got a Pyromancer and some tokens. Are they just going to say, attack? Because what if one of your tapped lands is an Underground Sea? What if they attack you, and you snuff their Pyromancer, and then block one of their tokens God. with a 4-4? Four, four? <laughs> yeah. And they don't want to play any spells pre-combat, because you could have Force of Will or Mental Misstep, so they're going to have to attack first. But then they announce Gush, and you say, okay, I'll force it. And even if your force doesn't, res- I mean, even if they fluster your force and draw their cards, they st- you still got a five-five out of the deal. Wow! I think this this card, if you can live to playing it, produces delicious tension. It really does. Yeah, and I think this card, unlike a mentor, actually can overcome a Draco Drowsy deck. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point because now if they cast their their Endbringer off of Cavern, you can still force of will it. Get plenty of value. Yeah, that's really interesting and. Man, the first time that murderous, you murderous announce Treasure Cruise with this in play, it's going to feel so good. Yeah, it's the most expensive vintage deck ever built. The highest. <laughs> you mean mana in terms curve. of mana cost? Yeah. <laughs> murderous Funny. cut, snuff out, misdirection, force of will, gush. Don't play Dark <laughs> Confidant in this deck. <laughs> nope. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like this card is, is too greedy. I think our comparison to Mentor, just at face value, this uh, card fails that test. Frustratingly so. I, I think it's possible, but I went first on the last one, so you get to go first this time. Oh, you are cruel. <laughs> yeah, I think that the fundamental problem is that we both really like this card. It does a lot of good things. We didn't even really talk much about the recursive property, but we do acknowledge it's nuts. The problem is just that, A, it fares comparatively poorly against Mentor, and B, well, B, Gush decks have a difficult time playing this card, and C, mm-hmm. perhaps most importantly, it probably exists in a, it goes into a non-existent deck, or a completely reformulated deck, and that's the hardest thing to predict. <sighs> this card is a pretty sweet draw in the very late game when you're pull, pulling off the top, or nearly so. Yeah. I think it's more threatening than Mentor in that context because of its second ability. Granted, you're talking about play five mana past the turn, but pay five mana, oh, that requires you to have six artifacts. Man, I keep forgetting that. That's a heck of a drawback. Never mind. That's just not reliable. The fact that this... Inc- okay, so the second ability is designed to incentivize you to have produced a whole bunch of constructs. Right. Which, in a vintage context, if you manage to get to that point, even if all your constructs are just one ones and two twos, like if you just played a bunch of preordains and stuff, I don't know. Even then, you pro- it's probably a game-winning play, sacking this to get back all those pre-arranged and maybe so. a time walk and some force. Yeah, I assume so. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you get back, like, five cards, 
like let's say misstep, force, mind break, trap, gush, preordain. How do you lose? Yeah, that's you're right. That's really powerful. Not to mention all the removal spells, right? Dismember and snuff or whatever. Yeah, yeah, dismember and snuff out are hilarious. <laughs> you're probably right. This probably is blue black. Oh jeez, I think you've got to be. And those black removal spells are all so attractive. To oh my this. god, and they're already good in the format. I think there's no denying it. That's an intriguing control deck, though. A blue-black control deck. Yeah, well, the the question in my eyes is, why do you want to be blue-black and not Esper? What are you doing on turns <laughs> like 2, 3, and 4 that's incentivizing you away from playing Monastery Mentor? Well, I think a lot of these Esper Mentor decks play Dark Confidant. Not all, but... Uh... Okay, that's I mean, that's reasonable. You could play be playing Bob in this deck, but then you're going to re- have to restructure all of your um, mana costs, right? You yeah. laughed earlier about how you don't want to be playing Bob in this deck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can build a... You, you and I very well know that you can build a Gush Bob deck, but it's getting less and less attractive when you're not playing Treasure Cruise and Dig in such a deck because you don't want to die. Yeah, maybe it's too... Yeah, I mean, these Esper Mentor decks don't have... They do not run Dig or Treasure Cruise. They don't? Not thought, Brian's. Well, Brian is not a normal person... I would look at the median <laughs> rather than looking at the most egregious outlier we have in vintage construction. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's design approaches are unorthodox, no doubt. What about the one that was in the Power 9 Top 16? I, I don't know. I remember that one had Cabal Therapy. doesn't seem uh, like the right approach either. The most recent Esper Mentor deck on tcdex.net does not have uh, Treasure Cruise. Oh no, it but, does. I'm sorry. It does have Dig and Cruise. Sorry. Okay. Well, that's well. Then here, let's. Then, I, would ass, I would assume the default well, Esper Mentor deck has Dig and Cruise. So t- take that deck list, and what would you cut from it for this? What well, What would I cut from that list? That list has seven creatures: one Snap, two Jace, and four Mentor. It has restricted stuff. It has one Mind Break Trap. So you could cut Baby Jace. You You could. Oh, this is a this is a Mystic Remora deck. This sounds like it might be perfect. There, it's really hard to find room here. This deck only has three gush and two plows. It has Mystic Remoras, which yeah, you could cut some creatures, and you're not going to play four Metallurgic Summonings either. You could cut one of your smaller creatures, maybe one Misstep. This deck doesn't even have Soul Ring. This is not seem like the right approach. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It's it's tough. It's it's it. You can cut one or two cards here or there from the, in, in any list, and you're not going to cripple it, right? This deck's not going to change its position in the metagame dramatically with one Jace Vryn's Prodigy versus two. So, and as I said earlier, I mean, in a context where you're converting Esper Mentor to our Metallurgic Summonings, I'm only thinking about playing one or two. It's yeah. not a Metallurgic Summoning deck. It's still a Mentor deck with just extra high-end Mentors. This deck is already poorly positioned against Shops and Eldrazi, though, just because it's a Remora deck. So... There's a lot going on here. I don't feel like taking a Remora deck... I thought you felt that Remora was good against shops, not against contemporary shops. Huh? Well, that That's a super loaded question. I My Remora deck was okay against shops, but I was heavily, heavily sideboarding against them, and I was Jeskai at the time. I was bringing in almost my whole sideboard against them. Not because I had a whole bunch of shatters, but just because I all of my cards were upgrades for things in the main deck. <laughs> now, yeah. granted... There's a lot going on there, so I don't want to derail us. That deck was not Esper. That deck didn't have Cobble Therapy. So there's a lot of differences. Yeah, <laughs> I think this card's greatest potential lies in a in a in a kind of a, a novel archetype or a novel reformulation of an archetype. I don't think that jamming this into Mentor is going to really do the trick. I do appreciate what you came to about thinking about it as, gen- as Mentor five and six, but there are a lot of other 
five and six mentors, like pyromancers <laughs> and so oh, on. Sure. So sure, sure. Yeah, I, I wonder if you can answer that question I posed earlier, though. But right, I mean, if you're, you're if you're just a blue black control, what are you doing on your intervening turns instead of playing monastery mentors? I, what, what's the <laughs> what's the thing you do on turn three in blue black control? Yeah, I think you're just playing draw spells and cantrips and removal, and that's it. It sounds like you you're close to land still, though, without all the things that make land still what it is. Very possible. It's, it, it's it's hard to compete in vintage by just playing like one for one removal spells with your opponent, right? That's why every major deck has either goes wide or is has some other kind of major draw engine. Don't you remember that Shea Mora deck? Thinking of something along those lines. Yeah, the Commandeer deck? I mean... Yeah. Ooh, that Commandeer. Deck, that deck predates Young Pyromancer, does it not? That deck is old school. That's, that's old vertical growth magic. <laughs> I don't think that deck can compete. I'm not certain it predates Pyromancer, but it definitely predates Py- uh, Mentor. I don't think that model can compete at all. That's funny, Commandeer. Yeah. That's I, a I card know, I've I not heard attract- of since old. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's attractive to play lot, you know, lots of pitch magic with this Metallurgic Summoning. Yeah, it's se- Commandeer 7 mana. <laughs> I know, it's, that's pretty awesome, but Commandeer is terrible against Shas and Eldrazi. It's just unplayably bad in those matchups. Like, there's, <laughs> there's you want to take their soul ring is about the only yeah. thing against shops. Um, and it's not even that great against modern aggro control decks. Like, you're going to pitch three cards to take their gush? God, if you could just get no, this thing into good. play, then Commandeer, Commandeer was, is a 7-7, seven, seven, even if it doesn't resolve. But Commandeer was good back when, because we were ta- we were playing Control Slaver Mirrors. We were playing Time Alt decks. We were playing Tezzeret. I mean, Commandeer on a Jace the Mind Sculptor is super good, don't get me wrong. All right. We, modern we, decks have we, I think we've exhausted any relevant or interesting discussion point on this card. I'm going to go zero. <laughs> I love the card. I love it. I would love to see it play. I, I, Lord, I hope someone plays it. I hope someone does well with it. But I have to be a realist here. I just, I'm, maybe if they restrict monetary mentor, I think that we could have to this. But until that point, yeah, I agree with everything you've concluded. I'm going to go zero Damn. as well. But it's, it's sadly and reluctantly, with, with, with the deepest of regrets, I'm, right. Right. I'm forced to conclude. <laughs> Let's move on to Dovin Bond two. White U, what white U? Two W U, <laughs> Planeswalker Dovin, starting loyalty of three. <laughs> one, until your next turn, up to one target creature gets minus three, minus zero, and its activated abilities can't be activated. Minus one, you gain two life and draw a card. Minus seven, you get an emblem with your opponents can't untap more than two permanents during their untap steps. How so, far do you want to go with this one? <laughs> uh... Let's let's just compare to Narset, because we did a lot of talking about Narset earlier, and this is the same mana cost. Now, Narset, as we t- discussed then, is not great at protecting herself. Both of her abilities are like card advantageous. Dovin Bond has an amped-up version of Jace Telepath's Unbound's plus ability. It lowers an additional power, and it turns off activated abilities, which is nice. In a vintage context, for example, it means you're not going to get overrun by a Ravager, Um and it's minus three power, so even if the Ravager is already big, like they could sacrifice artifacts in response, but they'd have to sacrifice a lot and get it up to a four four. So I think the minus three minus O ability is pretty pretty good. But we're comparing that to you know this is a four mana planeswalker, and we're comparing it to an ability on a effectively two mana planeswalker. So it's a little lacking in terms of defense. His second ability, gain two life and draw a card, is pretty bald faced and I just don't know. I mean, it's better than Chandra's Plus, I guess. 
but not much. It's a little bit better. You know, you can still draw lands and creatures off of it. So I, I don't know. This is it's. I think if this were five years ago, we'd be more excited about this. But compared uh, to what we got and what we've been playing lately, it's just the only un- way I would be excited about this is if Jace the Mind Sculptor had never been printed. <laughs> 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 the fact that you get to draw, you get to immediately net a card with zero activation on Jace, it's effectively the same casting cost. I I just don't think this is the the only thing that this has going for it over it is the activated ability neutering effect but there really aren't enough vintage creatures where you really have to deal with i mean the the, the utility creatures in vintage are not ones that use activated abilities predominantly and in fact it's far and away yeah there was a time when that was true but it's only it's only part of them it's only a subset now there are many cards in this set that excite me this is not one of them this doesn't even tickle (laughs) me i'm uh i'm i'm a zero all right fair enough I'm going to go with zero as well. I do think, I do think this is close to Narset in playability. I honestly do, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not as good at the things that Narset is good at. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's, it's real tough. Uh, I just don't think it's going to go anywhere. No. It's got a cool Star Wars name, but <laughs> yes, it does. And um, if you know, if Matt Murray can make Nahiri work, then I think anything's possible. Isn't Nahiri better? Well, she doesn't have a card advantageous ability oh, like good point. he just draws you cards yeah she's better she actually removes stuff so her removability is far better but dovin bond actually gets you plus cards fair enough i i, I don't know it, it's 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 a toss-up <laughs> you know do value the removal or the draw more I, I like kaya a lot more than dovin bond well and i like tamio a lot more than dovin bond i think both of her abilities are better at what they're trying to accomplish in vintage than his two abilities are so yeah, for any who are excited about Dovin Bond, please take a look at Tamio Field Researcher. <laughs> just, just do me a favor. All right, next is Rashmi, Eternity's Crafter. Two, green, blue. I'm going all over the place with my naming conventions today. Legendary creature, Elf Druid. Whenever you cast your first spell each turn, reveal the top card of your library. If it's a non-land card... With converted mana cost less than the spell you cast, you may cast it without paying its mana cost. If you don't, cast the revealed card. Put it into your hand. 2-3. Steve, I know you love, love this card. This is like this is like um, <laughs> Jurian's grandmother, you know? Like, <laughs> Let me show you how it's done, She's, little it's lady. A, it's like her, her, her cool aunt, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah, no, this it, is, I mean, this it, is just fascinating. Where, where to begin? No, I think Jurian is where we begin. Yeah, I mean the the mana cost thing. We're gonna in- inevitably end up talking about that. Definitely. But, so, th- why wasn't Jorian good? Right. I think there's three reasons. Yeah, there's three reasons. One is well, the reasons that I thought it would be good was because it fit into a natural, it fit into an existing archetype, a playable deck. So it wasn't a mystery as to where it would go. Yeah. It had yeah. a play- very playable casting cost, and it did something very valuable: generate card advantage. But the reason it didn't see play, first and foremost, was because it wasn't good enough in a good enough set of matches. It was difficult to reliably trigger it, surprisingly. <laughs> like, you could trigger it, but it just wasn't reliable enough and consistent enough. Like, if you could have triggered... If if, if it was possible to trigger Jorian, like, basically every turn, like, opponent turn and your own turn after it comes into yeah. play, it would have seen a lot more... Pl- it would have seen play. Yeah. As opposed maybe. to... Yeah, <laughs> but the fact that, like... I mean, even in the VSL match where Brian Kelly resolved Jorian... It didn't even activate some of the turns. Yeah. So um, there's that. So it was unreliable card advantage. And then the opportunity cost of the slot, which is related to the first two, is just too high. So it's it's really only good in a very narrow set of matchups. Um, yeah, that's I think that's it. 
Well, clearly, Rashmi costs one more, but is far more reliable at drawing you cards. I think it seems pretty clear that you can reliably expect to draw one card on your turn and your opponent's turn with a high degree of reliability. Yeah. Just between counter magic and, and, and regular old instance, she's going to be able to draw cards on your opponent's turn frequently. Now, there, it does put some pressure on your sequencing, because if you're playing Gush, for example, you could be incentivized to Gush on your opponent's turn, which is something we discussed with Jorian, right? But I do think she has she reduces that incentive as compared to Jorian. <laughs> and also, let's not forget that we keep referring to her ability as drawing cards. Her ability it's is not, way better it's than way drawing better. cards. It's way better, yeah. <laughs> it, this... It, it, Her ability generates mana, too, which is ridiculous. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, imagine you flip, like, oh, I don't know. Well, first of all, if you flip Dig Through Time, you can just play it. The bat. No, no, you mean if, you, if you're if you casting Dig, the card you flip is going to be playable off the bat. Exactly. That's what you should say, yes. Yes. All right. Well, if you ca- it doesn't matter what you cast. Well, uh, but the, the thing is, you can only cast the spell if it's a non-land card with converted mana cost less than the, than the spell. spell. Right, right. That you triggered so you it with, cast right? Gush play just about any. I think it's about any whatever. You know. Any non-land thing, yeah. You, I mean, yeah. you could be casting Jace the Mind Sculptor off of this trigger on your opponent's turn, even, <laughs> which you wouldn't. I mean, doesn't matter when it is. But the point is, yeah. So, if, so the worst you get is a draw. Yeah, the draw. The best you get is three mana. Mana, mana. So, um, and for all the reasons yeah. that we were just excited about metallurgic summonings, right? similar things could be said here because you get all these cards in Vintage that have converted mana costs of five that you're not paying any mana for. That could lead to huge benefits, right? You could be realistically announce Gush, get a free Jace the Mind Sculptor off of it, and, I mean, the value is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> That's... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, like in a gush deck, it's particularly good. But 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 like you said, it's just the every time you play, if you play a deck or play a spell, up, you're gonna get value. Up. Oh yeah, true. And because you're you're free casting, in, you know, hopefully cards off the top of your deck based on their mana cost, then anything that sets the top of your deck, like preordain, ponder, jace, and top, all of those cards go up in value as soon as she hits play. Because if you've got juicy stuff that you can cast and get value out of, then you put that on top and do it. If you don't have something juicy, then you can put, you know, the thing that you'd like to be in your hand most with a top, for example, you can put that on top and then draw it and get closer to the next thing. I could just, any turn that begins with her and Jace the Mind Sculptor in play has got to be a completely unfair turn. There's just no two ways about it. Because, oh, look at this. She, you, well, you know how the interaction between... Her and Jace, yeah, good luck. Oh, well, I know. But, but, she, but she promotes that, right? I mean, you're going to cast yeah. her, and sometimes you're just going to find your Jace. Opponent. I mean, that's, oh. that's a given. I mean, that's just a given. It's just... <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is it's even it's even sicker than it might it seem, because you know how the interaction with Jace and Gush is, is you're incentivized to Gush before using Jace's uh, brainstorm ability. She she turns that whole thing on its head. Now, you, now you're incentivized to Jace Storm and then Gush and put a, you know something that costs three or four into play for free and then go proceeding to resolve your jason you're still looking at new cards you would see one new card like the monastery mentor top yeah yes it does there aren't a lot of gush decks that run green right now there not right are, now no there are some delver decks that have run green but delver now really doesn't run green trigon predator has kind of disappeared with the rise of the eldrazi mm-hmm. uh so there's sylvan mentor with rich shea uh and by the way sylvan sylvan library seems pretty bonkers with this card um, oh yes you're completely right then wow. there's Doomsday and Cobra decks, but those no 
you're not going to put this into a Doomsday deck. And no. although it is nice that this is a way to cheat Doomsday, that's for sure. You don't need black, black, black. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, but then again, and this doesn't really synergize very well with Cobra because Cobra produces mana and this exactly. avoids mana. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, this is a four mana spell, so Cobra would assist you in getting it into play. You could play it in in a kind of regrowth gush combo deck like I played like with Mentor or Pyromancer. That's, I think, a legitimately cromulate place for this as well. Yeah. Um, that probably would work pretty well, actually. I mean, you can get just a lot of recursive card advantage out of this card. I think the question that, from my perspective, is would you rather have Jace than this card? I hate to bring it to that kind of, you know, un- <laughs> uninteresting nub, but but there are clear advantages. I mean, you might be able to generate more card advantage with this more quickly than with Jace. Well, um, we've, we've said it many times before, but Jace is still only plus one card on your turn. On your turn, and, and he doesn't generate mana advantage like this, so you could really do some nutty... Th- right. Now, once you've gotten to four mana in, in most modern vintage decks like Sylvan Mentor... You're kind of already at the top of your curve. You're, you're not wanting for casting. Yeah. You can still make use of five or six mana in a turn, thanks to the amount of spells you can play. There's no doubt. But you're not left wanting once you've gotten to the four mana point. Still, I, I can't shake the notion that once she's in play, you don't even you don't need any setup. But because she has such card advantage baked in, you the odds of you finding your setup cards is you know really quickly is is high. I could just, I mean, just the simple act of playing a preordain. Imagine if you, if you and your opponent fought over early spells and jockeyed for position and played some removal and played some force of wills, and you, you most, you spent most of your resources in the first three turns, and then you play her on turn four. Assuming your opponent does not immediately remove her, imagine how good it is to just untap and play preordain because you play preordain and she triggers. Now the only thing you're going to cast for free off of her from a one mana spell is a mox. But no matter what it is, you, you put that top card into your hand, and then you resolve Preordain. But now you've got a fresh card in your hand, and you're looking at the next two with yeah. Rashmi in play. Yes. I mean, even just that simple interaction yeah. of draw, look, you know, one card extra in your hand, looking at two, you've just opened up a ton of possibilities for things to do on either your opponent's turn or your next one. It's, yeah. I mean, she gets out of hand quickly. And just like Monastery Mentor, look at how good she is with, with top. Oh yeah, just like Sylvan Library. Yeah, top top yeah. really maximizes. Um, you're just never going to run out of cards on your turn, no. and it and every time you do that, you're you're increasing the likelihood you're going to draw a card on your opponent's well, turn. You can always yeah, you, with top you can just always return the top, replay it, and get another card. So that's my point. Is, yeah. is you're you're guaranteed to draw an extra card. It's like a yeah. howling mine for it, you. It just and you're setting up instance in for your opponent's case, turn. In that particular case, a top itself. Well, the, what, what you would assuming you're starting your turn with her and top in play, that's the scenario. You know, ultimately you're going to arrive at. It's not always going to be that way at first, but you just top to draw on your upkeep, and then you draw the top, and then you play the top, and you draw to replace it. Yeah, or, that's how it's going to work. Or you top, you activate top in your main phase, draw uh, like I don't know, a Gataxium. You play it, and then you and you draw render your top again. Yeah, draw, yeah. replay the top, then you draw another card. D- yeah, oh, it, that's the first spell. Right. It's only the first spell. Yeah. It's only the first spell, yeah. But the, depending on the board position, you could do you would do more than what I just said. I think, assuming you're ton tapping with four mana and her and top, you probably top during your upkeep and then evaluate what you're going to do based on what you see. Because of the fact that if you top on your upkeep and you see gush and jace, <laughs> then the first spell you play on your turn is is dang well not going to be top, right? Yeah. You're going to go to your draw step and draw gush. You're going to activate top and draw jace. No, 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 wait, I lied. No, 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 no wait, play I lied. Gush. 
you're going to yeah. go to your draw step and and <laughs> right and draw a gush. You're going to leave your top there. You're going to gush, casting Jace for, for free. free. Yeah. yeah, and then you're going to go from there. So I mean, yeah. So top is just amazing. It fits, facilitates every part of her advantage: the mana <laughs> advantage and the draw advantage and the the consistency of having a spell advantage. Right? It's every part of it. Top facilitates. Mm-hmm. That, that's impressive. I mean, that's that's in my opinion, that's even more value than you get with just top and mentor, which is saying something because top and mentor is delicious. What about her in your Tamiyo deck? Yeah, I mean. She's. She, I don't see why not. She would go in a bug deck pretty well. You you it, you know Deathrite Shamans will help you cast her. Definitely. She synergizes with Tamio because she's a, a creature that helps Tamio's plus ability, which I always like. I think I like if you're if you're act, if you're legitimately in four colors like what the last deck I've been playing. I think I still like Leovold more than more than her. But in bug, yeah. If you're in Bant, then I think she's really synergistic with Tamio also. And any deck that has her is kind of incentivized to not only have Gush <laughs> plus Force of Will getting draws and free mana out of her, but it incentivizes having like three and four mana spells just in general. I agree with you. This card probably gets out of hand very quickly. The problem is that so does Jason the Mind Sculptor at the exact same casting cost, and it's yeah. probably more reliable by itself. I well, I mean, uh, I'm not so sure about that. Onto a crowded, not crowded, onto a board where your opponent has multiple threats. I might rather have her, because with Jace, if your opponent has two or more creatures, you're doing a calculus of, should I just brainstorm and let Jace die? Yeah. Should I bounce one of their creatures and make them kill Jace (sighs) with the other one, right? So she could be better, again, assuming they don't immediately remove her, which is uh, obviously a perpetual caveat, but if you untap with her in a a situation where Jace just gave you a brainstorm and then died, you're going to get more out of her in the long run. I don't think I'm envisioning her as more of like a one or two of in any of these decks. Okay. She doesn't. She feels like kind of like in the Jace the Mind Sculptor slot, but you have to do a lot more work. You can't be as passive. You got to have like spells that you can play, kind of like on tap, and you got to have a lot more grindy effort at the same time. Well, it, it feels I, kind I, of I like a Brian Kelly you. deck. I, just, I, I guess I would say this, you need this, to be using top, are... and there's, I think you need more elbow grease. I don't think it can be quite as passive. It's like but it's, these decks are already built with all the cards necessary to make her good. Think about you don't the have difference to between how, backwards how Shu, a deck that makes her good. Think about the difference between how Shuhei built his Brian Kelly oath deck and Brian Kelly's oath deck. That's kind of what I'm thinking of. Like Shuhei yeah. is far more like passive, less like dirtling around. Brian Kelly likes to do a lot of kind of like dirtling. Like let me <laughs> you know value. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It, um, I, I, I guess. You, I think you're making an accurate observation. I don't think it influences how playable this card is, so to speak. I think you can make her successful, actually, in both models, and how good she is will well, just be down th- to the deck. I think we've player, logically... But the point is, is she still rewards you in both of those scenarios. I think we've logically identified places where this might see play. The question is, yeah. are there others that we're not <laughs> seeing? I mean, she's an elf. There aren't a lot of elf decks. This isn't something that's going to be powered out by... I mean, Leovold is also an elf, but... Uh, yeah, that's a relevant point. I mean, yeah. Leovold, you could be playing her with Cavern in a Leovold deck. I, I, we've made this observation with Jorian, and we haven't explicitly said it here with her, but Jorian incentivizes you to have a longer game, right? The only reason you would play Jorian is if you're going to get draw triggers on several consecutive turns in a row. Otherwise, you're better off just playing Divination or something, right? So she is... Similar, but actually a little less so, because she can be explosive. She's 
her ability is, is like cascade, right? That you're going to get over <laughs> and over again. It is, it is literally cascade, actually. I mean, not, okay, not literally. It functions much like cascade, though, that you're going to get True. turn over turn. That means to me is that even though she would be really nice to have in play for like four or five turns yeah. in a row and get zillions of cards, sometimes you're just going to play her like a mentor and you're going to go force away your next spell. This, Holy this, moly, I just played a, you know, I pulled a four mana spell off the top. This seems like, this whole discussion is just shockingly conventional though. Are we thinking, is there a, a box that we can, are we in a box that we need to be thinking outside of? I don't, I don't mean like, oh, we're going to be able to cheat things into play, but is there a whole nother home for this kind of effect? That we're just ignoring. Well, I mean, she is cheating things into play. She's not going to go into so... Storm. She's not going to go... She could go into a Bant deck. That's yep. easy enough, like a Bant fish deck. I don't... Maybe a Bant fish deck is a pretty good place for her. I mean, she becomes kind of like a Dark Confidant for each turn. You get Noble Hierarch to yeah. accelerate her out. You probably can play with Cavern of Souls. You don't even necessarily need Gush if you're using, like, I don't know, Force and Misdirections. True. And even again, even if you're not cheating on mana, you're still drawing cards. So she's kind of like Edric in that way. <laughs> Remind me of Edric again. Which one is that? <laughs> Edric is the three mana elf that makes you draw when your opponent steal or your creature steal damage to your opponent. Right? That was from Con- Conspiracy. Uh, well, originally from Commander, and then reprinted in Conspiracy. Got it. Yeah, three mana, one one green blue. Whenever a creature deals damage it gives to all, your opponents, all your things Ophidian. It's controller draw the card. Yeah. Makes all your creatures Ophidians, yes. So, <clears throat> so she's kind of like that. She could play a similar role to that in Bant, in, uh, yeah, in Bant Fish, as you said. And every once in a while, she's just going to give you a free two or three mana <laughs> for your trouble. We are getting so many playables introducing the card pool at one time. Predicting yep. where this is all going to land is, I think, damn near impossible. I think I mean, that people are going to be not very attracted to this card because of the, the folly of Jorian <laughs> and because Leobold came out. Well, the, the folly of Jorian was solely my own. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I was with you there, too. Not really. Not to the same degree. But uh, not, but whatever. We all have our crosses to bear. The point is, is I think that recent printings are going to put push this down the list, whereas if we were in a lull with very yeah. playable, yeah. it would be more exciting. To get a lot of attention. <laughs> this, poor, it, this poor girl is just, uh, she's just hiding in the shadows underneath this, this Kaladesh right. nonsense. <laughs> but at similar mana costs and functionalities, we've recently gotten Tamio and Spellqueller and Leovold and, and yeah. Prelates and just cards we talked about here on this show. I mean, geez, we started this review session talking about a paradoxical outcome. You know, Spell Queller is really insane, this, because it's Flash, so it's something you can play on your opponent's turn. You can play yep. it just as a creature, if you'd like. Yep. You're going to get card advantage of it, so it'll, it'll cantrip itself. Yep. Jeez. Talk about cumulative impacts. <laughs> Spell Queller sounds insane in a Bantfish deck. I wonder if Bantfish you're, is viable. You're talking to the guy who has played a Bant Spellqueller deck in his last three tournaments. He's almost entirely responsible <laughs> It's not Bant, for... it's Bant Black. <laughs> I've only added Black in the last two. Okay. It's like, this is like when you tried to convince me that Mystic Remora was good when I've been playing <laughs> for two years straight. <laughs> okay, okay, you're going a little bit far with that one. That's not quite true, but... <laughs> yeah, for our listening audience, that's pretty much what happened. <laughs> anyway... I, I I think I think 
this is a playable vintage card. Definitely. I think no one's going to play it. I do think That's how play. I see it. I do think people play that. Uh, I'm going to uh, go... So you're going to go zero? I'm going to go... I'm, I'm tempted to go like a one or a two, but I just... I've been burned too much in, in Eldritch Moon for saying one or two when I thought cards were playable. I think this is playable, and I think no one's going to play it. That's that's that, that's my solution. I think the danger is always overreacting. You know, in in sports betting, one of my favorite things to do is is take advantage of how the line moves in the opposite direction when you know when things go awry in one week because yeah. people overreact. Yeah. I don't want to overreact to the Jorian experience. I think there are good, solid reasons to think this will see play, whereas Jorian didn't. Uh, granted, That's this true. is this I is say you're correct. This is more expensive, but the conditionality is is light years apart. Yeah, and and it's it's less conditional and it's far more powerful. Yeah, and the combination of those two things, you're right, points in the direction of this is this is much more playable. So I'm I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm gonna I'm gonna double down. I'm gonna say two or three. What's your what's your bet? <laughs> zero. I'm gonna go zero. You can go two. I'm gonna go two. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna be. I'm not going to be alarmed if you are correct. All right. Metalwork Colossus. 11 generic Anna. Artifact creature construct. Metalwork Colossus costs X less to <laughs> cast, where X is the total converted mana cost of non-creature artifacts you control. Sacrifice two artifacts, colon. Return Metalwork Colossus from your graveyard to your hand. 1010. 10. <laughs> This card is brilliantly designed. I love it. I love everything about it. It's it's attractive to everyone. It's attractive to Spikes. It's attractive to Johnny's. It's attractive to Timmy's. This is this card ha- really has it all. Probably even Vorthos. Um, what what I think that we should here's the question I want to pose to you, Kevin, before we even get too deep on this. So yeah. I mean, there's a lot of tacit information that I think we could probably skip over. But here's the question: How big? Whether this will play C or not. Let me just start. How big? Would you think this effect would need to be for you to feel 100% certain it would be like a top tier vintage card? Like if this was uh, a 2020. What's the bigness of the effect that you refer? Oh, you mean the size of the creature? Yeah, yeah. If this was a 2020, just imagine this was a 2020. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Would you think that this would be a vintage staple? Yes, a 2020 vintage staple, no question. Okay, good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's obvious that. Like, this would obviously... The home for this is a workshop deck. The problem is that all the good workshop decks are creature decks right now. And they run... Yes, they run Four Sphere and Four Thorn and Three Tangle Wire, but Chalice doesn't power this, and Trinisphere is a singleton, and the rest of the cards are basically creatures. So in order to make this... What? Not basically? basically. Yeah, just... So you basically... You would have to play a deck that uses like a lot of prison cards and then this is your win condition is my guess right uh within reason yeah yeah for the most part i mean let's not forget that ua stacks is a thing and yeah put up a lot of top eight in paper lately it did put up a couple in q1 it looks like four, four oh no five top eights in q1 but none in q2 i'm sorry none in q3 i'm i'm getting confusing it put up put up five top eights in the first half of the year but none since june uba stacks is the sort of deck that could really make this Colossus kind of hum, you know? It, the thing is, is as it's, it's not hard to construct a curve in in throughout the history of workshop decks that would really facilitate this. Turn one, Thorn. Turn two, I don't know what on turn two is, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that a four-mana spell is reliable on turn two in shops, 
it's reasonably reliable, but for the purposes of this, maybe turn two as a tangle wire. Yeah. Turn three, three. a four mana, you know, lock component is like pretty a smokestack, and then you could probably play this for like two or three mana the following turn. Well, you've got two, three, you have and nine. four in play. That's nine. This right. thing costs that, two. That's why I said two or three mana the following turn. Okay. With a sphere in play. <laughs> I wanted to be explicit. Yeah. If it's a thorn, this thing costs two. If it's a sphere, this thing costs three. So, I mean, that curve is pretty frightening, right? <laughs> yeah, and if you have like a soul ring in play, it's one even less. <laughs> well, um, if you have a soul ring in play, it's it's three less, <laughs> right? Because the soul ring yeah, exactly. lowers it by one and taps for two. And so just to be explicit, in in current Ravager shops, you the, the best curve you could hope for to get this out is turn one Thorn, turn two Tanglewire, and at that point, aside from drawing your Trinisphere or another Thorn, you're reducing this by five, and it still costs six. Not good enough. Now, it's yeah. not good enough. It's playable, I suppose. If you could guarantee that things, this thing always costs six mana, you might still play it, but even then it's borderline. Because a lot of players would rather have a worm coil engine for that cost than a ten ten. You know what's interesting is you, is you you may need to play. This is ironic, but you may need to play. So here's the here's one of the problems. There just aren't enough artifact lock parks parts these days. You know there just aren't enough to put around this. I guess you well, could play Null Rod is is another lock part that probably would go in this deck. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't agree, you, but I think the second half of your statement is there aren't enough lock parts that justify playing over all the creatures. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's why they're good enough. for aggro decks now and not stacks. Yes. I mean, and the ones that are, like, so you probably need Null Rod, and the ones that are good, like Sculpt, uh, not Sculpting Steel, but Ensnaring uh, Bridge, like, yeah. they're fundamentally dissynergistic with this card. Um, That's funny. I mean, it's still possible to play Smokestack in Vintage. So people yeah. occasionally have success with it. Yeah. But so so if you're but to your point, those creatures I'm sorry, those decks are still incentivized to be creature heavy, heavier than they, they have been. If you look at just smokestack and, and ignoring, you know, Uba Mask for the moment, it put up one top eight in July. No, I lied, two in July, and then there were three in May. So Smokestack without Uba Mask is, I mean has put up one or two more top eights. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think this card wants makes you good enough to get away from all the creatures to want to play smokestack more than just ravager thought not chops. Right. I think you can make this creature pretty reliable to cast for five mana or less. Yeah, but that's not. But good that's enough. not a better deck. Yeah, it's not a better deal or a better deck. I mean, also, a five mana ten ten just seems like just about right for <laughs> for a yeah. vanilla for a vanilla creature. Well, I mean, and let's not forget that. That whole deck is just far weaker to deck. That's part of the reason. Oh yeah. I mean, you can still splash in your Ravagers and your Revokers, and you would, I think. And yeah, those you... workshop, those Smokestack decks do. But the the point is, is you're still just making yourself more susceptible to deck. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. You, you, I think this only goes into a prison strategy as a win condition, and even then, then it becomes superfluous by its own terms. Like that's a good point. If you curved out in, you know, from Thorn to Tanglewire to Smokestack, you you don't need a ten ten. Yeah, Karn and Trike and all that. You can kill them with the Revoker you've still got in your hand. I mean, you've got Ooh, control of that game. This is pretty... We're getting pretty negative on this card. <laughs> I, I think may, maybe the, the card we're missing in this equation is Crucible. We haven't been talking oh, about Crucible yeah. very much. Oh, good. Yeah. But, um, so, I mean, can you, can you make a non-Smokestack Ravager aggro deck 
that has just enough non-creatures to make this cost I'm five. very glad you brought up Crucible, because that's a critical component of the solution, if there is one. It's Unfortunately, Null Rod is, is so dis-synergistic with Ravager that... No, you need not really cost those. I can't imagine playing this without a Null Rod. De- with Null Rod. Well, the only way I could think of is if you're still trying to be a Ravager deck to, to hedge against Dak. That's the only way. Because if you're, if you're still trying to do that, don't forget that, uh, I don't know, there, there's lots of things to consider in terms of the workshop mirrors here, too. Null Rod is quite strong in the workshop mirror, but it's hard if to this, be a smokestack deck in the workshop mirror yeah, when this your opponent is, is just laying creature after creature. this is a control deck, then we could even go the kind of like espresso route, like with Expedition Map or Serum Powders or things like that. This card really likes uh, Staff of Nin. Interesting. Staff of Nin yeah. just cost five all by itself. But if you have if you have Expedition Map, then you can put a Homeward Path in there to try and deal with Dak. Um, oh, that's true. That's true. I, I think it's interesting that that this coming down, you need two turns to win at least. That's if they have no blockers. It doesn't have trample, yeah. has no evasion, so it's really Nilla. It's kind of like yeah. a crawl worm. The uh, the. But but there is one element to this that I think is is we shouldn't overlook, and that's its recursive property. I really like that. I mean, think oh, about that's good. that. Actually, yeah. could be really good with a big smokestack ramped up, right? Oh, and you know what? That's that's actually especially synergistic with Uba stacks because of their tendency to play bizarre. Yeah, but so you could ramp up smokestack to like four, five, six, and have a way to deal with it and preserve all your board on your opponent's end step. Sacrifice. Oh. I just, you just, I can't believe I didn't realize before that this sacrifice ability is not timing restricted. Isn't it insane? I'm so, I'm so used to these abilities happening on your upkeep or being limited to sorceries. Yeah, you can just do this on your opponent's end step. Yeah. You can sacrifice a, a tangle wire that's only got one counter and a box on your opponent's end step. And yeah, that's really interesting. So this synergizes in smokestack, with Smokestack in a different way than I was planning on. But you kind of need Bizarre to make that happen, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, if you have Bazaar, then it, it gives an outlet to what you're going to do with this most of the time, right? You're just going to bin this yeah. thing and then get it back when you're about to win the game. So it becomes just kind of like the quickest win condition. Yeah, and you know what else is nice with this card is Metamorph, because Metamorph it's gives nice. you flexibility. It, it can, it's a creature. Or Sculpting creature. Seal, either one, yeah. Yeah, but Metamorph costs four also, right? When it's better, play. yeah, good point. Yeah, so it's just that much better. Well, I think we did it. I think maybe, we we created a space. Maybe this maybe this could lead to the return of espresso stacks. I think you alluded to that earlier, but the serum powder. Yeah, you, I mean, with it with all that stuff, you can you have space then for the singleton lands like the tabernacle and whatever to deal with tokens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, again, the fundamental problem is if you're building a prison, then you don't want to clog up with wind conditions. But <laughs> that's the fundamental logical tension with this card. So you. It's a deck that would need to turn on a dime more quickly. It's I, interesting. I agree with you there. It's interesting. I, I just want to imagine, like, what if this really was a 2020? You know, it's like, I don't know what if that really makes much of a difference here, <laughs> to be honest. It, well, the, 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 the point of power between 19 and 20 is the one that makes a difference. Sure. Right? <laughs> Within reason, maybe it's the one between, like, 17 and 18 that really makes a big difference. But with all the token generators in the format right now, the lack of any kind of evasion is, is really pretty, a liability. Yeah, it's a pretty big hang-up for me for this card. This is a sweet card, though. Really cool. I wonder, too, if you couldn't shore up that weakness by taking a page from the old Terra Nouveau deck. Not old. <laughs> you know, the Terra Nouveau that was kind of a... Yeah, it used uh, Null Rod. It used Null Rod and Factories yeah. and all that. Well, and, and in my opinion, the Tabernacle is the, the primary feature of that deck. And this... So one thing that's good about 
you know that that workshops can do to fight um token generators is tabernacle and a singleton creature that's enormous is also good in that context because you don't have to pay for much right yep restricting your opponent's mana you've got tackle in play you can afford to pay one mana to keep a 10 10 <laughs> and keep abyssing them while they're struggling to pay for their whatever creatures i i don't know if that's actually better than the the dark steel juggernauts that that deck played but um but it's just one other thing to keep in mind Ter- you know tabernacle is a, is a key tactic for a deck like that so what do you think? Do you think this will see vintage play? I think it's vintage playable. Do you think it will see vintage play? Oh, it's so close. Um, workshop players tend not to be excited about new, hmm. enormous features. <laughs> True. New lot components, absolutely. But I mean, when's the last time a new enormous creature saw play? Now, granted, we spent a lot of time talking about Sky Sovereign, and I'm very excited about that. But I'm excited for totally different reasons. Right. And it functions as removal, it functions as evasion, it's re- repeated card advantage, right, in a way that this is not. And it's, you know, it always costs five mana, whereas this thing sometimes costs five mana. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, I just, I just don't think it's going to happen. I think it's too, Interesting. it's too weak to the inherent built-in problems with the format. But now that I say that... It's pushing it, is though. This, it's a is this good in the mirror? Uh, no, because you want to be boarding out your spheres in the mirror. No, the best thing so, in the mirror is creatures. Yeah. Agreed, but th- the point is, is I was wondering, is it, does the mirror go long enough for you to cast this when it and make this costs a trump. six? And I think the answer is no. I think the mirror is still more about disruption and and trying to hamper your opponent just without without spheres, right? The mirror yeah. is more about crucible, occasionally tangle wire, and and you know wastelanding your opponent attacks. It's probably time. not bad in the mirror, but it's not great either. I mean, it might be pretty good, but it's I think the problem is what is the fundamental problem is it's going to be very expensive. Yeah. Even without spheres in play, it's going to be very. And expensive. even when you're reducing the cost properly, you're going to want you you would rather have uh, warm coil. In the mirror, or Sky Sovereign, or something that you know that's impactful. Yeah, Precursor Golem, any of those. Yeah. The the I mean the notion of putting a, a let's say Lightning Greaves on this is pretty attractive, <laughs> but but you're right. not going to play equipment for just this guy. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go zero. That's sad. That's really sad. God, we're so yeah. we're so pessimistic and. <laughs> well, it's it's ultimately it's kind of like metallurgic summonings. Could you it, play a if, vintage deck? With this card, yes, you could. I just don't think it's going to become common. If the workshop decks were not quite so homogenous at this point, I would yes. be inclined to, you know, find space for this. But yeah, back when we were in the wild west of workshop decks, <laughs> I'm gonna people are more experimental. I'm just gonna go one. Okay. I think someone like one of these team serious opens is gonna. <laughs> you know, I was just about to say, <laughs> you said one. What's the over under on that one? <laughs> Bet on it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I I would yeah. Even that you've said one, I am highly confident that if if the result is exactly one, that that person is alive. (laughs) Come on, Mark Trogdon. (laughs) Trogdon, if you're listening to this, we're counting on you. Well, we haven't been doing it religiously, but we'd like to have a question for this episode. And that question is, of course, which Kaladesh card are you most excited about in Vintage? And we've given you a buffet of options. (laughs) (laughs) 
thank you for listening to episode 57 of So Many Insane Plays. Please tweet us about Kaladesh at Many Insane Plays or email us about Kaladesh at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.